Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon call, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Blessed be everybody on this first Saturday of September. We're going to go ahead and begin with our opening and do our ascension work for today. So setting the rest of the world aside for this moment, we go into our heart center, entering into the beautiful portal of our heart as we call forth for the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I Am Presence and all of our multidimensional being through to our God Presence, Goddess Presence. See yourself in a beautiful pillar of light as they bring in all the colors of the rainbow, especially those colors that we are working with today, the violet ray and the sapphire blue ray that always work hand in hand. See yourself in your pillar, open to its fullest extent, fully anchored to source and fully anchored to the heart of Mother Gaia. As we expand our sacred heart, we invite in the planet and all upon her. And in unity consciousness, we ask them to join us for this ascension work. Please join me in saying, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And thus we invite them in to join us for the anchoring of heaven on earth as we recommit ourselves to being that bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut welcoming everybody as their mighty I am presence to join us as we do the following work and invocations. And so for everyone, we invite in all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, especially our new children. We welcome the assistance of or participation of all of our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods, and the assistance of all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, 
the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the jiva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels. The angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome the assistance of the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, the divine mother emissaries, divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. And we welcome our brothers and sisters from the Galactic Federation of Light and their, all of their healing teams, especially those that we work most closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus. And we welcome all Cosmic Galactic Universal Healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify it, magnify it, magnify it 10 billion times, 10 billion fold in alignment with divine will and divine law. And so we call in the assistance of all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws, all the ascension ways. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received through every cell, chakra, meridian, and layer of our orc field multidimensionally, on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well, the maximum that we can receive in this moment, individually and collectively, ever expanding to perfection. And so, we call forth everyone and everything in our circle of support. From the very first name that created it to each and every man, woman, and child, to every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, every institution, every business, every corporation, every weather pattern, all the flooding, all of these storms, all of the fires, all of the climate change every meeting, every summit, every nation, every government, all legislation, all governmental bodies on every level, all militaries, and everything that we have placed in the circle, every situation, every condition, all the war and violence across this planet. Everyone and everything. Every condition of life. 
can we call in the vial of flame to assist in transmuting us as we hold the vision of heaven on earth, as we hold everyone and everything in their divine perfection. And we ask that everyone experience only their divinity in life and release from this moment forward anything else. We call forth all of the attention toward our Virgo new moon, our Virgo full moon, Mother Mary's birthday on September 8th, the 9-9 portal, the upcoming equinox, and all of the, the attention around anything going on in the world. We call it into our collective cup of consciousness to transform the planet, to transmute anything less than love, anything less than perfection. And we ask that Gaia receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field multidimensionally, through every ley line and soul line, to the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all the multidimensional grid system, through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light, until every location on the planet becomes a city of light and heaven is firmly manifest here on earth. So let us affirm who we are as we decree, I am a being of light. I am a being of flame. I am a being of flame and I am its light. I am part of an activity reacquainting all human beings with their flame and their light. I am the flame that is the vibration of the Godhead. I am the flame that is the cohesive love which holds the sun and stars in place. I am the flame whose power projects light rays from the sun. I am the flame that fills all the universe with the glory of itself. I am the flame, the animating principle of life. Wherever I am, there is God activity. I am the Alpha and the Omega of creation. I am the beginning and I am the end of manifestation. All externalization. For I am the flame, which is the source of all, and into which all returns. The flame, which I am, is a power. The flame, which I am, is a substance. The flame, which I am, is the all of everything. Energy, vibration, and consciousness in action ever fulfilling the divine plan of creation. The flame which I am will co-create the new earth 
and set her free eternally. The flame which I am is a fifth dimensional activity. The flame which I am is the higher law of God goddess, come to assert its full dominion over all the lesser laws of the fourth dimensional world of humanity. It is master over every vibration less than itself. It is all loving, all knowing, and all powerful. And I am that flame in action amongst humanity. Within the flame which I am is every good and perfect thing. Every thought and feeling my godparents have ever had for the blessing of their creation. This perfection is externalized as light. Within the flame is the seed of all things. And within the light is the full manifestation of all things. I am the flame, and I am its light. The flame which I am is available like air or water. It is everywhere present, available to those who perceive it and accept it. This is my reason for being, the flame and the light, embodied in a form acceptable to humanity. I am the flame again reaching the withering souls of the human race, filling them with light, the substance of myself, my holy self. I am embodied for this reason and no other. For I am part of an activity designed to reacquaint every man, woman, and child with their flame and their light. I am a being of flame, and I am its light. I am the flame of life. I am an instrument of God, Goddess. I am that I am. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And we... Proclaim, I am an instrument of God, Goddess. I am weaving my gifts, talents, skills, knowledge, strength, courage, compassion, and love into the tapestry of the divine plan for the new earth. I am responding to my heart's call. And I am God, Goddess in action. I am consecrating my thoughts, words, feelings, and actions to be the greatest force of good I can be on this planet. I am making a positive difference every day. Through the focus of my attention, I am expressing the following truths, divine truths. I am one with all life. I am divine love. I am infinite abundance. I am the harmony of my true being. I am vibrantly healthy and eternally youthful. I am a peace commanding presence. The actions I take every day improve my life and self 
my family, my job, my community, my city, my county, country, and the world. I have a healing touch. I am communing with the angelic kingdom and the elemental kingdom. I'm transfiguring this planet into the new earth. So be it, and so it is. (laughs) And we give thanks for this. We call on the violet flame. Automatically, not only does the violet flame enter our frame of awareness, but it comes with the energy of the sapphire blue flame as well, the cosmic blue flame of that first ray. And so we are working with each of them simultaneously as as well as all of the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension ways as we do the following decrees. In the name and by the power and authority of the presence of God, God as I am, I invoke the beings of light and the realms of illumined truth to blaze the violet fire in all of the energies that we've called in with the power and might of a, of a thousand suns in, through, and around every electron that makes up the atoms of humanity's physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies. Hold the violet flame sustained and double it each hour until these earthly vehicles are fully assimilated into the perfection of our solar light bodies. Expand and intensify daily the mightiest action of the violet fire through all nations, races, cultures, creeds, and religions in every country of the world. Blaze the violet flame in all of the frequencies that we have invoked through every person's home, place of occupation, and overall environment until the perfection of the new earth is manifest for all life. Expand, expand, and intensify daily the mightiest action of the violet fire in, through, and around the cause and core of the creative centers of all doubt and fear in the earth, on the earth, and in the atmosphere surrounding the earth. Transform these creative centers into expressions of God confidence, trust, hope, and inner knowing. Expand and expand the violet flame and violet fire of purification and transmutation in, through, and around the landed surface, the waters, and the peoples of every country, province, state, city, town, and hamlet in the world. Establish a mighty focus of the violet fire in the etheric realms over each of these locations and intensify this purifying activity of light daily and hourly with every breath that I take. 
in the name, love, wisdom, power, and authority of the beloved victorious presence of God, Goddess I Am. I speak directly to the heart of the violet flame. Sacred fire, enfold me in the purifying, forgiving, healing substance of your light, which causes the consciousness and feeling of divine love and freedom to flow through me constantly to bless all life. Let this purifying essence saturate the atmosphere where I live, move, breathe, and have my being so that its miracle-working presence will give tangible proof of your reality to all humanity. Beloved Violet Flame, direct legions of your angels of the Violet Fire to blaze the flame of forgiveness and freedom into the heart of every evolving soul so that we all learn to use our light to the fullest in our service to life and the cause of freedom on earth. Beloved, victorious, violent fire of freedom's love, I love you. I do now most earnestly and sincerely call you into dynamic action. Perpetually blaze your transmuting flame into the beings and worlds of every man, woman, and child on earth. Enable each one to know that your healing presence will always bring happiness and release from anything that is not of the light. Enfold every person in the power of your light and transmute all imperfection in their lives in divine order with divine love. So be it, and so it is. And thus we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We are continuing our work as instruments of God, working with the violet flame, working with the sapphire blue ray, the cosmic blue flame, and all the flames, rays, universal laws, and ascension waves. We ask them to move in through and around all that we work with here as we invoke to join us the goddess of liberty, the goddess of divine justice, the goddess of freedom, the goddess of victory, the goddess of glory, the silent watchers, the mighty guardians and cosmic beings, including the cosmic being over Washington, D.C., Lady Columbia, all of whom are assisting humanity at this time from the inner levels with the establishment of the new earth. Blessed ones, come forth now and blaze the most powerful cleansing activity of the violet flame that humanity and the earth are capable of receiving during this cosmic moment. I open the stargate of my heart and I am instantly the open door for the most powerful fifth dimensional frequencies of the crystalline, solar, diamond, violet, transmuting flame of forgiveness and forgetfulness of transmutation that the earth has ever experienced. The violet flame pulsates through my heart flame and blazes in through and around all inharmonious actions, all lower human consciousness, 
in all obstructions of the light that any person, place, condition, or thing is ever placed in the pathway of life's perfection. Through the divine power of forgiveness and forgetfulness, the violet flame transmutes this discordant energy. Cause, core, effect, record, and memory now and forever. The silent watchers over every country, state, city, town, village, and hamlet on the planet now reach out their great loving arms and raise up a limitless number of souls in every location who are willing to participate in the faithful use of the violet transmuting flame of mercy and compassion. Each of these light workers understands the full importance of the sacred gift now being offered by our Mother Father God to help free humanity from all human distress. The conscious use of this mighty power from the heart of God Goddess will cause to be established within every one of these places free foci of the violet flame, which will continually bathe every person in each vicinity. Now through the clarion call of the I Am Presence of all humanity and the legions of light throughout infinity, the violet flame continues to expand and expand and expand. It merges with the immortal, victorious, threefold flame blazing in each and every person's heart and explodes into a tremendous starburst of light. This influx of the violet flame increases to the intensity and power of a thousand suns. Beloved legions of light associated with the violet flame of freedom's love and transmutation blaze the light of a thousand suns along with all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves through this planet and all of its tectonic plates, ley lines, song lines, cracks and fissures of this blessed planet. Blaze the light of a thousand suns through the actions and feelings of every man, woman, and child evolving on this earth until every person individually acknowledges and accepts the immaculate concept for all life. And every expression is a healing benediction. Blaze the light of a thousand suns through all incoming babies, the children, their parents and guardians, grandparents, caretakers, and teachers until all youth are raised up in their energy, vibration, and consciousness to carry out the divine directives of their I Am Presence and fulfill their divine mission. Blaze the light of a thousand suns through all youth centers and activities, all schools, colleges, and universities, all leaders, teachers, instructors, and professors in every line of endeavor, until the flame of God, illumination, and enlightenment is manifest and eternally sustained. Blaze the light of a thousand suns through all religious and spiritual teachings so that divine love, truth, tolerance, oneness, understanding, and universal sisterhood and brotherhood will quickly manifest. Blaze the light of a thousand suns through all doctors, all nurses, healers, hospitals, insurance companies, pharmaceutical conglomerates, and every institution associated 
with healing of any kind until divine mercy, compassion, caring, integrity, and healing are tangible realities for every evolving soul. Blaze the light of a thousand suns through all banking and financial institutions, all economic systems, all money, and the people associated with monetary interactions of any kind until every person on earth is openly demonstrating the true integrity, honesty, generosity, fairness, abundance, and the God got a supply of all good things. Blaze the light of a thousand suns through all places of incarceration and all employed there, through every correctional institution, law enforcement officer, every judge, jury, and court of law, until divine justice is fully manifest and eternally sustained, including all of the governments of the world and their judiciary, their legislative, their executive branches, every person, place, thing that has anything to do with government and intensify this until the highest self of each person is in alignment with divine will, love, oneness, and each of those fills every institution and every person associated with government of any kind. Blaze the light of a thousand suns through all space activities throughout the world until every nation unites in cooperative service so that God's will may be manifest with our sisters and brothers throughout the universe. Blaze the light of a thousand suns through the physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies of humanity until all disease, aging, and all human miscreation, its cause and core, is totally purified, dissolved, transmuted into purity, vibrant health, and infinite physical perfection. Blaze the violet flame and all the flames raise universal laws and ascension ways. Blaze the light of a thousand suns through all the food and water industries, all of the food and water used for human consumption, until every particle of food and every molecule of water is filled with light. Empower this elemental substance to raise the vibratory action of humanity's physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies until the perfection, the physical perfection of every person's solar light body becomes a sustained manifest reality for every human being. Blaze the light of a thousand suns in through and around every remaining electron of precious life energy, including all the air that we breathe, until the immaculate concept of the new earth is manifest and we have completed our ascension into that immaculate concept manifesting that perfection 
and all life evolving here is wholly ascended and free. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. As we continue to work with the violet and the blue, we call forth the manifestation of every aspect of government in this nation and across the world on a local level, on the city level, the county, the province, the state level, all national levels, all levels of government, from the lowest to the highest within each nation. And we see that cosmic blue flame and the violet flame working with every single nation and everyone in a place of authority, in a place of power in that nation and every voter in every nation. And we say through the presence of God, Goddess, I am in me and in all humanity. I now invoke the mighty Elohim and the legions of light associated with the sapphire blue flame of God's first cause of perfection. So the blue ray carries that first cause of perfection. Blessed one, come forth now and blaze your sacred flame along with all the flames, rays, universal laws, and ascension waves that we have already called in into the cause and core of all human miscreation in Washington, D.C., in every state capital, in every national capital of every nation across the world. Go forth now with your invincible angelic legions and sweep through every government building, every office, every home, in the city of Washington, D.C. and its surrounding areas, as well as through and as well as doing the same in every country of the world. Transmute for one and all the human desire to use free will destructively and replace it with the intense desire to serve God, Goddess, and all humanity. I ask for a special dispensation to permanently station your angelic legions in Washington, D.C. at this time. (coughs) (coughs) And in all world government centers across the earth. To ensure that all rates of vibration that tie any individual to activities of discord or imbalance be quickened right here and right now to a point where they are set free in the light. Protect every soul from accepting negative human suggestions and help each one to be a receiver of the forces and inspirational activities of God, Goddess. Assist each one to be a willing participant in the fulfillment of the divine plan of establishing divine government on earth. 
give added protection to those life streams who are already manifesting God's will through their divine plans and protect them from all interference that would seek to disrupt the establishment of divine government on earth. I consciously accept this dawn right now, eternally sustained and all-powerfully active, ever-expanding and world-encompassing until divine government and indeed heaven on earth is fully manifest in every country of the world. So be it and so it is. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. Beloved I am. <laughs> Take a nice deep breath. We call in Archangel Sandalphon and Mother Gaia to assist us to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we have received. Every frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing and dispensation. And do so with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, in love and light and laughter. And so it is. So we give thanks for this opportunity to serve. I thank you for your divine service here this afternoon. And I invite you to greater divine service each and every Sunday and Monday. For the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls, a teleconference call and we begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time with greetings. We have about 25 minutes of greetings and then Tarn and Grama give us a brief update. And then at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time, we begin our work in earnest of, of manifesting heaven through our visualizations, our prayers, our invocations, our visualizations, all of the activities of light that are included, including astrological updates from time to time. And thus, we are busy calling in everyone, as we did here today, to join us to create heaven on earth. As I said, this is a teleconference call, so please take down the number if you have not joined us before. The main number is area code 425-436-6260. Again, that's area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946 Seven four four one pound nine four six seven four four one pound. We'd love to have you join us and become a regular member of our light community to do this divine service work. So we love you and honor you all. We thank you for your service as you join us 
at the beginning of a Saturday call. And we want to take this time to thank Tar and Rama for their divine service. And as I pass the talking stick, I'm going to thank Greenberg for her divine service. And I explained to them that I was gifted today by my sister, who got me a souvenir from her travel. And it's a, a handmade talking stick from the Sioux Indians. And so this beautiful turquoise talking stick with its feathers and its fur and its beautiful beads is filled with that blue ray. And of course, that blue ray is for communication. So I'm trusting my new talking stick will assist me with improving my vocal quality. And so I pass the talking stick with the blue and the violet with all of the decorations of the actual talking stick and all of the energies that we have invoked, all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves, with the love and the energy of the fairies <coughs> and the angels and the sparkling diamond white light, I pass that to my sister Rainbird. Infinite blessings. We'll see you Sunday and Monday. Have a glorious week, everybody. Have a very safe and positive Labor Day weekend. And join us in the labor of love that we do in our divine service work the next two nights. So thank you, and thank you, Rainbird. Much love and gratitude to everyone out there. Well, thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for that beautiful talking stick. I love it. That turquoise with feathers and fur and beads, beautiful. So, and thank you for your divine service as well. We're so grateful to hear your voice and in your words. With so much gratitude. So, I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listeners supported radio program. It's each of us that makes it happen. And each week we need $300 to cover our fees with BBS radio. And I want to show you how to do that. <laughs> so to get that $300, we need to get in, in there. Uh, we need to go to bdsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2. And there you'll find a listing for this program at the 1.30 hour on Saturday. And that's Pacific Times. And this Radio Station 2, we also have the program and audits the roundtable on Thursdays at the 6 o'clock hour. So any one of those icons there, you can click on, and that'll take you directly to our account. And if you happen to go to Radio 1, our our show there is on Fridays, The Hard News, with our, with uh, on Friday nights, with Tara and Rama. And uh, that's also at the 6 o'clock hour. So there's an icon there you can click. So either way, any place, that's perfect. Thank you for taking that action. As you click on the icon, it takes you to our account, and you can use a bank card to make any donation in any amount. So thank you for your generosity, and thank you for showing up like that. So we also are assisting Tar and Lama with their needs. And uh, last week was rent week, and so we're very grateful for all of those donations, making that happen in a bunch of bills. 
as well. So lots of gratitude for your donations. And we need to keep it up so we don't get behind. <laughs> and so this week, they're needing um, $6 to pay a bill that's due today. So that's as you go to PayPal and make that contribution there, that'll take care of it. We need $6 to cover that bill today. So someone can take an action right now and make it happen. The other bill they have is due next week, next Friday, and that is $102.21. And then they also need money for buying cat food and gas money and those kinds of things. So your generosity is, again, appreciated. It would be nice to get $150, more dollars for their living expenses to get through the week. Um, and so there you go. That's what it is. Pretty minimal. I think we can do it. We just got to get that $6 in today so that bill can be paid today. And um, so here's how we make a contribution to Tara and Rama. What you want to do is go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And then as you get on the home page, here's the menu grid at the top of the page. Click on that, and the list that drops down, you'll find the donate link right near the bottom of that list. Click on that, and that'll link you to Rama's PayPal account, where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. So that's wonderful. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. If you have your own PayPal account, you can actually reach the friends option by not clicking on that link, but rather going into your own PayPal account and entering Rama's email with PayPal to make that gift. So that email address for Rama on PayPal is Coran, K-O-R-A-N, 999949 at hotmail.com. So you just enter that in from your own account, and that's how that friends option works. So either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for all of your contributions in all of the ways you show up in your life as well. So lots of gratitude. And then as you're sending something to, to Rama, please email him and let him know that you sent something and when you sent it and how much. Do that email for Rama, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, Nine 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 three nine at Comcast dot net, and that will let him know what's going on. And then, as you need it, the mailing address is Ram D Berkowitz R A M D Berkowitz B E R K O W I T Z. That's Post Office Box two eight zero two eighty. And the location, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip is 87567. And I'll repeat, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So thank you. 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. And that's it for the update on the, on the housekeeping today. So... I'm going to pass this talking stick, and it is beautiful turquoise with feathers and fur and beads and that blue ray and the, and the violet flame and all the rays are there and the flames and all of the um, universal laws and ascension 
rays are there, as well as angels and sparkles and all kinds of yummy things. Uh, this is Cheryl's Talking Stick she made just for us today. So greetings, Tara and Rama. I'm passing this talking stick to you. Welcome. Greetings. Thank you, everyone, for being here, and thank you. Thank for, you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. Yes, and thank you for your service. As Cheryl says, we're all in service here. Thank you, everyone. Yes, and we send good vibrations and well-being to all. And... um I'm just going to give this one a real quick wingding and say, talk about problems, boy. This is just something Patty sent us, and the title of this is World's Largest Cricket Production Facility is Officially Complete. And the subtitle of this says, The World's Largest Cricket Production Facility is Officially Complete. Aspire Food Groups, new plant in London, Ontario, is ready to produce 9,000 metric tons of crickets annually for human and pet consumption. Pardon me? I have had in India chocolate-covered crickets. Yeah, and it's not okay because here's the, here's here's the score. Bugs, all bugs, including crickets, contain something called chitin, C-H-I-T-I-N. Mammals, as like humans are, and other mammals, cannot process chitin. Their health will suffer badly. So this is not a thing. This is not okay. And... It's ready to do this. Uh, time to arrest a few folks. Yesterday, what a trip. Okay, so, Rama, what's the, you didn't give me my year report, so you got to tell it to everybody. Pass the talking stick to you. I uh, talked to Natasha today by text. And she went to Mikhail Gorbachev's funeral, and there were hundreds and hundreds of people there out in the streets. And it was um, a very emotional kind of intense scene because the people in the streets, you know, she talked to many of them, and they were saying for the first time, in my life, I experienced freedom uh, when Gorbachev was here and the Soviet Union fell. Yet at the same time, there's different groups that are aligned with different uh, parts of that story, and it is about the obfuscation of the truth about the Tsar and Rasputin and the Romanovs and that whole story. And I just got to say that 
Putin didn't show up or Putin's lookalike didn't show up, the message that was given, he is too busy to attend the funeral. And I can just say that um, in the time that I was watching what was unfolding with Mikhail Gorbachev in the 80s, and <laughs> that character called Ronnie Ray Guns, and how the deep state was playing with this idea, you know, of Star Wars and the satellites, and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev got a visit from Captain Astar, and Captain Astar said, dismantle the nukes or I will do it for you. And he began to do that kind of stuff. And let's say that, um, inshallah, God willing, they take it to the next step. And it is about love and the higher wisdom. And, um, I know that Gorbachev was a student of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, where he was learning the Tibetan Buddhism. And, oh my God, lots of wild stuff that we don't know. I passed this So up. what was the purpose of, what was the point of your update today? Just that, um... The passing of a, a man who, let's say, was in charge of the second largest superpower on the planet. And he decided to do the right thing, like Captain Astar said, dismantle the nukes. It's time to talk about peace. That's mm -hmm. the deal. And here we got this <laughs> empty document folders and mega yada 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 that's what I gotta say on the matter I passed the talking stick I it, mean the possibility of respecting the constitution or not you gotta know what the constitution's really about in order to have that opinion and it's what we uh generations since I was in school have gotten fed the lies about the deep state and the matrix and many folks are needing a real lesson in civics and how this country works according to what Beloved Ascended Master St. Germain set up the new Atlantis. And he talked to Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams, and George Washington, and all the rest of them folks that signed the Constitution and the Declaration. And he said... Who talked to them? St. Germain. Oh, of course. And yes. he said, I'll be back. You know, we're going to do this. This is this time, right now. Even and Jack will be back, too. Uh, Jack will be back. At 105, going on 106 next 
Was it April? And Teddy Kennedy ain't dead either. No, he's not. This is such a gigantic story because it is about the Matrix and mother's wayward children that they don't talk about except an ancient alien, so to speak. <laughs> it's that bad. Yeah. Okay, so let's just dig in, huh, Rama? Oh, my God. We're going to play something that Penny just came across. It just came out. Place the Violet Fire. Uh, this is with Reiner Fulmick, Michael Strinwood, and Professor Michael Chodowski. The title is The Corona Crisis and the Criminalization of Justice. And it says all global research... Oh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, right over there. Uh, nope, we're just going to have to play it. That's... And this is an hour. One hour, right, Rama? Mm-hmm. So let's do it. Here we go. This is something to listen to. Today we have two very outstanding guests at the Global Research uh, TV program, uh, which uh, focuses on the legal issues underlying the COVID crisis. Uh, Rainer Filmich, a distinguished lawyer, has joined us from Berlin, and uh, we have also with us Michael, uh, who is uh, now uh, uh, based, Michael Swinwood, who is, who is from Ottawa, but he's joining us from Peru. <laughs> and, uh, and he has been involved. He's, he's perhaps the only lawyer that has, together with Rocco Galati, who has confronted the Canadian government on legal grounds, focusing on issues of criminalization of the state ultimately and 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 of course genocide and uh among the legal profess uh within the legal profession there are very few people and that's also true for the medical doctors and for the economists who have a vision of the broader picture uh this is not a public health crisis it is a crisis which triggers a public health crisis, but it is a crisis which is marked by the criminalization of the state, of the global economy, in as much as the elites are involved in criminal actions, and it's also criminalization of the legal system. And then the question is, how do we proceed? And, 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 and there are answers to that, but it's, we're not, we're in a very complex environment. So I, I'll start by perhaps, uh, Rainer, uh, Rainer uh, coordinates a, a committee of investigation on the coronavirus 
with numerous scientists and scholars. Uh, and um, how do you view this this question? How what? How should we proceed? Uh, we have just recently the case of um, of the monkeypox uh, public health emergency for international concern, which was adopted unilaterally by the Director General of the WHO, Tedros. He did not have the support of his emergency committee, and it, it has become something which has been accepted. It's a, an illegal act. It's more than an illegal act. How, how would you view that? And how, what actions could we take? I mean, what actions could we take against Tedros? Well, could we you know, open from the WHO? Uh, remove the WHO. Take down the WHO, um, ultimately. This is, I think, what it takes. Um, but, you know, just before we went live, we were talking about, or I was um, uh, explaining what uh, the most important task of a lawyer is. It's to come, it's to get to the core of, of, the, of the facts, of the real, actual facts. And this is why we started this investigative Berlin Corona Investigative Committee in July of 2020, because we didn't feel like our politicians, who, as we now know, are not our politicians, but theirs, we didn't feel that our politicians would give us any answers, and neither do the uh, mainstream media, because they're all owned, literally owned, by the same people, both the politicians and the mainstream media. I'm saying owned because, in the meantime, we found out that many of these politicians, many of the people who are acting as puppets, and whose strings those who are responsible are pulling, many of these people are receiving lots of money. Another part of the picture which is uh, which deserves closer inspection is, of course, that there's bribery involved and there's all kinds of very, very dark secrets involved. But to, uh, uh, to sum things up, first the facts, and then what do we do about it? Um, what we found out after uh, having interviewed about 400 experts from all over the world, a little more than 400, including you, Michelle, including uh, Michael, uh, what we found, and Dr. Mike Yeaton, former vice president of Pfizer, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz, who's also an economist, uh, she was a, uh, an assistant uh, secretary of housing and urban development in the United States, but she's also a, um, a investment banker. And uh, many doctors, many lawyers, many economists, many scientists, um, the, the three questions that we wanted answers to is, one, how dangerous is the virus really? And we never doubted that there's a virus out there. Yes, there is a virus out there. But I have come to the conclusion that it's probably just the flu virus on whose content, the corona, they focused. Um, so it is, as it turns out, the virus is no more dangerous than the common flu because this is what the data tells us. Before the, the start of the so-called vaccinations, there was no excess mortality anywhere, despite the scary pictures that the mainstream media showed us and that the uh, politicians focused on from Bergamo, Bergamo in Italy or uh, um, uh, New York in the United States. These were either staged pictures or result, the deaths were a result of uh, medical malpractice or of uh, panic mongering, sending people into the hospitals who ordinarily would have stayed at home and waited until the flu was over four or five days or so. 
So, but I'm, I'm not going to go into the details of this. That was question number one. Turns out it's no more dangerous than the common flu. The infection fatality rate is somewhere between 0.14, maybe 0.2%. 0.14 is what the WHO says. And uh, 0.2%, 0.15 or 0.2% is what one of the most uh, quoted scientists in the world uh, Professor John Ioannidis of Stanford University says. So that's number one. The big question that arises from this is why all these measures? If there's, if there's nothing to worry about because the flu has been around for centuries, thousands of years. Question number two was how reliable is the PCR test? It turns out <clears throat> PCR test itself, which was invented by a brilliant scientist by the name of Kerry Mollis, who won the Nobel Prize for it in 1992, I believe, is a great tool for scientific purposes. However, it cannot, it cannot be used for diagnostic purposes, and that's what they did. It cannot be used for diagnostic purposes uh, for very simple reasons. Some, I, some, some are really complicated, but the two most important um, reasons that I understand and most of uh, our viewers will understand, it cannot distinguish between dead and live matter. So if you test positive, it may very well be that the test finds the remnants or the fragments of your body's immune system's fight against the common cold or, uh, or the flu uh, four or five months ago. It's there, but it's not contagious anymore because it's dead. Uh, the second reason is that uh, you need a whole virus to enter the cells and start to replicate in order to be infected and then be contagious for others. The test does not find a whole virus because whatever is taken from the swab, the nose, the, the throat, um, and then put into the machine is destroyed. It's mushed. It's squashed before it goes into the machine. And then it's then it's being magnified. They call it cycles of amplifications, 2, 4, 6, I mean, 2, 4, 8, um, 16, 32, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where the conspiracy uh, conspiracy theory becomes um, the real thing because they misuse the test in order to create the cases by way of blowing up the cycles of amplification. In the meantime, all of the scientists agree, and they always have agreed, that at 24 cycles of amplification, uh, the whole thing becomes totally unreliable. Beyond that, it becomes totally unreliable because it sees nothing and everything. And uh, and the Berlin, uh, I'm sorry, the Frankfurt Public Health Agency explicitly disregards anything that's tested beyond 24 cycles of amplification. Um, Dr. Mike Eden and several uh, professors, including uh, Ulrike Kemmerer from Würzburg University, but many, many others, they all explain to us that at 35 cycles of amplification, you end up with at least 90 to 97 percent false positives. The Drosten test, it was invented by a German fake pol- uh, a professor and fake doctor. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a hoax. Um, the Drosten test, which was used by the World Health Organization because it was recommended to the entire world and became the blueprint for everything. It was set at 45 cycles of amplifications. Uh, amplification. So what do you expect? That's how you generate cases that don't exist in reality. Question number three was then, uh, how much damage do the measures do? Uh, the mass mandates, the uh, social distancing, etc. And of course, the so-called vaccinations. Just a question that, you know, I think we're absolutely clear that the, this PCR test is totally invalid. Yeah. 
uh, and we can prove it. Yeah. But the thing is that when the when the when the pandemic was launched, the number of so-called PCR tests yeah. were ridiculously low. Yeah. Now I recall it was uh, 1,076 on the 20th of February when uh, Tedros made a statement: the doors are cl- the windows are closing. We're in a very serious situation. Of course, it was all fabricated, but there yeah. were 1,076 cases outside of China. Uh, for, for a population of 6.4 billion people worldwide. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let's say, um, uh, assuming that the PCR tests were, were, which it, it, it is not, were valid, they did not have a case in, in establishing, um, uh, you know, a, a pandemic. And then, mm-hmm. the, as you mentioned, the mandate of the pandemic, pandemic was essentially to close down the, the global economy. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm an economist. I'm looking at it in those terms. But now let's let, let's look at the, the legal. Now, yeah. um, Michael, you you have confronted uh, Her Majesty's no on behalf of Her Majesty's government, <laughs> but you have confronted um, Canadian uh, the Canadian government. Both that I, I, if I understand it, was both in Ontario and the federal government, and these issues were raised. You raised those issues in in the in the court of law. Good. Yeah. Sure. Um, first, just let me correct you. Uh, I wasn't on behalf of Her Majesty. No, okay. it was against, against Her Majesty. Against Her Majesty, so let's be Yeah, it was against Her Majesty, yeah. Yeah, that, that's right, because the criminal lawsuits in, in Canada have to be on behalf of Her Majesty. That, that, that's correct. So this, this was a civil action. This was a civil action that we took, and we put in the Pope, we put in the Queen, we put in the Premier of Ontario, we put in the Prime Minister of Canada, and the WHO... Um, Gavi, the Bill and Gates uh, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, etc. All, all the main players who are very obviously the culprits behind the agenda. Um, the insight that I have in relation to the connection and linkage between Rome, uh, London, and Washington comes from the work I've been doing for the last 25 years with Indigenous peoples and Indigenous peoples throughout North and South America. Uh, they've all suffered the same fate. And when, when you ask yourself the question, how did this happen to these people, that is the indigenous people in North and South America, the answer you come up with is genocide. And genocide has been perpetrated on the indigenous people since 1493 and even before that, because really what we had before that was the Inquisition, uh, wherein what we were trying to do was uh, form a world of one religion, uh, form a world of uh, one direction, and it emanated from Rome. And so when we when we hear the expression, all roads lead to Rome, it's absolutely correct. All roads do lead to Rome. And <clears throat> what emanates from Rome uh, is Jesuitry, and this is 1544 when Ignatius of Loyola puts together the Society of Jesus, uh, which a, a book written by John Eric Phelps in uh, 2002, I believe, uh, the book he wrote is called The Vatican Assassins, The Army of the Pope. 
And it describes the Jesuits' activity from 1544 until to, you know, yesterday kind of thing. It brings everyone up to date on the, um, the, the messing around that the Jesuits did in all the countries of Europe. Uh, and then, of course, 1493 is when they came with the Spanish uh, in South America, and they read the Arrequiriamiento uh, to the Taino natives, which basically said, I'm here on behalf of the Lord of the Universe, which is the Pope, and the Lord of the Land, which is the King of Spain. And uh, we're here to tell you there'll be someone coming through with a book, and they're going to give you teachings in that book. Should you accept the crown and the cross, uh, we will grant you privileges and exemptions. Uh, should you tarry in that decision, we'll kill you and all your family. So that was their announcement, if you will, of their intention. And notice that they actually described the way law is. They said, if you accept the crown and the cross, we will grant you privileges and exemptions. That's law everywhere. Privileges. Oh, yeah, you can do this because it says in the law you can do this. Uh, no, you can't do this, but we'll give you an exemption because you've been a nice person. Well, this is the beginning of the social credit system that's coming our way. It's going to be privileges and exemptions. That's exactly the way the thing is going to work. Um, and just, just, a, just a question there, because I, I, I recalled in your, in your, your interview in Francois, you, you raised the issue of criminalization. And, and in fact, if we're referring to the Vatican, the Vatican is supportive of this agenda. They've, they've made the statement. And the United Nations is also supportive. So we're, we're dealing with, with the, the criminalization of, of I, I hate to use the term of the Catholic, of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Uh, mind you, um, Pope Francis has, was also, um, I don't want to enter into that discussion. He was linked up to the dirty war in Argentina. But the, the thing is, you have the Vatican supporting it, and then you've got the, the, you've got the United Nations supporting it, and the WHO, of course, is an entity within the UN. So we're, we're, we are, we are, uh, we have com- a complicit position on the part of institutions which normally we should be supporting, the UN and the WHO. I, I mean, several of us have worked for the WHO. I used to work for the WHO. But how, how do you do that? Because the, the how do we formulate a legal action, you know, in a contemporary context with this digital environment and 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 uh, entities uh, which normally should constitute the resistance to um, human, let's say, human rights violation, genocide, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The you know the the UN. Uh, uh, the UN doctrine, so to speak, are complicit in a private public undertaking which is dominated by powerful financial groups. And as you also mentioned in your interview, is that these are the same, you, you made reference to, to World War II, World War I, if I recall, but in fact, these are the same groups, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, uh, you know, the investment portfolios of Federal Reserve and so on, which and which also control these institutions 
uh, namely UN, WHO, and so on. So how 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 do we formulate a legal procedure when when we do we go after the UN or <laughs> how do, you know how do you go how do you put together a legal procedure when the game is fixed the game is fixed so if I want to sum up the political science uh, let's say trends in the world I'll use three board games the game of chess the game of risk, and the game of monopoly. So those three games signify exactly what goes on in the world. You're not the banker in the game of monopoly. You're not the uh, superpower in the game of risk, and you are not the king and queen in the game of chess. But the kings and queens in the game of chess and world politics have been up to no good since forever, since forever, And this is what people don't seem to understand, nor will they accept, that the institutions that you spoke of were designed and made to bring about what we're in right now. Now, When the United Nations was founded, uh, UNESCO, United Nations Education, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, Mr. Huxley wrote the document that was the founding document, and within that founding document he said, Eugenics, philosophically and psychologically, is not well accepted, but it's about time that it is. And then goes on to describe eugenics as being something that should be accepted by humanity. Uh, and that's 1946, the year before I was born. Sorry, I gave myself away. But the year before I was born, when the United Nations apparently was put together to ensure uh, humanity that the Second World War and the horrors of Hitler and Auschwitz and all of these horrors would never be repeated. Nay, nay, nay. It was a mask. They all put on the mask. And the mask was designed to bring about where we are at right now. Reiner, Reiner just shared a video with us last week, which is this guy Aaron Russo, who is interviewed and talks about his relationship with uh, Nick Rockefeller. And he describes how Nick Rockefeller told him nine months before 9-11, nine months before 9-11, he described that there was going to be a big event. He said, then there would be a war on terror, and then we're going to go into Iraq, and then, and then, and then. So this agenda has been on humanity for a very long time. And during that time, let's just say the whole course of my life, During that time, we have brought about the corruption of the institutions that humanity thinks that they can turn to, and that's the big ruse. I think I said his name was Russo, but anyway, I'll take it away from him. It wasn't him. But that's the big ruse. The big ruse is is that all of these organizations have been set up in such a way as to make you think that they're there for you, but they're really there against you. Now, what happened to the lawsuit that I put forward? What happened to the lawsuit was it was deemed by a superior court judge to be frivolous and vexatious, frivolous and vexatious. So what we do is we take something as serious as what we're talking about and we turn it on its head and say, oh, no, this is not even worthy of consideration. How could anyone think that our institutions are not there to serve people? How dare this person suggest for a moment that there's a worldwide conspiracy on eugenics, 
on genocide and all of these things. Right now, what we have, unfortunately, is 80% of the world is dead asleep, dead asleep. They are not awakened. They're not awakened to the ideas of what's being put on them, what's being put on humanity. I mean, I talk to fairly intelligent human beings and they look like, they look at me like I have seven heads. <laughs> they look at me and think, oh my God, this guy must be from Mars or something. Imagine the things that he's saying about the United Nations, about the WHO, about the WEF, about, 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 about. And honest to goodness, uh, the lies and manipulations are overwhelming. But I mean, now, um, now you raise the issue of eugenics, which I think is fundamental in as much as it, it is already in the public domain that they have made statements to that effect. I mean, we, we recall the, the statement of, uh, of uh, Bill Gates in his TED presentation in 210, where he talks about reducing world population by 10 to 15 percent. Well, we're talking about in today's data, it's more than a million people. Uh, I'm sorry, more than a billion people. Okay, it's, uh, it's where we have a population going on to eight billion worldwide. Now, how how do you view that? Um, b- because from a legal standpoint, what would be the procedure now under the under these circumstances where the governments are corrupt, purchased, owned by the financial establishment, uh, the the lawyers are scared stiff. To, to enter into anything else but labor, maybe labor relations and labor rights and so on. Uh, how do you go after, how do you formulate a legal procedure or, or are there other avenues? Um, maybe Reiner. Well, I will, I will build on what, uh, Michael just said. Uh, his lawsuit, which was well written at the core of it was the PCR test. They should have looked into it. They should have, had pre-trial discovery, they should have taken a look at the evidence in order to find out is it true or not. And, uh, but they, they, they simply threw them out by claiming it was frivolous and vexatious. That is ridiculous. It's, uh, and he wrote an, a very nice, a, a very well-written, uh, appellate brief. And finally, he at least got a hearing, but same thing happened over again. So that tells you precisely where we're at in most parts of the world, but not in all parts of the world. It is even worse in this country, in Germany, and in most parts of Western Europe. Um, it is different and better in, uh, um, of all places, India. Because despite the fact that the uh, government, the Indian government is totally completely in line with a, a world economic forum, its judiciary seems to be independent. There's actually three, three criminal cases pending against Bill Gates. And if worse comes to worse, and it really looks like it, he's going to get the death sentence. So that's where the judiciary still functions. And in some parts of the United States, not everywhere, but in some parts of the United States, the judiciary also still functions. For example, and the big difference between uh, Western European courts of law and the U.S. courts of law is in Western Europe, we've had three three very well-written decisions that explicitly state that the PCR test cannot be the basis for any measures not be the basis for any measures. 
The governments didn't care. The first one came from Portugal, the second one from Austria, the third one from Germany, of all places. And uh, the government not just didn't care in Germany, but they went after the judge. They they did a search and seizure thing. Uh, they uh, searched his car, his office, and his home, seized his computer and cell phone, did the same to the three experts that he called upon. Um, so that was done to send a message, not to him, because he knew what, what he was getting himself into, but to the rest of the judiciary. It was, a, it was a message to intimidate everyone, and that worked really well. Different in the United States, because a couple of months ago, on April the 18th, a federal judge in Florida announced that the government does not have the power to issue mask mandates on planes and trains and, and train stations and airports. And immediately, the government pulled back and said, okay, well, we're not going to do it. And this, on the very same day, people, you could see these video clips of people celebrating on the planes, even the pilots coming into the cabin and uh, almost dancing with the passengers. So that is what reality is like. The people do not want this, especially not in the United States. But the mainstream media, which are owned and operated by the same people who are pulling their strings and the politicians' strings, they try to make us believe as though we're the only ones who are opposed. No, we're not. Um, but to make a long story short, uh, it, in my view, right now, the only place where it makes sense to file a either criminal complaint or a civil case uh, against the people who are behind this, those who we can see, the Bill Gateses, the Fauci's, the Drustens, and all the others, BlackRock, Pfizer. The only place where it really makes sense is the United States. But you do have to do two. You do have to do two things. You have to find the right venue where you, where there's a judge or a court that will give you a fair hearing because that's what it takes. You have to get a fair hearing in order to be able to show the evidence to the court of law. And the other thing is you have to find the right attorney. It's not just someone who has all the experience and who knows all the law, but it's someone who needs to be on our side because you can't trust anyone else. Well, that, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've contacted several lawyers um, and, uh, and men, mo many of them don't want to get involved in that kind of thing. But ju just just to get back to something which I think is very crucial um, which um, which has to do with the fact that it's corroborated now that this vaccine is leading to an upward trend of mortality and morbidity, and we have all the data. Now, in Canada, uh, Health Canada doesn't publish that data. It's published in the UK, it's published in the European Union and the United States and other countries. Now, I'm, I'm just, my question is, uh, we we should initiate, and, and we, we might do that in Canada, a, a campaign which which targets the health authorities to immediately uh, cancel the vaccine. It's a it's a it's a deadly substance. It's not a vaccine. It's a deadly substance, and normally. Uh, I know that Health Canada has a mandate to to withdraw, let's say, uh, things which are deadly, but they don't have any mandate to withdraw the a vaccine. But I think that avenue there, let's say, uh, um, it could be uh, it could be a civilian class action lawsuit um, to cancel the vaccine. 
Yes, you're crazy worldwide. But you're still stuck with the same problem. You have to find the right venue and the right uh, lawyers to support such a case. Much more important than that, this is important. I know that. And I and Michael being lawyers, we're going to continue on that route. And he's done his share. Uh, that's why he's in, in, in another place right now, because he doesn't believe that the judiciary in Ontario or in Canada as a whole is still functioning. Well, there's still signs of life even in European courts of law, because what you just said, that this is a deadly substance, it's an experimental substance, is what a, a judge in, in, in Italy wrote in her opinion a couple of weeks ago. Um, um, it's, it's a case of a psychologist who was, um, who, who they tried to um, force to take the so-called vaccine or else she wouldn't be able to continue with her work. And this judge took a close look at everything, and she wrote it down in her opinion. This is not a vaccine. It is not necessary because there's not a pandemic, PCR test. This is not effective at all, and this is dangerous. And she even went so, and she explained that this is an experimental substance. She wrote it in her opinion. This is precisely what a um, district attorney in uh, Sicily also wrote in his letter to in support of something. I forget what it was. But she even went as far as to draw the analogy between what we're experiencing right now and what happened in the Third Reich 80 years ago. This, this, however, is an exception, and that's why I think, and I think Michael agrees with that, it is very, very important for us to get the truth out, to get the facts out, and get the people to understand what's going on. Ultimately, it's... But we're talking about, if we compare it to the Third Reich, we're talking about the genocide at the level of 8 billion people, and and how many doses of, of... of vaccines have already been administered. Uh, of course, it's a multi-trillion-dollar operation for Pfizer, uh, but I, I think that is the avenue uh, that that we should be taking. Uh, and I, I, I think that there are two cases which are of interest. Is that in in a to my knowledge now Japan, uh, the Japanese government has a program to compensate the victims. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm unclear as to how this is being carried out. Uh, Thailand has had one as well. Uh, that was several months back. I think it was last year. Uh, but the notion of compensation to the victims, or they're already a precedent. I was surprised that the Japanese government would actually do that, but I, uh, but it, 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 it it's come out. And the, and the thing is that in Japan, the, well, uh, Michael, you raised the issue of me- uh, impacts on mental health. The impacts on mental health in in in, in Japan are just, uh, I mean, they're b- beyond description. Children committing suicide. Uh, I I've tried to document that in in my in my book, which is should be coming out next week. Uh, but uh, the the those are. I mean, also the whole issue of the rights of the crimes against children and adolescents based on individual cases, but more broadly based on the data that we have. And there we, we should, 
we should initiate compensation. Because that maybe that's a slightly different way of formulating it. They, they should cancel it, but they should compensate the victims. And that should be the basis of a lawsuit uh, here in Canada. I, I, I'm sure that this is something that you've already contemplated. Uh, uh, well, we're, we're already talking. Like, I'll give you an example so that you can really, really understand this. Um, I'm acting for a doctor, and she had her license removed for writing exemption letters. Now, that's the full uh, import of her bad behavior, writing letters of exemption from the uh, gene therapy experiment. So she loses her license. Um, we go to a hearing. That not all, all of, for instance, we put in VAERS, we put in reporting on the harms of the vaccine, et cetera, et cetera, completely ignored. Not one word was said about it in their ruling. And in the ruling, of course, it was, oh, no, no, no. These are guidelines that are sent by public health. There's an emergency. There's a problem. Uh, no, she loses her license. Was, now, that, we're in a, was uh, that physicians, uh, uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario? Or? Yes, CPSO. One of the most corrupt organizations now going. The one so, in Quebec so, is even more corrupt. <laughs> well, and, and here what we're doing is I'm talking to several lawyers about the concept of doing a class action on behalf of doctors who've had their license removed. But the uh, optimism that we might have in a case like that where we would say, oh, man, look at all the facts. Look at the evidence that I have. This is a slam dunk. This is going to be so easy. It's going to be you knock on the door. The door opens. They say, what do you want? They say, well, I want to show you a click. Door is locked. Door is shut. And why is that? And, and this is the this is the level at which this is at. The corruption is so deep, it runs so deep that it permeates its way all the way through everything. Let me let me uh, identify to you uh, the model and the symbol for the Commonwealth of Virginia. You're not in Kansas now. You're in Virginia, <laughs> and the, it's not a state. It's a Commonwealth. Get that? The Commonwealth of Virginia. And if you went and you Googled the Commonwealth of Virginia right now, you would see on the web page in the top right-hand corner the symbol and motto of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And it's a woman in a Roman toga standing with her heart, a hand on her heart, and she's standing on top of a woman who's looking like she's dead, but she's got her foot on her. And the motto is Sic Semper Tyrannis, thus always tyranny. That's what we're faced with. We're faced with the symbol of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Oh, by the way, is Virginia where the CIA is headquartered? Oh, I guess. Uh, along with the Commonwealth of Kentucky, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. These are four burgers or boroughs of Her Majesty the Queen. She keeps her horses in Kentucky, uh, etc. So we have this kind of relationship and we're talking about, okay, I want to go knock on the door of Her Majesty's court. Her Majesty's court. So right away, I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble right away because I'm going to Her Majesty's court. In many provinces in Canada, it's now still called the court of Queen's oh, Bench. No, correct. Uh, just, nope. just another 
another question because you you've raised this already. Pfizer has a criminal record, uh, and in fact, they were put on probation. If I understand correctly, in 2009 they had a probation that they had to conform and be good guys, so to speak, uh, under the surveillance of uh, of a. Um, I think it was under sur- surveillance of the national health authorities. But um, isn't that an element that we could? Uh, Use. Now, the other aspect is the criminalization of the media. Because those are, well, they're not entities, they're private and public entities, but they are ultimately to disable the media. The media lies. If we, if we can control, have some control of the information which is spread out to people across the land, but we don't, because we're, we're censored by the media and we're smeared by the media. The CBC has, has been attacking me for the, well, I would say for the last five or six years. Um, and uh, despite the fact that I worked for them uh, in, in another life, but I worked for them extensively when I was professor at the university. And now they are this, they're coming up, smearing us. And then, of course, you have you have the search engines. What kind of action? Because that is the, that's also a smoking gun because with, without the media, they well, are Michelle, Michelle, here's the thing. And this is, we meet many, both Michael and I, we meet many, many people who argue just the way that you do. It's all out there. It's the evidence is there and they even have a criminal record. So this should be, as Michael said, a slam dunk case. No, it's not. Because the system has been infiltrated for at least the third of the past 30 years through this, uh, through this, um, young global leaders program of the uh, World Economic Forum, which has been in existence since 1992, which is a result of this, of a CIA funded program. The World Economic Forum was founded by Klaus Schwab, but he did it because he first went to this CIA-funded program at Harvard University where he met um, Henry Kissinger, introduced him to this program, and that's how the United States changed their foreign policy towards Europe by uh, from um, uh, uh, nuclear deterrence, which they kept up, but then they changed it to, we have to influence Europe. European politicians, we're going to breed, we're going to have our own production facility to produce um, politicians, which the people will then vote for. But the same thing happened. It, it goes beyond that. The same thing happened with uh, medicine, the judiciary, um, uh, the media. Everything has been infiltrated. The head of the German uh, constitutional court, which is the highest court, he's one of them. And he is in the process of destroying democracy. Um, and this is exactly what we're facing. That is why Michael and I, for example, did on our um, Corona Investigative Committee with a group of other very, um, very uh, talented, very experienced international lawyers, we conducted this model grand jury proceeding just to show the people that it can be done and how it can be done. And now we're debating whether that gigantic um, uh, class action complaint can be filed within the system in the United States or outs or should be filed outside of the system. If you do it outside of the system, you need credibility, you need legitimacy, you need the people to support us. 
I think we can do that. But that is that is why your question, hey, it's all out there. And many people ask us this because they think, hey, you as a lawyer, you, this is this is so easy. Even I could do it without being a lawyer, with all that evidence yeah. there. Well, yes, if the system was functioning, but it's not. But I, I mean, to get back to the issue of the media, if the media is, how can we can we confront the media in, on legal grounds? Here's the, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing, Michelle. It, it doesn't matter what sector you're going to talk about, uh, big pharma, media, government, politics. You're going to find the same answer, corruption, corruption. Wow. And then and then the other thing you're going to find, if you wanted to take on any one of them, you better have a big pot of money because the big pot of money they have is beyond any comprehension. What was Pfizer's? Third quarter profit, 32 billion. I don't know. It's like, it's outrageous. And this is all blood money. This is all blood money. This is like saying, okay, I'm going to go after you. I'm going to kill you. And the money I make doing it to you, I'm going to accumulate and I'm going to have as a war fund. And I defy you to come up with some kind of a war fund that's going to take us on because we've got our finger in every pie, media, politics, law, education, health, everything. Everything's been compromised. And how has it been it's been compromised not overnight. Not overnight. So the Second World War was brought on by the same people that are bringing this on. The First World War was brought on by the same people who are bringing this on. It's all family related. It's all elitists. And it's all these people who have been talking this way forever. I mean, go watch the film with Aaron Russo. And listen to what he has to say about a, an elitist speaking to him directly and saying to him, I don't know why, why do you throw your lot in with all these people who are useless eaters? They're useless eaters. That's how they're viewed. That's how we're viewed. So therefore, you're talking about saying, I want to go and ask for redress from the executioner. Not going to happen. So we will what continue. we have. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ryan. Go ahead, Ryan. Go I was ahead. just going to say, we will, we're not giving up, Michelle. That's not it. We okay. just want the people to understand what we're facing because once they understand, we're going to have their support even if it takes this case outside of the system. Yeah. <clears throat> but essentially what we really need is, is a mass movement which, and that mass movement has to be informed. And unfortunately it, it, the independent media, uh, we publish hundreds of reports by scientists, medical doctors, uh, social scientists, but they don't reach out to the public. And consequently, the, the media is really, as you say, the media is also funded by Pfizer and is funded by the governments. So it, it's, it's there and they, they are protected, so to speak. But we have to have we have to have the means of transmitting the information <clears throat> far and wide, and not simply over the over the internet. We have to have meet. We have to have. We have to return to to actual gatherings and meetings. Uh, but it's no use in having a protest movement because we're not protesting. We're 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 questioning the legitimacy of the decision makers. Okay, and yeah. and protest movements are usually funded by by Rockefeller et al. and the Ford Foundation and so on. I know that because the World Social Forum was funded by the Ford Foundation right from the beginning. 
and then the, and the, and so are the environmentalists and and the and the, and the, of course the, also the also the 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 the, the movements against racism and so on. But that we have to break that, and and we have to integrate. It's not to say that we we should incorporate those those movements, but we have to we have to dissolve the heads of of those movements. And the same thing goes for the labor movements. The AFS IO is corrupt. We have to expose the fact the fact that these people have always played and paid both sides. Both sides. No, that's true. Well, there, I, I, there's, I, there's a there's a Canadian by the he's dead now, but uh, by the name of Maurice Strong. His day job was working for the uh, oil industry. His night job was setting up all these the World Wildlife Fund and all these. I, I know I, I, I know Morris. I met Morris Strong because because he was he came to the university and so on. And he, he, of course, it goes back to Rio uh, to, to 1992. Yeah. But uh, again, at the time, nobody realized the, what was going on, you know. Uh, but you're absolutely right. 1992 was was the, the Rio conference, and then it, it, it then it led to a narrative and agenda and so on and so forth. But I, I think really uh, what we are, I mean, if we want to sort of build a mass movement, Uh, both nationally and internationally, we have to have, we have to, first of all, we have to dispel the fear campaign because the fear campaign is what is building acceptance. And there's all, all these psychological dimensions uh, of how they, and they've looked into that. Uh, I, I, I have a chapter which I, which, which focuses on peer reviewed reports by psychologists, which was commissioned Right from the beginning of the pandemic, as to how you uh, how you categorize protesters, and and you give them a uh, you give them a, a tag, and they they have it all, you know, and then they'll refer to this uh, uh, peer reviewed report that protests are pathological, uh, you know, and that they are, they are mentally insane and crazy. I guess we've entered that category. But the thing is, how does one formulate a mass movement? And, and the, the, the first concept is that people have to be informed worldwide and people have to be assured that they're not, their lives are not threatened. Okay. So it's a fear campaign. So there's a fear campaign and, and then they must understand that if you close down economic activity, they lose their jobs and they're driven into poverty. Okay? And it's not only the there are two angles to this um, eugenics project, two instruments, and they're related. One is is the are the lockdowns, the confinement of the labor force, and the freezing of the of the you know of of, uh, of economic activity, which inevitably leads to mass unemployment, famine, and and in cases like Peru. Uh, you eliminate the, the, the informal urban sector. Um, that that is being experienced in a number of countries. And, uh, and the second acts, uh, the, the the second concept is is the vaccine, and they're interrelated. And both of them 
ultimately result in in uh, mortality and morbidity. Um, here's here's one of our here's one of our big problems. There's not enough we in we. That's the problem. That is the problem. There is not enough we in we. So we, for instance, like just take this evening. You could go out to a restaurant, sit down with what appear to be perfectly intelligent people, and they really don't keep up with things, and then you start saying what you know. You won't make it to the second course. They'll be up and gone. Because they don't want to hear what the hell you're talking about. They don't want to hear what you're talking about. They don't want to hear what I'm talking about. This is a reality. But but that has a lot to do with the fact that they're being brainwashed by the mainstream media 24-7. You know, you go onto radio and they they, persistently they bring in cases. And and I think also we have to understand that the victims are speaking up, okay? And, and, and the, these testimonies coming from the victims of the vaccine or the victims from famine, those testimonies are, are, are very important. Because Absolutely. Absolutely very important. But by the time the rest of the people catch up, you'll be uh, dusting off nuclear dust. That's the unfortunate part. Because where we're headed, where we're headed is not a very nice place. And here we are, we're, we're saying... It's like the, it's like that uh, Jamaican reggae song, you know, draw your brakes, draw your brakes, draw your brakes, brother. But trying to get the train to slow down, trying to get the train to stop is extremely difficult by virtue of the energy and focus that you're describing. You're describing an energy and focus that is designed to fill people with fear. And it's working beautifully from their perspective. So imagine now Reiner and Michelle and Michael and Ariel run the world. We run the world. And so what we can do is we can impact the media. We can impact the courts. We can impact the politics. We can impact everything because we run the world. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. So there are people running the world on an agenda. And here we are standing here going, oh my God, I can see the agenda. Look at that. There's A. Oh, and then that B and C is going to come along. And by the way, people, look at this agenda. And they're all going, what's wrong with you? The rest of us don't think that. And the reason we don't is because the word means we have been brainwashed. 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 This doesn't mean, however, that this is totally hopeless. It's not. Because more and more of us are waking up. Uh, here in Germany, it's maybe 10 to 20 percent of the population that, that is beginning to understand what's going on. It's, it's the, the movement, the resistance is growing by the day. In the United States, the polarization is much more in our favor. It's between 40 and 50 percent of the people who do not want to go along with this anymore. And they have guns. And that makes a big difference. The Canadians don't have guns. The Germans don't have guns. The Australians don't have guns, but they do. That's why I think that this war, this war will be decided in our favor, of course, in the United States. I mean, this is speculation, of course, but if you look at the totality of the evidence, if you look at how the government does not dare defy or ignore 
uh, federal judge's uh, decision, how the people do not want to play along, most of them, and how they are even armed. That makes a big, big difference. I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, in, in a sense, it comes from the heart of the beast, uh, uh, so exactly. to speak. Uh, there's, there's an element of dialogue and analysis in, in, in the United States which I think is very important. Um, but I, I, I think um, just to, to put it in perspective, what we are living is very similar to the Spanish Inquisition. But it's the American Inquisition, it's the globalist Inquisition. Yes. And uh, the Spanish Inquisition, in fact, the French Inquisition was much worse, but the Spanish Inquisition lasted for 300 years. But the Inquisition, Inquisitorial doctrine that they have is extremely fragile. The narrative is extremely exactly. fragile. Yes. And that narrative, that consensus has to be broken. It may be from one day to the next it's broken. Exactly. Yeah. But it is only broken if, if, if we have an alternative consensus which is based on facts and analysis and, and, and life experience of, of millions, of billions of people worldwide, and that they come to realize uh, that, that this inquisitorial agenda is impoverishing and destroying their lives. Um, so uh, I think... Michelle, Michelle, the most important thing that people have to understand is that if they don't open their eyes to the true facts, it's going to be... This is a question of life and death. It's nothing to do with uh, proportionality or unconstitutionality. No, they're coming after us. They're trying to kill us. These vaccines are not vaccines. They're designed to kill us. That's what people have to understand, and that is when they're going to rise up. Well, I think that I think that that is understood by large sectors of the population. Because they, uh, even people who have taken the vaccine uh, and who are supportive, they said, well, they have family members. Yeah. That kind of information is, is coming now. And the, the media is in, a, in a, is in a rather ambiguous situation where they have to acknowledge it. Uh, and, and then they try to distort it and trivialize it. But uh, again, I think uh, we are at the, you know, we're at the beginning of, of a, of a, an important dialogue, and uh, I must say, I, I'm we're very privileged to have uh, Rainer from Berlin and, and and Michael from the highlands of of Peru, which is the cradle of civilization, incidentally, uh, and uh, and and uh, again, our, our thanks and appreciation. And we will pick up on this on this debate at, at uh, a further at some some further notice at some further time. So, uh, Rainer, Michael, I leave you with the last words uh, to complete this discussion. Michael, I, I think it's really really important to understand also that there's a spiritual component to all of this. I was just going to say that. Good. Yeah, and and the you know that we we can go on and talk about the facts and the evidence and all of the things and you know you can conclude very rapidly that what you're dealing with are lies, manipulations, and uh, inducements into bigger fear. 
that's essentially how you can summarize what we're really in. But if you, if you understand, uh, from a cosmic perspective, I mean, we do live in a cosmos. It's not just the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. We live in a solar system. We live in planets that are having their own transmutations. And that's what's happening on the Mother Earth at this moment in time. We've really reached a fork in the road. And that fork in the road is to your left is the apocalypse and to the right is the awakening. And the apocalypse is what the elitists seek to promote. Their script, you'll find their script in the book of Revelation. Uh, you'll see exactly what they're following is the book of Revelation. And they're promoting the apocalypse because they can go out on the high sea with their $9,000 million yacht and laugh it up and have some cocktails and say, oh, those useless eaters. Mm-hmm. And that's the path that they're wanting to take us down. But really, humanity is faced with that fork in the road where they have to make a bigger choice. And that bigger choice is about what they do inside. What's going on inside? Because all of this is an inside job. We're, we're being treated to an inside job, but we need to work on our own inside. Because as we change ourselves, then we change the world. And this is what we're faced with. So basically, we have to return to the ways of nature. We have to return to our relationship with the Mother Earth. We've done nothing as humanity but rape it, pillage it, and burn it. And so the whole consciousness that is prevailing in humanity is one of destruction and one that needs to take a course away from destruction into creativity and into a place where we really become who we are, which are divine beings having a physical experience. We don't, um, for instance, the Inca, the Inca say, uh, the commandment to honor thy father and thy mother has nothing to do with your biological father and mother. It has something to do with this father, which is the third eye, and this mother, which is your heart. This is wisdom, and this is love, and it's the example of the divine in every human being. And we do not honor our father and our mother. We do not honor the divinity within. Uh, we honor and, and we cherish materialism. And we think that in materialism, we will find happiness. And this is bogus. It's not going to happen. It will never happen. And so the challenge really for each individual human being is to come to the realization of just what spirituality means to them. And it doesn't have to be identified as a religion. It just has to be identified as a relationship to spirit. And this is where we put more energy in our connection to spirit. We will see results that will counter what it is that we're trying to do by knocking on a door and saying, stop these people. Yeah. And of course, the people who are listening to it are going to say, sorry, I can't stop it. So I just want everyone to know that there's a spiritual aspect to this. And if they dig deep and dig deep deeply enough, then we're going to get change. And that's where it's going to happen. Well, on that note, uh, thanks uh, to Lina Filmich from Berlin and to, to Michael from the upper uh, valleys of Peru. Um, and um, our thanks also to Ariel Noyola in Mexico City, who is producing this video. And our best wishes to our, to our readers and audience. Listen Thank you. carefully to what was recorded today. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-
That's interesting. It's over orally on the thing. Mm-hmm. That was uh, uh, that was an update, everybody. Mm-hmm. What? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. That's a good one. We're going through the transition. Place the violet fire. Place the violet fire. Okay, so. This is uh, what Randy gave us, right? Yeah. Okay, I'll just remind everybody real quick what we're going to play. It says, uh, with one record-smashing night in his exploding hockey career, Boyd Anderson went from the best line in junior hockey to an international playoff team of champions from Zug, Switzerland. After creating a huge sale in Saudi Arabia, Boyd moves from Toronto to Budapest to Dubai and unknowingly finds himself at the top of the food chain. It is in Dubai, 2007, where he meets Thomas, who introduces him to a world of deception and unimaginable power-wielding elite. Hyper-competitive deal-makers and hungry profiteers who trade entire lives just to easily as they swapped, just as easily as they swapped arena tickets and team contracts behind the scenes of business governments and politicians you've heard of. Yet when CNN announced Malaysian Airlines flight MH370, 370 has disappeared, on March morning, on a March morning in 2014, Boyd immediately, immediately burst out, I know who did this. Horrified. He became an investigator using his highly toned instincts and perception, along with his memory. Backed up with facts, he saw all the pieces coming together, realizing that hundreds of lives lost were just collateral damage for a 55,500 ton gold heist. Even worse, using ancient numerology and researching the main players introduced to him from a nearly forgotten contact who had described a plan for just how Bitcoin political turmoil in Europe and the Middle East and even the world's economy would play out, drastically changing the world as we know it in just a few years. After spending three years investigating and researching, Boyd discovered three abandoned Boeing Jumble 747s left on the tarmac at Kuala Lumpur Airport. He finally figured things out, unable to escape the feeling that all the signs were in place for a scandal There's bigger than, that's bigger than Watergate. Now everyone needs to know the truth regarding the origin of Bitcoin, Ethereum, Monero and ETC Classic, the blockchain, Kraken, Brexit, ISIS, interest rate hikes, and the biggest gold heist assassination in the history of the world. So let's begin. This is an hour two, right, Rama? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm? Yeah. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Five hundred and thirty-seven. The number of votes that changed the course of American history. Florida is too close to call. 
the difference between what was and what could have been. So this year, if you're thinking that your vote doesn't count, that it won't matter, well, back then, there were probably at least 537 people who felt the same way. Make your voice heard. Vote. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. So now I'm going to tell you my story. Uh, back in 1972-73, I was playing hockey for the Medicine Hat Tigers in the WHL. That's the top junior league in Western Canada. Um, I played alongside Lanny McDonald and Tom Lysiak. One night, October 7th, 1972, Lanny was actually in the penalty box. I scored five goals in three minutes and seven seconds. Now, this is a record that nobody will ever break. In fact, if you divide five into 187 seconds, you'll get one every one goal every 37.4 seconds. So my hockey career, um, I, I ended up getting drafted by the New York Rangers, and I played a couple of years in the American League. But I got kind of sidetracked with an agent by the name of Richard Sorkin, which I won't get into too much detail. I ended up playing in Europe. I played in five different countries. And then I got into sales when I was around 30 years old. I ended up in 2006 getting into what they call quantum biofeedback medical devices. The device dealt on the principle that everything is energy, everything has a frequency. It was a device where you hooked up your wrists, your ankles, and your head with wires that hooked up to a, a box of frequencies and then into a laptop. The software was very diversified and it would show the bodies turning. And It was a diagnostic and a therapeutic device. It helped thousands of people all over the world. And I was put in charge of sales for the province of Ontario in Canada, 12 million people. I knew from my past sales experience that if I could tap into the ethnic groups, that I could sell a lot of these these biofeedback devices. It was not regulated back in 2006. So first of all, I tapped into the Filipino community, the Chinese, the Russian, the Polish, and I was selling five or six a week. They were selling for $20,000 a piece. And one thing led to another. And one evening, a Lebanese Syrian gentleman came in with his girlfriend. His name was Tarek, and his girlfriend's name was Nancy. And after an hour of presenting the product to them, Tarek said, my brother's got to see this thing. I said, where does your brother live? His name was Jihad, and they lived, he lived in Dubai. He, formerly, there's a large Lebanese Syrian community in Ottawa, so that's where they were all from. But Jihad had, I guess, had enough of Canada, and he moved back to Dubai to live with his uncle. Their last name was Sharif. And they were close friends with the Bin Laden family, which has the largest construction company in the Middle East. So within three months, Jihad in Dubai helped me get a contract with a Saudi sheik that was in charge of all the health and food for Saudi Arabia. He wanted to start a thousand wellness clinics throughout the Middle East and put a device into each location. So I went, I, I moved to Dubai. I sold everything. I had a, a penthouse in Waterloo at the Seagram Barrels Warehouses. And I ended up selling everything and moving to Dubai in 2007. 
I was 53 years old. My book is titled Under the Radar 537-555. So throughout this story, you're going to hear the significance of those numbers, 537 and 555. When I moved to Dubai, I got introduced to Thomas. He was uh, an established middleman that had long been long uh, for a long time been working with the Saudis, and he took a shine to me. I mean, he um, asked me if I wanted to go for lunch the first day I met him, and immediately started talking about over 55,000 tons of gold sitting on a military base in Thailand. I said, Thomas, come on, where did it come from? He says, well, I believe it came from the Shah of Iran. And in 1979, when the Ayatollah took over, they moved it to a military base in Thailand. Now, 1979, 79 is the atomic number for gold. There's a lot of coincidences in this story as we go along. I could tell Thomas was infatuated to want me to believe him and he started showing me photos of all his gold. In the pictures, I saw a guy standing in the, in the middle of all the gold in Thailand. I said, who's that? He says, oh, that's Richard, my partner. I said, really? I said, Richard who? He said, Richard Libel. I said, Richard Libel? I said, hmm, that sounds familiar. Is he from Canada? He said, yes. I said, is he from Saskatchewan? And he said, yes. And I said, you know what? My father told me about Richard Leibel. I said, what a coincidence. I said, I haven't been back to Saskatchewan since I was 15, and now I'm 53. And you're telling me about Richard Leibel in Saskatchewan as your partner. Well, my father told me that Richard Leibel got deported out of Canada for fraud and bringing in Asian money illegally. He actually put the water slides into Kenosi Lake where we had a cabin. He was actually married to a friend of mine's cousin. So it was quite an unbelievable coincidence. Anyway, he actually also started the Willows Golf Course in Saskatoon with a partner by the name of Red Schaefer. Anyway, I had many, a few conversations with Richard throughout that year, 2007. I spent every day with Thomas. My deal with the Saudis never did go through. And the reason was Quantum Alliance, who I worked for, had told everybody that it was a class two medical device in Canada, but it turned out to be fraudulent. They had paid a guy in England to attach the medical device that I was selling to an existing class two medical device that had nothing to do with biofeedback. So unfortunately, the Saudis put my deal on hold. So here I was in Dubai in 2007, it was September. I didn't have a whole lot of money. I had just sold my condo, but uh, due to my uh, tax situation, I ended up having to pay the government a lot of the equity that was in it. So I was in Dubai with a couple of credit cards and $10,000 living in a hotel, hanging out with Thomas every day. Now, Thomas kept intriguing me with this goal and kept asking me, you know, do you know so-and-so in Saskatchewan, of all places? Here I am, half the way around the world. He's asking me if I know Harvey Schmidt in Saskatoon, who has a big grow-up. Um, he asked me if I knew the Hill family. He said he had strong contacts in uh, Yorkton to this day, Yorkton, Saskatchewan. 
But I didn't know any of these people because I had left home when I was very young. Throughout the year, I, uh, I met many people, a lot of sheiks. I also was got, you know, was asked if I wanted to fly over to Turkey to hook up a politician and, and a, and a surgeon. So I had a girlfriend, Grace, who was my assistant, my associate. She flew over to Dubai and together we flew to Turkey. And we were picked up in a black Mercedes by a gentleman by the name of Fua and uh, took us right over to Erdogan's office. He was vice president at that time. Of course, I knew nothing about politics. And quite frankly, I was just trying to sell medical devices. I really uh, didn't know how the world functioned. I had no idea who Erdogan was or what his rank was. But it turns out I shook hands with him, and Grace hooked him up to the biofeedback for about an hour, and I sat in the lobby, talked to Fuat, who told me Erdogan's, or Erdogan's uh, whole background, how he was a professional football player in, in Istanbul, and also he became mayor of Istanbul, and then he got into politics. So after we hooked up Erdogan, we shook hands, said goodbye, then we went to the main hospital, the biggest hospital in Istanbul, and hooked up the top surgeon. The device, the the SCIO or the EPFX biofeedback device was quite subtle. So, you know, both Erdogan and the top surgeon kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, think about it. So Grace went back to Toronto and I went back to Dubai. And again, I hung out with Thomas every day. Now I overheard a lot of conversations. I used to sit in his office playing backgammon on my laptop and he would uh, he carry two cell phones, one in his right pocket and one in his, one in his left pocket. And he said to me, Boyd, and this is his quote, I work for the Swiss Jews, meaning, namely, Mark Rich. I didn't have a clue who Mark Rich was. He also used to talk about Barrett Gold, Peter Monk, the owner. He mentioned Eric Sprott, the Canadian gold guru. Harry, Hera Huk, Hera, I can't pronounce his name, Harry Huko Kuroda, the CEO of the Bank of Japan, came to visit him two or three times that year. I had no idea who he was at the time. I used to sit in the lobby and talk with his wife, and she mentioned that they owned a house in Vancouver. Um, as the year went on, got getting into 2008 now in the spring, I was sitting in Thomas's office, and Again, he kept talking about trying to get this gold down to Perth, Australia. Okay, that was the main, his main goal was to get this 55,000 tons of gold that was 99.99% purity. It was ancient gold that came from the Shah of Iran and it sat on a military base for over 45 years in Thailand. And the idea was to, to try to get the first two tons out on a passenger plane down to Perth, Australia, where the world gold mint is. Because he always said, Boyd, once you remail gold, nobody can prove where it came from. As I listened more carefully to his conversations, both of his phones would ring every so often. He always said the one in his right pocket was hooked up to the Swiss Jews, meaning the Jewish bankers. Um, and I never knew who the, the other phone was hooked up to. But I overheard conversations where 
with with Richard especially where you know you know they'd have to try to find a pilot to put on a simulator so they could you know possibly take the plane up to 45,000 feet cut off the oxygen and all the passengers would die of asphyxiation and quite frankly I didn't know whether to believe it or not um I thought it was all legitimate they were just trying to sell the gold off at a 20% discount one day Hussein Shizwani walked in now Thomas from the time I met him in September would never stop talking about Hussein Shizwani Hussein Shizwani was a very successful real estate developer in Dubai and he came in to see Thomas four or five times when I was there I actually hooked him up to the biofeedback device a couple of times trying to get him to invest into my biofeedback business uh because I was just not selling any in Dubai I attended the largest health show in, in the Dubai International Center and I hooked up tens of people to my biofeedback but just never sold any Hussein Shizwani was uh very interested in the gold uh in fact Thomas time and time after time would try to convince Shizwani to invest into the gold and they were talking 5 600 million dollars um so later in the year Thomas mentioned that he had just gotten back from laundering or washing about $10,000 worth of marked bills from another group of extremists in the Middle East and it was a $10,000 sample of a $20 million dollar uh package of of American dollars that were all marked because he said he was an alchemist and he knew the procedures of cleaning money which kind of surprised me because he was he wore a kippa under a baseball hat he prayed twice a day um so i i just took uh, the assumption that maybe he was a jesuit i uh, wasn't sure um later in the summer uh mark rich mark right as he pronounced it came to dubai this was thomas's banker and thomas mentioned many times that boy i'm going to set up a swiss bank account for you i'm going to have mark my banker from zurich come to dubai and set up a swiss bank account because once we get this gold you know we're going to be rich we're going to have a lot of money and they'll deposit it right into your swiss bank account so about the middle of july 2008 mark right came to dubai he stayed at the marriott just down the road and thomas and i and another gentleman by the name of dimitri uh met mark at the bottom of the of the marriott at the sports bar at the at the bottom of the marriott just down the street now mark right pronounced himself with a german accent uh i had no idea who he was i thought he was a a depressed banker that just lost his job because he looked rather melancholy he, he he lit up a big cuban cigar and i just sat and listened to the conversation um the only thing i did say was um are we are you going to get the money or excuse me are you going to get the gold out of thailand and he simply looked at me and said yes so around this time a year had gone by and i was actually running out of a cash so i said to thomas listen i got to get back to canada but i am going to stop in the bangkok on my way back and visit richard 
So about a day before I left Dubai, around the end of July in 2008, Thomas hands me a 20-page document in an envelope that hadn't even been opened. And he said, here, have a look. So I took it outside and I, I opened the envelope. And it was about a 20-page document all about Bitcoin. Of course, this is before Bitcoin came on the market. It was all about the blockchain, the ledger on the Internet that the Bitcoins run on, and the fact that the Swiss Jewish bankers have the code. Um, it talked about Brexit, how England was going to separate from the European Union. This is eight years before it happened. It talked about ISIS. Um, I forgot to mention that in April of 2008, uh, Thomas asked me to leave the office for a few minutes that he had a meeting. And as I was walking out, al-Baghdadi was walking in with three other Arabs. Now, I didn't know who he was at the time, but I definitely recognize him uh, today as I uh, see his picture all over the, the newspapers. So when I questioned Thomas, you know, after the meeting with al-Baghdadi, I said, who are those guys? He says, oh, just some extremists, no big deal. He just shrugged, shrugged it off. So the day before I left Dubai in the end of July 2008, um, after reading this this 20-page document, it was all about, again, Bitcoin, the blockchain, how they have the code, which means they can steal your money Kraken, release the Kraken, which I'll get to in a, in a few minutes. Uh, the creation of ISIS, um, Brexit. They talked about the election in 2016 in the United States. They talked about interest rate hikes that we're seeing today that will continue to go on. And the fact that they, they want to try to disrupt the economy in the United States. So, with this information, um, Thomas, I handed him back the envelope, and he said, oh, by the way, Boyd, we, Richard just found a pilot from Malaysian Airlines to put on a simulator. So without hesitating, I said, well, what are you going to give him? He says, oh, probably 10 million U.S. and a villa in Bali. So honestly, I didn't know whether to believe this story or not, but I hopped on a plane the next day, to Canada via Bangkok, and I got off in Bangkok. I spent five days. I visited with Richard for three of them, and he basically confirmed everything. He knew about my hockey record, five goals in three minutes and seven seconds, because that became my number, 5307, had been my my favorite number, and I used it as my password. I shouldn't tell everybody, but uh, I'll be honest with you, I, it was my number my whole life. And, of course, he knew about my record. He knew nobody would ever break it. He also confirmed uh, that he had been writing what was now called the 14-year plan for the New World Order. This is what I read. And it took him seven years to write this whole program. And he also wrote the code for, for Bitcoin along with a few other of his assistants, he also mentioned that they just found a, a Malaysian airline pilot to go on a simulator. This is in 2008. 
all he said was, Boyd, we're going to get the gold out of Thailand. We're going to get it out on a passenger plane, and someday you'll hear about it. So that was it. I didn't know, understand why they were telling me all these things. They kept promising me uh, millions, a lot of a lot of talk. So I hopped on a plane and went back to Canada, Ooh. ended up in a city in Saskatchewan, because that's where my mother lives. It's called Saskatoon. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do in Saskatoon. I had come back from Dubai with not a lot of money. I noticed a high crime rate, so I actually got into selling security systems. And I sold 77 my first month. So I thought, wow, I can do this. So I continued to do this for, for two years. And uh, in the meantime, I met a, a, a beautiful girl in Saskatoon, started a relationship. I kept phoning Thomas just to see what's going on because I actually left two of my devices with him. I left him a brand new device and a used one and some clothes thinking I would go back because he did intrigue me with, with this gold. So two years go by and now it's the middle of June and out of the blue, I get an email from a Marley Thomas and her email. She mentioned that she owned a spa at the Dubai mall. Now, the Dubai Mall is a seven-story high mall at the bottom of the Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world. It's a beautiful mall. She said she owned a spa called Sparkles. Now, what clicked in my mind at that minute, when I told my story to Thomas about the five goals that I scored in three minutes and seven seconds, I said, when I scored the fifth one, I was on such a natural high, I saw Sparkles. So, again, the alarms went off when she said sparkles. I didn't think too much of it. She said she wanted to buy one of my medical devices. So I sent her a reply, and I said, well, you must have seen me at a, at a mall show back in 2007. She never replied. She just said, you know, we made a deal over, over the emails. And, again, I got in touch with Thomas. I had his phone number, and I told him I'd be coming back to Dubai to sell a device. So when I got to Dubai, I, I called Thomas and I told him where I was. And uh, I said, please bring me my stuff in the morning because I got to go sell this device to this Marley Thomas. He says, well, okay, I'll do that. So in the morning, he was like Johnny on the spot. He brought the devices over, all my clothes. And as he was handing everything over, he said, boy, let's go for dinner later. I said, fine. So I took a cab over to the Dubai Mall. I made the deal with Marley Thomas, a bubbly English blonde lady, very good, very attractive. And after the deal was done, all of a sudden she brings up photos of her so-called boyfriend in Fort Lauderdale standing in front of a Ferrari. And I'm thinking it to the back of my, in the back of my mind, why is she showing me photos of her so-called boyfriend in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, but now I do, and I'll get to that later. So that evening I went out for dinner with Thomas, and we're sitting there at the table, and he starts flipping a Bitcoin in the air. This is June of 2010. He says, boy, they're worth 30 cents now. Do you want to get involved? And he said, by the way, Hussein Shizwani just committed 600 million to the gold. 
And I had this feeling of wealth go through my body. I, I, I got red in the face. I hadn't, hadn't experienced that feeling before. It was a feeling of extreme wealth. But then I remembered what Jihad had told me back in 2007, the gentleman that helped me get the biofeedback contract Saudi Arabia for the medical devices. He had told me and warned me, he said, boy, Thomas will chew you up and spit you out. So that took over at that point in my mind. And I looked at Thomas and I said, listen, I said, you're the money launderer. I'm a salesman. I'm going back to Canada. Pay me back when you can because he owed me some money. So the very next day, I hopped on a plane, came back to Canada. I deleted his phone number off my phone because I knew there was something fishy about the lady sending me the email and Thomas. So I just decided to put that behind me and and carry on. So I deleted his phone number off my phone, and I never communicated with him again for four years. I, I got back into the security business, and in 2012, I got kind of tired of knocking on doors selling security, so I happened to call an old friend of mine from uh, my previous sales past in Ontario, and uh, he had just started a company called Pristine LED. It was an assembly plant in Windsor, Ontario. So I became part owner of Pristine LED, an assembly plant in Windsor. And because I'm an old New York Ranger, I decided to call an old friend of mine by the name of Ron Greshner, who played for the Rangers for 16 years. We actually started together in Estevan, Saskatchewan when we were 15. We both got drafted by the Rangers together. We both went to Providence together in the American League. But after only spending five games in, in Providence, Ron was brought up to the uh, to the NHL, and he spent 16 years in, in New York. Anyway, one thing led to another, and he formed a company called Four Beginnings with Kathy uh, P., who was uh, CEO of Quality Health Control for Homeland Security. So the next thing you know, they've got me going from Indiana to Grand Rapids, to Houston, uh, to all these big trade shows. I couldn't believe the, the, the big industry that the prisons are. Um, they have fish farms, they have all kinds of things. So I did audits at the Jamaica Queens Prison. I did audits at the Indiana State Prison for Women, 26 buildings. It took me eight hours to do the audit count. And while I'm doing that, Ron and Kathy, his partner, are having dinner with Mike Pence, the governor of Indiana, who today is Donald Trump's vice president. Yeah. I didn't think anything of it. I thought maybe we can sell some more lights. Anyway, this went on for about a year, and I just couldn't uh, find any prisons who <laughs> wanted to buy our lights. So they kept putting us off. So I started to focus on on the local community here in Saskatoon and Calgary. And on the fourth, excuse me, on March the eighth. 2014, I was sitting at the Willows Golf Course, ironically, the same golf course that got Richard Leibel deported 15 years earlier. I'm sitting there having breakfast when CNN announces MH370 has gone missing. I blurted out, I know who did this, and people looked at me. Mm. 
But I knew it was the gold heist that I'd heard about years before. So my mother and I are born on the same day, the Ides of March, March 15th. And I said to my mother on my birthday, I said, on our birthday, I said, I think Thomas is behind this. So I started to do some research. And I found out that 20 of the, the, the people who were on board MSU 70 were employees of Freescale Semiconductors, which is owned by the Rothschilds. And four of them had a patent on a wafer thin semiconductor that was coming out on March 14th. And the only way the, the Freescale could get 100% would be to kill them before the 14th of March. Mm. Uh, hmm, that's interesting. Then I found out that Boeing, who makes the 777, when they, when they make the 77, they make duplicates. And, uh, cause it's cheaper. And who owns Boeing is the Rothschilds. So, yeah, so, yeah, so, uh, um, doing my research, I also found, uh, that a girl who they had brought in to be CEO of Bitcoin Southeast Asia, living in Singapore, had fallen mysteriously fallen off her balcony 16 stories to her death. Her name was Autumn Radke. Now, coincidentally, at the same time, I'm trying to do a website for my LED lighting business, and I wanted to use my my hockey record, 5307, because I thought people would wonder what what 5307 is all about, and I maybe could do some hockey arenas, convert them over to LED lighting, which, which I actually did. But I, I looked up the meaning of 5307 in the Hebrew Greek dictionary and just about fell off my chair when it said the definition of 5307 is to fall to a violent death. Well, then I quickly got inspired to look up the name Autumn, the lady who had just mysteriously fallen off her balcony. Autumn in the Hebrew Greek dictionary means the falling of the leaves. So now I started to get curious, and I had to find out exactly what's going on. I also found out that a Bitcoin, just two months prior to MH370's disappearance, had gone up to $1,100 U.S. And I thought, wow, I could have had a million of them. But that's when I started to do my research. I didn't have Thomas's phone number, but I did have his email. So I sent him a quick email, and I, and I wanted to get a response. So all I said was, you did it. I waited a few days, never got a reply. Continued doing some research. Found out that Bitcoin, there was, there was many, many, many robberies of Bitcoin. Many exchanges got robbed of millions and millions of dollars. Mount Goax in Japan was robbed a month before MH370 disappeared for $850 million worth of Bitcoin. <gasps> Mongoax did all their guns and nuclear weapons. Silk Road, a month before MH370 went missing, got robbed in the United States. Silk Road did all their drug cartel for another $750 million worth of Bitcoin. So altogether, in just those two exchanges, there was $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. Now, who became the regulator in the world for Bitcoin at that time was Kraken. Again, 
I couldn't believe it. So everything was coming true. Kraken, which was invented just after MH370 disappeared, was a, a Bitcoin exchange, a cryptocurrency exchange in San Francisco. And when they released the Kraken, the Kraken can eat up all the Bitcoin in the market. They actually tested it out in 2016 with Ethereum. Ethereum in June of 2016 was worth $400. And within one second, it went down to 10 cents and then back up again. That is what you call releasing the Kraken. So whenever you see large fluctuations in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, they are releasing the Kraken. And it's there to destroy countries that rely on Bitcoin and humans. So I'm just giving everybody a heads up. Now, as I started to to dig into this more, um, I I, I Googled Thomas's name. Thomas Lily Kazansky is what he told me his name was. And a Forex FX website came up. There was no place to leave a message. Excuse me, there was no phone number, but there was a place to type in a message. So I typed in, please have Thomas Lily Kazansky call Boyd Anderson immediately with my phone number. This is a week after MH370 took place. Within two minutes, my phone rings, and it's Thomas. He said, Boyd, how are you? I said, I'm fine, Thomas. I didn't hesitate. I said, Thomas, I've been reading about Bitcoin. I've been reading about MH370. I said, you've been a busy guy. Zip. It was five seconds of silence. I thought he was going to hang up, and he probably should have. But then he calmly replied, boy, you are very smart. Yes, we got 200 million for MH370. You are smart. You are very smart. He kept repeating it. Now, that's probably because I never contacted him for four years, but I just went on my gut instinct that he was a bad dude. So we probably had 10 conversations that spring, but I couldn't prove how they could get 55,000 tons of gold down to Perth. I just wanted to get as much information out of them as possible. So around the third phone call, I emailed them my quotes from Homeland Security prisons for my LED lighting. And within seconds, the phone rang. He, he called me. He says, boy, those are all my other contacts. So I put it together. In one pocket, the cell phone was hooked up to the Swiss Jewish bankers, meaning Mark Rich and company. Ooh. And his other cell phone was hooked up to Homeland Security because he did mention to me in 2007 that he was friends with Jay Johnson's father. Mm. Now, Jay Johnson was the chief of Homeland Security. Mm. So I truly believe Homeland Security is responsible for creating ISIS along with Israel and the Swiss Jews. Uh, They put a, a, a prison into Iraq in 2002 which allowed all the al-Baghdadis to get together under one roof and do their Hillary. So this is all going on in my mind. And, and, and during that summer, I mean, Thomas invited me to a Bilderberg meeting in Hong Kong. He sent me a contract for 575000 U.S. dollars for helping him out in 2007. And I, I just was going along with it. He mentioned to me in, in August that people from MH370 are never coming back. 
I said, where are they, in the Indian Ocean? Because I had no idea. And finally, in September, five months after MH370 took place, the final, the last conversation I had with Thomas was, boy, now that we got the gold, we got to sell it. Mm. And he says, you got to realize where money originates from. So that was the last conversation I had. I quickly Googled the origin of money, and it's Turkey and Greece. Uh, and, and a lot of this information you'll get in my book. But um, three days later, I get a phone call in the middle of the night from an Ivan with a South African accent. Now, he said, boy, this is Ivan. I'm Thomas' South African friend. I'm just calling you to tell you that, that Thomas had a stroke, and he's talking like a baby, and we're not sure he's going to recover. So as soon as he said, talking like a baby, I knew Thomas was right beside him telling him what to say, because he used to use that phrase when I was with him in 2007, you know, for fun, talking like a baby. So this Ivan had a sharp South African accent. Um, so I wondered who he was. So anyway, I, uh, I kept doing my research, kept doing my research. And finally, in January 2016, I discovered that there were three Jumbo 747s left abandoned at the Kuala Lumpur Airport for over a year. They sat there on the tarmac. Nobody claimed them. I mean, sometimes I forget where I leave my car in the parking lot. But who forgets where they leave their Jumbo 747? In fact, three of them. So... The story was all about the, the airport auction and auction and the auction and the auction named them off, and the proceeds would go to pay for the storage of these these three jumbos. Two of them came from Icelandic Air, and one came from what I believe Abdul Mowbray in Fort Lauderdale. That's getting back to the relationship that this uh, Marley Thomas. I found out later. Looking on television, I recognize her as an anchor with with Bloomberg. Her name is Caroline Hyde, a beautiful English girl, blonde. I mean, it's not not difficult to to recognize her. So, when I found out about these three jumbo seven forty sevens, I just said, "Cha ching, <laughs> this is it, bingo." Now I had solved ninety nine percent of the mystery of MH370. There were five planes involved, okay? There were two identical 777s. There were three jumbo 747s. Now, just after midnight on March the 8th, it was March the 7th, Western time. Again, third month, seventh day, five planes involved, 537 there were two, uh, MH370 leaves Kuala Lumpur with 239 people on board. They had smuggled two tons of the gold from the military base onto MH370. That was the two tons Thomas always talked about. They described it on the manifest as two tons of mango steam, but obviously the, the 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 people at the airport were involved with this, so they, it was actually two tons of gold. MH370 takes off. The pilot had been on a simulator for six years, practicing what he was going to was about to do. Yeah. He takes off, 
and over the Bay of Thailand, which is the Strait of Malacca, takes the plane up to 45,000 feet, as recorded by the New York Times. Mm. At the same time, MA-17, you know the 777 that went down over Russia four months later? They say the Russians shot it down with a missile? Well, that's not true. I'll tell you about that one in a minute. But MA-17 comes flying by. Now, the people behind this was the CIA, Department of Homeland Securities, the Russian Russian KGB, and the Israeli Mossad. Okay? They came flying by in the identical twin to MH370, which is MH17. And it picked up the radar because both planes were equipped with onboard explosives, stealth technology, which means they can pick up the radar, turn it off, and autopilot. MH370 stays up for 23 minutes to make sure everybody's dead of asphyxiation. Then it comes down under the radar. That's why I named the book Under the Radar. And it lands on the northern tip of Indonesia at an airport called Banda Achai. It can handle a 777. That's where they offload the two tons of gold. And then MH370 goes north to Kazakhstan. They hide it in the Cosmodrome. That's a Russian spaceport. Now, I forgot to mention that Thomas was looking after the president of Kazakhstan's uh, nephew, Rahim. I met him many times. He treated him like a son. And he always said, boy, we can use the Cosmodrome if we need it. So this is what happened. They stashed it away for three and a half months. They hid it. And I'll get back to what happens next with MH370. All the bodies were drained of blood. MH17 then circles down under the radar, cuts off its radar, and lands at Banda Achai Airport, picks up the two tons of gold, and heads down to Perth immediately and opens up the account at the at the World Gold Mint. And uh, Tony Abbott, the prime minister, was on television all the time, pointing at the Indian Ocean, trying to get everybody to do the search. Meanwhile, MH370 is sitting in Kazakhstan. So they begin this search in the Indian Ocean, and the search went on for 10 months. But while they're doing the search, Thomas and the Swiss Jews are flying back and forth with the three jumbo 747s with the gold. As if they're part of the search, right in front of the world's eyes. Now, who paid for it? It cost $130 million for that search. The taxpayers uh-huh. paid for them to transport the gold down to Perth. This is how ridiculous this whole thing is, right in front of the world's eyes. Now, the mathematics goes back to the same 537. Each... Jumbo 747, the capacity of a Jumbo 747 is 400 tons. So they made 50 trips because they got to get the five in there. They worship the number five. This is from Shivaism. Shiva is the god of destruction, the destroyer. And you've heard of CERN. It's all, that's in, in Geneva, Switzerland. It's a big collider. It's actually the headquarters of the CIA as well. <laughs> 15,000 people commute every day through six different tunnels, Switzerland. Well, India donated, in 2004, donated a statue of Shiva, a two-foot, four-foot statue 
And Shiva is, again, a god of destruction, the destroyer, and they worship the number five. That's why they knew I had the numbers. Five goals in three minutes and seven seconds. Now we're talking about transporting the gold from Thailand to Perth. Each jumbo 747 made 50 trips. They're playing with the negative aspects of Shiva. Yeah, well, the Shiva is the great destroyer of all that is not of love and higher vibrations. Right, right. They're doing just the opposite for greed and uh, who cares who dies in the process. <laughs> as long as it's five, over five months, that's five, excuse me, that's ten a month with 370 tons per trip. So when you multiply 370 times 50, you get 18,500 times three of them is 555. It took them five months. And, and, and when I think, thought about it, from the time MH370 happened in March till the last conversation I had with Thomas in September, it was just past the five month time frame. And that's when he said, Boyd, now that we got the goal, we got to sell it. Now in the meantime, Four months after MH370 disappears, MH17 gets supposedly shot down over the Ukraine. So on July 17, 2014, MH17 leaves Amsterdam with 298 people on board. The flight path to Kuala Lumpur wasn't even supposed to go over the Ukraine. And the ironic thing, another coincidence, is that it was... MH17's 17th, 17th birthday to the day. Both MH17 and MH370 were identical twins. Their maiden flights were on July 17, 1997. So 17 years to the day, coincidental, MH17 takes off with 298 people. Now, this is when they resurrect MH370. Believe it or not, it becomes very biblical. It's like when Jesus was resurrected after three days. This is after three months. They had resurrected MH370. The Ukrainian, and I have all this on video and referenced in my book, the Ukrainian farmers witnessed a Jumbo 747 practicing in the farmland of the Ukraine with a SU, Ukrainian SU-25 fighter jet right underneath it. For two weeks, this went on. They'd never seen anything like it. So, this is what happened on, uh, they resurrected MH370 on July 17th, and it's flying autopilot in parallel with MH17 over the Polish airspace, and they go one degree to the north, over to the fighting area of the Ukraine. And this is when the Ukrainian fighter jet blasts a hole into the cockpit of MH-17, and it starts to descend. Now, the, the Ukrainian Su-25 fighter jet follows it down, peppering it with 33-millimeter uh, shells to make it look like it got hit by a missile. At the same time, they wirelessly explode MH-370 in midair, and it breaks apart into bigger pieces. It caused three-foot holes in the, in the earth, and it lands in the northern part of the Ukraine. The body parts, being three months old, four months old, were rotting and decomposing. They, they were spread 33 kilometers apart. 
the first responders and even a, a, a Ukrainian commander in the army uh, expressed publicly with the press that the bodies were not fresh. They had been dead for days, and they smelled of rotting and decomposition. Yeah. Now, MH17 continues to descend, getting peppered with 33-millimeter shells from the uh, Ukrainian fighter jet, and then they explode it remote controlling, and it explodes but closer to the ground, only about 100 meters off the ground, so it doesn't spread as far. Now, when you add up the total amount of people on both flights, 239 aboard MH370, 298 aboard MH17, you add them up, what do you get? 537. Mm. Now, what happened to the gold? After they remelted the gold in September, they used those same three jumbo 747s to transport the gold into seven vaults around the world. There's a vault in Singapore, Hong Kong, Dubai, Zurich, London, Toronto, and New York. Now, the atomic number for gold is 79. So they put 79 tons into each vault. 79 times 7 is 553, plus the two tons that were on the original 370, brings it back to 555. So when I started to do uh, more research on this, I found out that the only company that has access to these seven vaults is gold money. It's called BitGold, which I had read about in the original 20-page document. It started off as BitGold on the Toronto Stock Exchange. It, it went right up to $8 in 2015. It's around two ninety-five right now. But it's the only company that's changed their name to Gold Money. Uh, they put the headquarters now off the Isle of Jersey, and it's actually a Rothschild's uh, company. It's got it's the only company in the world that has access to these seven vaults, and this is what's going to run the new world order, along with Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin will probably crash uh, within the year, uh, my prediction. But um, how did they sell the gold? They crashed the stock market in 2016. It was the worst crash in the history of Wall Street, January. Um, I did a lot of research. I found out who Mark Rich was. He started Glencore, a very uh, a very criminal company. It's the largest uh, commodities and mining company in the world. And uh, he supposedly died in 2013 because I remember getting a phone call in June of 2013 saying, you know, from a Swiss bank saying, do you want to keep your bank account open? And I said, no, close it. Because I hadn't communicated with these guys for over three years then. But who took over Glencore is Ivan Glasenberg, who speaks in a sharp South African accent. So this is part of my story. This is, uh, you know, uh, to carry on a little bit, I mean, they created a lot of black ops they had Erdogan in Turkey shoot down a Russian fighter jet in the in the fall of 2015 because you see gold's price was had been dropping since 2011 and it, it had dropped down to just over a thousand dollars and buried gold stock. I watched it had dropped down to eighty dollars and be darned if, if John Baird, Canada's former uh, minister of foreign affairs, quits the government and goes to work for Barrett Gold. Now, why would he do that? So they had to drive the price of gold back up. 
And that's why they created Brexit, fear and uncertainty. They had Erdogan from Turkey shoot down the Russian fighter jet. They had all these black ops in Paris and Brussels and, and, and Florida. And it was all to create fear and uncertainty. They created ISIS to remove all the refugees, to create all these refugees from Africa, from Iraq, to flood Europe. And it was all to do with raising up the price of gold. Mm. So that's what happened. The biggest winner in Brexit, because, of course, they knew about it before it happened, was George Soros and Kazakhstan. They're the ones who made the most money. It's all in my book. George Soros, in May, invested $438 million into Barrett Gold. And now you can see that he capitalized on Brexit. So as we go along, um, Glencore, uh, who has their headquarters in Regina, Saskatchewan, uh, in January of 2016, another thing happened is, is uh, Ivan Glasenberg, Glasenberg unloaded 40% of his agricultural business to the Canadian pension plans. And they were able to buy into Glencore at $71. I mean, two years prior, it was a $500 stock. Now the Canadian pension plans bought in at $71. Today, it's back up to 400 So the Canadian pension plans are loaded because, you see, Commodity mining is kind of going on the way down because they want to replace gold with Bitcoin and all these cryptocurrencies. So agriculture is now on the way up. So now you've got Glencore trying to do a, a takeover of Bungie. Glencore is once again on the hunt for deals, including the approach you made to Bungie. Here's what I'd like to know, and I think helps to inform people about your company and about how you think. Why does Bungie interest you? And what do Glencore's ambitions say about your expectations for the health of the global trading system? Yeah, Bungie, we've always said, we we got three real departments within Glencore. We have the metals and mining side, mainly, mainly metals. We have the oil side, uh, energy, coal and oil. And then we have the agricultural part of Glencore. Um, in the metals and mining side, we are one of the three biggest mining companies in the world. Well, we're a bit smaller, but pretty big in the oil trading side where we uh, handle around about 5 million barrels of oil a day. So pretty big on the trading side. In the eggs, uh, we weren't a big player. So what we decided a while ago during 2015, if we could bring in partners, and we brought in a partner into our egg business, we brought in the two Canadian pension companies, but we wanted partners who wanted the same ambitions as us and wanted to grow the business. Backed by the Canadian pension plans, and their headquarters happens to be in Humboldt and Nippon. Another coincidence, thinking about the Humboldt Broncos. And right on that corner where the crash was for the Humboldt Broncos is a huge Bungie site. So are these all coincidences? I, uh, I went in to look up the significance of 537 and also 555. And here's what I found. This goes back to the people who run the world, you know, these Jewish bankers in Israel, et cetera, uh, and, and Putin, of course, and, and, and Trump. You see, I didn't know if Trump was involved until 
uh, January 2017, when he announces to the world that his best friend and business partner, Hussein Shizwani, the guy that backed the gold heist, is his best friend and business partner. And again, I just about fell off my chair. <laughs> now, doing my reference on 537 in, in the Bible, 537 BC is when Cyrus, who was a, 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 a Persian emperor, captured Babylon. He was married to Isis. That's when he freed 50,000 Jews and allowed them to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their second temple. And again, referring to Trump, this is why Trump is moving or has moved the embassy to Jerusalem so they can re, so they can build a third temple. It's all about the, the next coming of Christ. Now, 537 AD was the first siege of Rome when the Ostrogothics tried to capture the Roman Empire and the Pope was saved by a Byzantine general, a Muslim general. His name was Vigilius. And this is when they stuck a Byzantine pope in. And he reigned from 537 to 555 A.D. Now, in the year 2000, when George Bush ran for president, they had to recount the votes. This is George Bush versus Al Gore, and they had to recount the votes in Florida. And, of course, who is the governor of Florida? It was George's brother, Jeb. So they recounted the votes. Do you know how many votes he won by? 537. 537. The number of votes that changed the course of American history. Florida is too close to call. The difference between what was and what could have been. So this is why in 2012, when Obama ran for president on his second term, his whole ad campaign, and you can Google this right now. Just Google Obama 537, and you will get an advertisement. His whole advertisement campaign was 537. Get out and vote, everybody. The number that changed the history of America. The difference of what was and what could have been. 537. Now, 555 in the occult world means extreme death. King, uh, in the Bible, King Solomon used to collect 666 talents of gold from, from the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, when you divide 12 into 666, it equals to 5.5 each. So, is that another coincidence? The reason I wrote the book is that when I looked up my number, 5307, in the Christian Bible, it means that I am a representative of a god or king's to other nations and kings for the goodness and the salvation of mankind. So I honestly feel that that I'm a messenger. And today I just wanted to express my my sincere um, knowledge, my my sincereness of, of waking up everybody 
and understanding that, you know, who ordered the, the, the MH370 to Kazakhstan was Mr. Putin. Who was involved with the people who backed it? The 600 million with, with Hussein Zizwani was Donald Trump. So you wonder what they talked about in Helsinki two days ago in a private meeting. Well, who knows? Maybe it was about the gold. Maybe it was about Bitcoin. Maybe it was about the new world order. Oh, my God. What I can say about this is when you're playing in the realm of these kind of folks and you're playing with the fallen angels, um, expect mother. And it is about... It's about what a time it is, Rama. That's right. Um, murder, death, and destruction does not bring about peace on earth. And it never has. It never will. In any space-time continuum, you can't buy planets. You can't uh, work your way to power and control by genocide, ecocide. I mean, that's what Avengers Endgame was about, this idea <sighs> of ethnic cleansing across the galaxy, the universe. And I got to say that, you know, when you're playing in the realm of Mark Rich and the Clintons and Erdogan and Putin, the galactic step in and enough said. Okay, here we go. We've got to do this quick now. This is called Vibrational Secrets Revealed. This is by Robert J. Gilbert. And it says, how can we utilize sacred geometry to unlock secrets of healing on a cellular level? Exploring decades of research in relation to timeless truths. Robert J. Gilbert, Ph.D., shares how the work of Hans Jenny, John Stuart Reed, Mandara Cromwell, and Dr. Peter Manners can heal humanity by utilizing the unseen energies that give geometric patterns their true power. Linking Taoist alchemy, Rosicrucian wisdom, and the holy science of the Babaji lineage with cymatic science, chymatic science, excuse me, the effect of sound waves on matter and chymatic chymotherapy. Dr. Gilbert exposes the vibrational structures that form the foundations of our physical reality. Let's do it. This is the positive way of how to manifest. It's coming, everybody.
Welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Robert J. Gilbert. In this episode, we will explore the hidden energies behind sacred geometry, which give geometric forms their true power. In the ancient world, sacred geometry was a practical energy science with powerful applications for healing, for harmonizing energy over large areas, for activating the energy grid, the net, in human beings and locations. Most of this ancient energy science was lost over thousands of years, leaving behind just the philosophical and technical aspects of sacred geometry design. Esoteric traditions know that human history goes through different time cycles. One of the most famous is the Kali Yuga Dark Age, described in the Indian Vedic tradition. This is a time when spiritual light grows dim and materialism takes over. Although some sources calculate that we are still in the Dark Age, according to the Babaji lineage of India, as expressed by Babaji's disciple Sri Yukteswar in his text, The Holy Science, and Sri Yukteswar was Yogananda's teacher. The Dark Age actually ended in 1899. Interestingly, the European Rosicrucian tradition, through the work of Rudolf Steiner, gives the same date for the end of the Dark Age, 1899. Although the forces of materialism are still tremendously strong, and in many ways getting even stronger, New spiritual light has emerged in the world since 1900. Great spiritual traditions all around the world have publicly released previously hidden information. So, for example, great inner secrets of the European Rosicrucian tradition were revealed by Rudolf Steiner in the years following 1899. Highly secret and protected information, like the advanced internal alchemy formulas of the Chinese Taoists, which are some of the most advanced initiation knowledge in the entire world, only began to be released publicly in the 1980s. One of the great developments in spiritual science since 1900 was the development of the science of cymatics, the study of wave phenomena. Cymatics makes visible the actual invisible vibrational powers behind all physical manifestation what we call the energy grid of the net that we explored earlier in this series that was known in ancient Egypt and other cultures. Cymatic shows the direct conversion of vibrational forces into the sacred geometry patterns of all physical manifestation. Because of this, cymatics has become important evidence to show the validity of modern vibrational medicine and vibrational science. The Greek term for wave is kaima, so kaimatics was the original German name for this breakthrough field which makes visible the invisible vibrational fields behind all of creation. In English, kaimatics is written with a C instead of a K and is pronounced cymatics. It was developed by the Swiss medical doctor Hans Jenny, a student of the Rosicrucian work of Rudolf Steiner. Yeni used modern electronic technology, including the use of waveforms transmitted through crystals, to show the relationship between specific vibrations and the geometric forms that they manifest. Yeni recreated the work of Kaladni from the 1700s, which showed that a violin bow drawn across a steel plate would form powder placed on the plate into specific geometric forms 
based on the note. But now, with much more precision and control, with the new electronic instruments being used by Yeni. Short wavelengths can put matter into rotation, linked to the sacred geometry power of the vortex. By using liquids rather than powder, counter-rotating spirals are created through specific vibrations. Vibrations put through various fluids show the creation of perfect net energy matrices. Here we see vibration creating in the water sample a perfect point in the center of the circle geometric form, which was our first letter of the divine alphabet of sacred geometry. A slight increase in frequency keeps the point in the center of the circle, while then adding the next stage of vibrational structuring of matter, seen in the shapes being created at the periphery, in this case with the pentagonal shape on the periphery, as with the pentagonal faces of the dodecahedron. This close-up of a water drop shows how the vibration creates within a five-sided structure a continual pulsation and movement from the center to the periphery and back again. This combines the point in the center of the circle, geometry archetype, with the pulsation of movement in and out of a center. By using two sounds together, the beat of music can be made visible, like the pulse of a heartbeat. Vibration can crystallize matter into forms like a spinal column, complete with movement like a living centipede. Vibration can even make matter begin to aggregate together and rise up vertically and move forward like a living being, as seen here with these iron filings. The imaging methods developed by Hans Jenny have been advanced significantly in recent years, especially through the work of British scientist John Stuart Reed, the inventor of the modern cymoscope. The cymoscope allows highly detailed cymatics images to be created in 4K or even higher resolution and with three-dimensional detail. Reed had previously conducted research in the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid. He showed that the chamber was precisely constructed so that sound vibrations generated inside the king's chamber were focused energetically on the so-called sarcophagus in the room, which in reality is a place used for a powerful spiritual initiation process. This means that chants or other sounds created in the king's chamber would immediately focus their vibrational effects on the person undergoing initiation lying in the sarcophagus. Reed has used his development of the cymoscope to conduct pioneering breakthroughs in cymatics imaging, such as being able to recreate the structural form of ancient primordial life forms through pure sound vibration. This demonstrates how these invisible vibrational fields create the structures of all life and matter, structures which he can now recreate this is his recreation of the pattern of an ancient trilobite from the Cambrian period 526 million years ago, with his lab-generated cymatics trilobite shown on the right. This is his recreation of a diatom from the Cretaceous period 65 million years ago in his cymatic diatom shown on the right. Reed has found that the modern concept of a sound wave which is usually depicted as a two-dimensional sine wave, is deeply misleading 
And in fact, all sound waves are spherical, propagating as pulsating bubbles. This discovery shows the relationship of sound waves to one of the first sacred geometry patterns we explored in this series, the point in the center of the circle, with the expansion and contraction in and out of the center. Whenever we hear sound, or hear a musical instrument played, what we are hearing is the expanding sound wave sphere. Reed has been able to image all types of invisible sound vibrations, including these 12 piano notes of the first octave, showing their precise geometries. He has even been able to capture the vibrational pattern of the sun itself, in this image which he calls the Song of the Sun. The Song of the Sun cymatics glyph can be used as a matrix on which to construct powerful crystalline energy grids. These crystal grids create a microcosm of the great standing stone circles of megalithic Europe, which were used to concentrate and direct energy at natural power spots on the Earth. In this image, we see clear quartz standing stones placed on the Song of the Sun matrix, one on each of the 28 nodal points on the periphery. An illuminated quartz sphere is placed on the center of the grid, and then quartz points are used horizontally to create lines of energy which connect the center to the periphery crystals. I constructed this particular grid to illustrate this process in my online course, Minerals and Crystals for Times of Stress. Note that a stone which can transmute and harmonize any toxicity coming from the electronic light source in the center, which is a little known stone called Indigo Gabro from Madagascar, is included on the light source for optimal energetics of this grid. In addition to making his advanced cymoscope available to scientific research institutes, Reed has been able to create a digital library of the geometric forms which correspond to specific tones and frequencies, which is now available in miniaturized form as a cymoscope app for all smartphones or tablets. Unlike other apps which simply generate abstract, random digital graphics in response to inputted sounds, Reed's Cymoscope app shows the actual geometric vibrational pattern created by the sounds of anything you use the app to capture and image. This can be human voices or music, natural sounds, etc. Reed's work has now moved into creating unprecedented high-res images, 4K and higher, as seen in this imaging of a chant by sound researcher Jonathan Goldman. Reed is also creating 3D images of complete sound spheres. In some of his latest work, Reed has opened up the possibilities of a new field of medical imaging using cymatics. He has created the first images of the vibrational geometric difference between a healthy cell and a cancerous cell. In the new field called cymotherapy, British osteopath Dr. Peter Guy Manners applied cymatics principles to creating the first clinical cymotherapy device in the early 1960s, which he used to treat patients at his clinic until his retirement in 2005. Manners lived in excellent health to be over 100 years old, which he attributed to being exposed daily to the powerful healing effects of his cymotherapy frequencies. He was 101 years old when this picture was taken. Manners became known for the almost miraculous recoveries 
enjoyed by his psychotherapy patients. He discovered it was not enough to simply hear the sounds. Their vibrations had to be driven directly into the tissues of the body through a transducer in contact with the area being treated. One of the great secrets of Dr. Manner's work became known as the secret of five. He discovered through decades of empirical research that it is not possible to restore the full resonant frequency of body areas through a single sound vibration, nor even two, three, or four vibrations used together. He found the key was to use five sound frequencies together in highly precise combinations, creating complex sound codes, which he called commutations. This is of particular interest given that we have seen previously in this series that the number five is directly linked to the vital life force in the human being, as seen in the five-sided pentagon and pentagram sacred geometries. Manners passed on his work to Mandara Cromwell from the United States, who updated the electronic systems with the latest technological advancements. Her first units were miniaturized and upgraded versions of Manners' master clinical units. Cromwell then realized this technology needed to be made available to the general public in a simplified form. This led to her recent development of the first public psychotherapy device, the AMI 750. Instead of requiring holding a handheld applicator for extended periods on particular body parts, this device simply has the user place their bare feet on gel pads which conduct the vibrations through the soles of the feet into the entire body system. Cromwell was nominated for the Thomas Edison Award for Innovation in the Fields of Science and Medicine in 2013 for her development of the first public psychotherapy device using Dr. Manner's precision sound codes, and her device has now become available worldwide. In the United States, it's FDA certified for use for pain and stress relief. Many research projects have shown the efficacy of psychotherapy methods. For example, this project showed that a 95% tendon tear in the leg of a horse healed the tendon fully with no surgery or physical intervention, which is considered virtually impossible today. Thermographic imaging of this leg injury shows elimination of inflammatory pain within 30 minutes. Similarly, thermography shows the massive reduction or complete elimination of 10 years of progressive inflammatory pain of the breast and lymph glands after a standard six weeks treatment protocol. This study from a Bioelectromagnetic Society conference showed tremendous reduction of inflammation from peripheral artery disease in only 15 minutes of treatment. The actual sacred geometric form of these sound codes coming from the psychotherapy device can be made visible using John Reed's Cymoscope app simply by placing a smartphone or a tablet with the app on top of the gel pads while they're running specific channels. Using the full Cymoscope apparatus, John Reed was also able to take precision images of some of the psychotherapy sound codes contained in this first public device. When imaged with a Cymoscope, the acupuncture meridian clearing sound code manifested a perfect five-pointed star, which we have seen in previous episodes is a signature of the etheric life force. Similarly, this image of the etheric body sound code from Dr. Manners 
shows an amazing spherical configuration of pentagons, making a dynamic dodecahedron, which is the highest of the platonic solids, the one for the ether itself. We should bear in mind that only recently has the imaging of Dr. Manner's sound codes been possible at this level, revealing the incredible match between what Dr. Manner said the function of the sound code was with the literal geometric form which is created by that code, which we can now see visibly, which proves his assertion. The anti-aging channel on the public cymotherapy device contains Dr. Manner's sound codes for all five elements of Chinese medicine. These have now been imaged by John Reed's cymoscope and color-coded for each element. As seen here, the metal element in white, water in blue, wood in green, fire in red, and earth in yellow. Cymatics has now shown through modern technology that invisible vibrations do indeed create and structure the physical world, just as claimed in ancient traditions all around the world. These vibrations can be practically applied for profound healing and physical regeneration. This has now opened the door for a new age of vibrational medicine and vibrational science. To fully understand the significance of this, we need to understand that our modern technology has completely transformed the Earth in only 100 years. All of this new technology, from electrification of the Earth to propulsion systems to digital computers, are all based on the discovery of two spectrums of energy. The first is the spectrum of all physical matter, which has allowed us to identify every single element which exists in the physical world. This is what we call the periodic table of elements. The second is the spectrum of the decayed radiations that are beneath the level of the physical plane. This sub-physical spectrum is what we call the electromagnetic spectrum. All of our modern technology is based on cracking the code of these two spectrums, allowing us to identify what bits of physical matter can be used in conjunction with which electromagnetic frequencies in order to create new technological devices. Modern materialistic science says that only these two levels of physical matter and electromagnetic radiations exist, and there is nothing else but them in all of creation. The terrible consequence of this short-sightedness of modern science is that it's created a technology which can manipulate physical matter and electromagnetic energy to a very high degree, but with absolutely no consideration of how this new technology affects living beings. The tragic consequence is that in only 100 years, our entire planet has been catastrophically contaminated with chemical, biological, and radiological toxins which now threaten all life on Earth. The solution is to expand our science to include not just the sub-physical and physical levels that it currently has, but to add to them the level of vibrational matrices of the vital life force, which create the physical matter in the first place. As identified by the European Rosicrucian tradition and the work of Rudolf Steiner, it is the vital life force level above the physical, which truly animates and structures all of physical matter. These vital life forces are faster than light, so when they come into physical matter and are used up, they then decay into slower-than-light radiations. In other words, they decay into what Nikola Tesla referred to as the retarded Hertzian waves. 
of the modern electromagnetic spectrum. Nikola Tesla referred to the faster-than-light energies, which would be the subject of a more advanced future technology, as being scalar waves. Just as our modern life-destroying technology was based on breaking the code of the spectrums of the physical and sub-physical levels, the new life-supporting technology must be based on the spectrum of subtle vibrational forces which form matter and which sustain health. We can call this the universal vibrational spectrum. The good news is that this universal vibrational spectrum has already been identified in Europe, and new types of tools to detect and identify all of its bands of energy have already been created. The bad news is that the world did not take notice of this, and these fundamental European breakthroughs from the 1930s were lost in the midst of the catastrophe of World War II. In the ancient world, there was a science of detecting the subtle energies which create and sustain life and health, a science which reached one of its highest peaks in the ancient Egyptian civilization. This science was taught to the temple elite, with its secrets often hidden from public view to keep it from being misused. We find throughout ancient Egyptian artifacts and references many different types of pendulums and rods which were used as tools to detect or to project subtle energies. However, modern Egyptology understands nothing about these tools and simply calls them ritual objects or say that there's some type of religious symbolism. Today, when we see these types of rods and pendulums, we may think of modern systems of mental dowsing in which a person mentally programs a pendulum or rod to respond with certain movements in response to a mental question which is asked. One movement showing a no response, another movement showing a yes response. Mental dowsing is a powerful and valid modern system. However, the original vibrational temple science of ancient Egypt and other great lost civilizations used vibrational tools to detect and direct vibrations, different types of energy, not to ask mental questions, which is a modern modification based on our highly mental modern culture. Particular tools and methods to detect vibrational energies of this higher level were developed by Chinese feng shui, Indian vastu, the augurs of Italy, and many other traditions around the world. This original vibrational science was linked to the capacity of the human energy system to directly detect vibrations which no purely physical electromagnetic device can ever detect. To detect a particular energy requires a detector of a similar type, a similar quality. A basic metal box with wires and electricity may be able to pick up gross levels of electromagnetic waves, but it cannot pick up the subtle vibrational waves, the vital life forces. That requires something which itself is alive and has these vital forces, such as the human energy field. As the materialistic modern era advanced, many of the secrets of the ancient traditions became lost or obscured. In Europe, the Masons who built the cathedrals cultivated this secret knowledge, and separately, the Jesuits within the Roman Catholic Church sought to collect ancient knowledge from around the world, particularly from ancient Egypt, and take it back to Rome and the Vatican Library. The Jesuits cultivated in their own circles some of the ancient vibrational methods which they rediscovered in their research and which they then taught 
to some priests and missionaries for them to use for practical purposes. For example, a missionary in a strange land could use these vibrational techniques to find clean sources of water, to differentiate poisonous from edible plants, and to find medicinal herbs for any type of illness. We need to be clear this is not some conspiracy theory or fanciful modern speculation of which there is so much rampant in metaphysical circles today. This background was in fact revealed by French-speaking Catholic priests themselves in public text which they wrote in the early 1900s. The most famous of these writers being Abbe Mermet from Switzerland, who revealed many practical vibrational techniques to the public in his book titled in French, Comment J'opère, or in English, How I Work, which then appeared in multiple languages and was titled in English, Principles and Practice of Radiesthesia. Radiesthesia, meaning the ability to detect subtle radiations, became the modern name for the rebirth of these ancient vibrational techniques. Once these techniques were made available to the public for the first time through the writings of these French priests, then scientists and doctors in France began to use these techniques for their own research. French medical doctors created the system of medical radiesthesia in which they were able to detect the precise vibrational quality of any patient. What they called their personal wavelength, which is as unique to each individual as their fingerprints are. And then to use this to find exactly where in their body specific problems existed. And then to find exactly which vibrational sources the person was exposed to, which created and fed the illness. And then to find which vibrational sources could reverse or cure the illness. Their work was tremendously successful, soon being adopted by thousands of medical doctors across Europe by the late 1930s. Large congresses were held where doctors shared their new techniques and successful applications for supposedly incurable cases. Because these powerful vibrational methods are almost forgotten today, I created an online course entitled Personal Wavelength, which teaches the essential keys to the medical radiesthesia techniques used by the European doctors in the 1900s. While I make no medical claims for this work, I believe it's important that these hidden techniques are now available for everyone to explore and to use to empower their own self-care. Louis Turin was a professor of radio wave engineering and an instructor to the French military who knew that humanity's understanding of the invisible waves of energy around us was only in its infancy. He understood that just as humanity did not even know of the existence of radio waves until a mechanical detector for them had been created, that there were also a huge range of invisible waves which affect health, energy, and consciousness, which are too subtle to be picked up by standard electromagnetic equipment. To be able to detect and map these invisible subtle vibrations for the first time, Turin realized that the radiesthesia techniques from the French priests could be used to accomplish this research. Turin created a scientific pendulum with magnetic needles mounted to either side of a spherical body. The direction of the compass needles on the Turin pendulum allowed the pendulum to detect the movement of invisible waves which could not be detected by standard electromagnetic equipment. Now that he could detect and track these invisible life force energies for the very first time, Turin conducted research to see how to identify those energies which created health versus those which create illness and death. 
Turin had discovered an important method to start to identify the invisible energies that harm the health of living beings, which were completely unknown to us previously. With the new ability to test the direction of wave movement as a rough guide to toxicity, Turin then needed to identify the complete spectrum of all these invisible energies which are too subtle to be picked up by standard electromagnetic detectors. Turin created the foundation of what we can call today the universal vibrational spectrum. Using the principle of angular refraction, just as in modern optics, we know that the angle of refraction of white light in a prism determines the wavelength and the visible color of an electromagnetic wave. Turin was able to create pendulum detectors using various angles to detect roughly 11 bands of invisible life energies. At the ends of the spectrum were black and white, with indications that there was some further mysterious 12th energy at this alpha and omega point. The connected beginning and end points, which he at first referred to as infra-black and infra-white. Turin had now created the foundation for the universal vibrational spectrum. It's important to understand that although each of these bands are given the names of colors in the original French research, that visible color in light or physical matter is only one way that these invisible energies can manifest. As we will see in our next episode with modern biogeometry from Egypt, each of these vibrational bands can manifest as a completely invisible wave, or they can manifest as a shape in geometry or they can manifest as a sound, or in a numerical sequence, or as an angle, or as a proportion, etc. Color, shape, sound, number, angle, proportion are all quality scales through which vibrational powers can manifest for practical application, in addition to their appearing as simply invisible energy waves. Turin then conducted decades of amazing research which has been almost forgotten today. For example, he solved the mystery of why some temple locations in Egypt had the hieroglyphs on their temple walls defaced. He showed in his remarkable 1943 book, whose title in French translates to English as The Scientific Control of All Natural Waves. He showed that the hieroglyphs, when they were complete on the temple walls, with their boundaries intact, emanated a powerful energy wave from the shape of the hieroglyph. However, if the boundary of the shape was cut, as was done in some later time with a chisel, as seen here, then the hieroglyphs became energetically neutralized and were no longer effective energetically. He had discovered that hieroglyphs actually create energy emanations and were not simply for abstract communication. Turin discovered that the reason for the tradition that an upright cross was a sign of beneficial spiritual powers and an inverted cross a sign of harmful powers was that when the form of the cross is inverted, it reverses its energetic spin direction and thereby changes its effect on living energy fields. Turin also found a hidden energetic reason why seven was considered a holy or sacred number. He found that if he carefully drew a circular spiral from the outside to the inside with exactly seven full clockwise turns, it would then emanate a powerful carrier wave energy. 
that could broadcast energy from one location to another. Turin showed a wide range of energy effects from artifacts gathered from China, India, and other classical traditions, in addition to Egypt, showing the level of hidden energy science found in these ancient traditions that can now be rediscovered through vibrational radiesthesia. Other French researchers followed up on Turin's early discoveries, completing the vibrational spectrum around 1933. Chalmeret and de Belazal were two researchers who investigated further the mysterious energies in between the ends of Turin's fundamental vibrational spectrum. By moving the spectrum from linear to circular, Chalmeret and de Balazal were able to discover a great spiritual secret, hidden for thousands of years, but known to the ancient Egyptians and other great cultures. A very powerful invisible energy which completes the vibrational spectrum between the black and white bands. This powerful wave appears opposite the green band energy in a circular configuration, leading to their naming this mysterious energy negative green. This name led to some confusion because in reality, it's a completely invisible energy which never appears as a green color. It's the polar opposite of the visible green energy quality. If negative green were to appear to visible sight, it would appear as gray. The same as colorblind people today can only see colors as shades of gray because humanity does not yet have a sense organ to perceive the true nature of negative green. Chamaray and de Balazal were fascinated by the power of the invisible negative green wave and how it was used in ancient Egypt. They found it had the power to penetrate thicknesses of lead that cannot be penetrated by x-rays. Negative green has the ability to penetrate straight through solid matter, similar to neutrinos in modern physics, which pass straight through matter and straight through the Earth itself. Negative green is a carrier wave on which other vibrational powers can be carried, similar to music or speech being carried on a radio wave. Like every one of the 12 bands of the vibrational spectrum, negative green has both beneficial waves, which tend to propagate horizontally, and detrimental waves, which tend to propagate vertically within the band. The beneficial waves are essential to all life. They are the conduction power behind all life force itself. They may be the actual energy described in the Indian Vedic tradition as the divine feminine moving force of God, the Shakti. Shakti is ultimate energy, just as her consort Shiva is ultimate consciousness. The detrimental waves of negative green are the waves which literally bring death. Chalmeret and de Balazal found that the ancient Egyptians were the masters of this hidden energy science. They found that the Ankh is not just an abstract symbol that means life, as we're often told today, but rather it's an actual geometric energy projector designed to transmit beneficial waves of negative green from its base. The top of the Ankh projects the green energy quality, and the bottom projects negative green. These are two opposite powers. In ancient Egypt, the beings shown on the temple walls were called netters, meaning the conscious forces of nature. In old Egyptian depictions, the netters are shown interacting with human beings through geometric forms, which are projectors of precise energies. In some depictions, 
the netter is holding the base so that the top of the ankh is held towards a person, which then projects the positive green energy towards them, often projecting that ray into the brain of a person through the sinus cavity. In other depictions, the bottom of the ankh is used to project the negative green wave. Chamaray and de Balazal proved and popularized a key discovery of French radiesthesia, that geometric forms project powerful subtle energy waves, which they called shape-caused waves. With the rediscovery of the complete universal vibrational spectrum, with new tools to detect and differentiate all the different bands, the different powers of these subtle energies, the French researchers had reclaimed the lost ancient energy science behind sacred geometry. De Balazal noted that the curse of the pharaohs, which was linked to the mysterious deaths of those who opened up the ancient tombs in Egypt, was in fact linked to energetic booby traps left to protect the tombs, often involving projections of toxic negative green vibrations. The waveform of Luxor was one form which could apparently defend a person from the vertical negative green concentrations which were used to protect the ancient Egyptian tombs. De Balazal analyzed the shapes on a clay ring which was discovered by a French Egyptologist in the Valley of the Kings. As fate would have it, that Egyptologist, the Marquis de Grand, was the grandfather of de Balazal's wife. De Balazal asserted that wearing this ring was the secret of how the Egyptologist Howard Carter survived the opening of the tomb of Tutankhamun, which had an inscription at the entrance stating that harm would befall anyone who violated the tomb. Soon after opening the tomb, Carter's partner, Lord Carnivon, died from a strange malady, followed by the deaths of around 18 other members of the team in strange circumstances within two years of the opening. De Balazal named the shapes on the ring the wave form of Luxor, which created a powerful protective shape-caused wave, and the ring itself became popularly known as the Atlantis Ring. After conducting vibrational analysis of the ring, De Balazal created a straight bar version of the shapes on the ring to create powerful protective forces against toxic vertical wave of negative green concentrations. And he then termed the straight bar version the harmonizer of Luxor. One of the major discoveries which Chamaray and de Balazal popularized in their first book from the 1930s was that hemisphere or pyramid forms both project strong concentrations of negative green from their base. Whether the projections are primarily beneficial or detrimental types of negative green depends on design aspects and the material that it's made of. Just as a hemisphere is a sphere cut in half, and its base then projects negative green, so a pyramid is an octahedron cut in half, and the base of the pyramid is also a negative green projector. In fact, what became known in the 1960s as pyramid power is in fact the mysterious ancient negative green wave. French discoveries in vibrational radiesthesia rediscovered the real nature of this mysterious energy within the complete context of the universal vibrational spectrum after thousands of years of this knowledge being kept secret. Chamaray and de Balazal did extensive research into the use of hemisphere shapes to project negative green, 
as is shown on the cover of their book from the 1930s. So it was with the discovery in the early 1930s of negative green as the missing band between black and white that the universal vibrational spectrum was completed. This is the full spectrum for the vital life force level above the physical plane, just as the periodic table is the spectrum of all physical matter. With the identification of this full etheric spectrum, a new age of vibrational science and healing breakthroughs has now become possible. Just as modern physical science can perform electromagnetic spectral analysis of periodic table elements, so the universal vibrational spectrum can detect all the subtle energy components of any person, place, or thing. For more information on cymatics, cymotherapy, and practical training in radiesthesia and the vibrational spectrum, please see the resources at my website, www.vesica.org. Join us for our next episode, where we will explore how this incredible energy science reclaimed by the French radiesthesiast returned to Egypt, creating the breakthrough modern energy science of biogeometry. See you then. Good night under the wire, everybody. We'll take a break. And we'll be back with our brother Richard. Uh, look at the stars. And Tanya and Kate Pacha and Musica. <laughs> and let, the, let the show begin after a short break. See about 10 or so. Mm-hmm. Namaste. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. All right, here we go. <laughs> it's the 3rd of September. Uh, yeah. And the moon's in Sagittarius, first square to the sun, which is new last Saturday. So we got that big square going on. Oh. And then we've got Mercury at 8 degrees Libra, and it's going to go retrograde this week. I don't know what day it's going to be stationary, but uh, it's going to go retrograde. I just haven't taken the time to go hunt it. Moon's and sun's in 12 Virgo. Happy birthday, all you 12 Virgoans. And Venus is at 29 Leo. And uh, the sun is still, sun square Mars at 9 Gemini, uh, sun trying the north node, Venus is in conjunct Pluto, hmm, I don't know what to do about that, Venus is opposite Saturn, but not for much longer. Because it's at 29, Saturn's back at 21, Aquarius. We got, uh, okay, we got Venus is uh, not really square to Mars. But this 
chart says it still is a little bit, so that's uh, it's almost almost out of out of range of a square. Mercury trine Mars eight Libra to nine Gemini. Mercury, yeah, Mercury trine Mars. Yakety yak, yak yak yak. All the politicians are yak yakety yakking. Um, let's see here. Okay, sun is uh, getting close enough to call it a trine to Uranus, which is still at nineteen. And it's going on. Okay, now from Uranus. God, it's uh, trying to Pluto, but that's 10 degrees from exact, but uh, it's trying by sign, but not by degree. North Node is backed up to 16 Taurus, so there's the destiny for all the newborns. And what else we got here? Uh... Saturn is still square Uranus, and uh, that's actually closer. Kaipatra spoke about that Saturn thing, you know, and Uranus thing, and all those retrogrades and directs and back and forth and back and forth. Okay, uh, Chiron is at 16 Aries. And Jupiter is at seven Aries, and of course they're they're retrograde along with all the other outer planets. Uh, uh, moon's going to square Neptune this week. Uh, basically tomorrow it's going to square Neptune. Um, we've got we've got Pluto. Sextile Neptune, and that's uh, that's twenty twenty seven, and Neptune is twenty five. And uh, that's pretty much. We've got the big. So the big guys are Saturn opposite Venus. Saturn square Uranus and Sun trine Uranus and Venus square Mars and Mercury opposite Jupiter. Oh, there's a yeah, that that was and it's right now tonight. It's it's right on the uh, on the horizon. Mercury is just gonna set here in in a few minutes. And Jupiter is going to rise in the east here in a few more minutes. So um, that's uh, pretty much anything. So Mercury opposite Jupiter and Venus opposite Saturn and Sun opposite Mars. Venus, uh, yeah. All right, that's it for, for right now. Go check out Capacha, and uh, we'll be back in a minute. Over yeah, to you. He's about 24 minutes. Okay. Here we go. He's out in, looks like an Irish castle or something. 
I'm not sure. Here we go. <laughs> This is Kaipacha with the Weekly Paleo Report for August 31st, 2022. I have made it to Avalon. Indeed, I stand now upon Chalice Hill. Avalon. Where legend has it that Jesus, Joseph Arimathea, sailed up to this hill where the ley lines cross. This is the heart chakra it is. of England, some say Europe, some say the world. Chalice Hill, Jesus and Joseph, the legend has it, placed the Holy Grail upon this hill. That is the chalice. So, as with so many other places that are amazing on planet Earth, it's windy. Sound comes through. I'll speak up a little bit. And uh, today we have Venus in conjunct Neptune, the spirit. The moon has just gone into Scorpio. That's at the beginning of this report. And Mars is in sextile to Jupiter. That's exact tomorrow. Venus making a yod with Neptune and Pluto, that in conjunct exact tomorrow, Venus to Pluto. And the moon makes a T-square. It conjuncts the south node and, of course, opposes Uranus and squares Saturn. We can maybe talk about that a little bit. There is the Tor. Yes. What else is going on? Well, Mercury is moving there through Libra in opposition to Jupiter. It's exact on Friday. And by Sunday, Venus moves into Virgo. Yes, indeed. I will be talking about that a little bit. And Friday, the moon moves into Sagittarius for the weekend. On Sunday, then, into Capricorn, whereby Tuesday, she's going to try Uranus and conjunct Pluto. So we have, it's, this is, uh, like I say, it's the first quarter moon. Okay, the moon opposes Mars and squares the sun on Saturday. So I'm here making my way to the top of the hill. Miraculously, there is a little break in the wind. Yes, son of a gun. I can give you a whole shot of the surrounding Mists of Avalon. Okay. Let me look at the camera if I can find a nice windless spot. <laughs> and talk to you a little bit about what's going on. Okay. I'm going to try to pull this off. All these sheep around here. So I get off the plane yesterday. And I, 
check in and I look at the aspects and I come up with a mantra in the middle of the night and I kind of got it all squared about what I'm going to say. And then I, uh, and then I come out to Chalice Hill. And whoa, uh, it makes everything that I was going to say rather, uh, not so important. The heart chakra of planet Earth, the heart chakra of Europe, the, the meeting of the ley lines. And I'm going to talk about Mercury and the left brain. Going to try to weave this together a little bit. <laughs> man, oh man. But you know, the sun uh, is in Virgo and Venus is going into Virgo. And this is, you know, Virgo Scorpio territory here. This is the heart. This is the feminine. This is Gaia. And uh, I just feel the energy here is very powerful. It's a, it's like the wounded heart, the sacred heart. It's uh, there's some heaviness, and I feel some sorrow and some grief here. And I'm going to uh, just carry on because there are other aspects. These other aspects is this uh, a very powerful Mercury in Libra, okay, in opposition to Jupiter, in a trine to this Mars in Gemini. And I think I said before, we you know we have Mars in Gemini until next March, right? Goes up to twenty five and back and forward, and so we have you know Mars in Gemini, the desire to learn. The desire to really, uh, the, the curiosity to go into all the different uh, understandings. And it is also about, like in the mantra I speak of today, yes, networking and designing and, you know, commerce and business and negotiations. And this is a very interesting time period with, you know, Mercury rules Gemini, Mercury rules Virgo, the sun and Venus, both moving into Virgo, okay, is all disposited by Mercury. This is a very mercurial time period. And the sextile between Mars and Jupiter is very, uh, oper- you know, there's a lot of opportunity here. This is a very good time for getting a lot done. And yeah, a lot done on, on many different levels. And we just want to really look at the different levels of work, of healing, of purifying, of perfecting, like it says, engineering, thinking, communicating, sharing our thoughts with other people, planning things out. Let's not forget this uh, Saturn up here, okay? You know, coming in, uh, you know, moving through Aquarius for two and a half years until next March restructuring and reforming the future Aquarius and wherever this falls in your chart is your personal future so this is a time for laying plans making negotiations 
setting things in motion. Virgo is about work. It's about service. It's about us giving our gifts to the world and healing the world. And and so I really encourage you to take these opportunities. Okay, you know, this Mars is like charge. Go out there. You know, write that blog, write that letter, make that website, make that connection, uh, you know, network together with other people for community, for a parallel society, for, you know, you know, some new, new future to emerge and evolve during this time. Because why? Mercury goes retrograde. <laughs> September 9th. So, you know, it's like opportunity only knocks once. Is that <laughs> if it's not one opportunity, it's another. I mean, don't you know, I don't want to give you the idea that it's now or never. But I do want to give you a little oomph, 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 oomph. And so, you know, I really uh, I, I need to clarify some things because I know that in previous Bailey reports and I know that when I do, uh, you know, readings and teach courses and everything like that, I tend in general to slam the left brain. <laughs> I slam Mercury, <laughs> the monkey mind. I call it mental masturbation. <laughs> I say that it is just ruled by the ego because it lives in the third dimension, okay, of plus and minus, good and bad and right and wrong and that, and we are so much more than that, and and we are infinite spiritual beings, and so we don't we want to still the mind, calm the thoughts, clean it all out so that we can get our downloads. And then we can, you know, uh, you know, uh, open our third eye and blah, 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 quack, quack. <laughs> but let's, I'm gonna, I, I, I've been rethinking that <laughs> with this time period, with this Pele report. And I came up with the image. Okay, just think that if you landed on a planet with no oxygen, and you wanted to go out and explore that planet. But you had to wear an oxygen tank in order to breathe, to explore that planet. Mm-hmm. You could complain. You could bitch and moan and you could go, you know what? You know, the, this darn oxygen tank, I don't want to be taking it. I don't want to use it. It's a drag. It's heavy. It's not natural. Blah, 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 <laughs> But what? You'd be stuck in your little spaceship. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to explore that planet without that oxygen. So let's just really consider that our left brain our mercury, our ego thoughts of separating, of judging, of, you know, labeling, of naming, of uh, all the things that the left brain does <laughs> at the instructions of the ego. Yes, they may not be of the highest spiritual order. But guess what? That highest spiritual order wants to manifest 
in the third dimension, not, not, you know, I mean, we live, our bodies are in the third dimension. We were born into a material body in a material world. So I'm really wanting at this time, like I say in the mantra, our left brain is essential. We need to communicate with words. We need to structure our thoughts. We need to communicate with other separate physical bodies. <laughs> you know, we can tap in on a soul level and psychically and, uh, you know, feeling level, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, the, the mercury gives clarity. It's an air. It's airy. And Mercury came as the messenger of the gods. He would deliver all the messages to humanity from Zeus and Neptune and all the, all the gods whenever they wanted to communicate. Oh, there goes the wind blowing my camera over, dude. Knock it off. <laughs> Speaking of planet Earth, all this place. Anyway, so what I'm thinking of here now, what I just wanted to bring forward, is there is a time and a season for everything. And I think that our, you know, coming into mastery now, I want to speak about mastery. Scorpio has to do with mastery. The moon just went into Scorpio an hour ago. What is mastery? Mastery is being able to summon up out of our toolbox, out of our inner reality, Whatever is needed at the moment, at the time. So if we look at the 12 mystery schools, we all have within us a ram. Yeah, with horns that's ready to charge and start and go and just ram itself into the future. We all have within us a bull with four stomachs that wants to chew and chew and sit and digest and experience itself through digestion and comfort and physical sense world. And we all have within us a couple of twins, coyote, trickster, joker, silver tongue devil, okay, that, you know, just wants to just like... You know, check it out and mess it up and goof around and is the eternal youth. And we all have within us a Cancerian inner child that is sensitive, psychically intuitive, picking up on our feelings and emotions, scared, wanting to be held and nurtured and protected. And we all have within us a passionate lion that wants to grab center stage and be the king or the queen of the jungle and express its power. And we all have within us a pure virgin that wants to separate the wheat from the chaff, purge, purify, and perfect ourselves. We all have within us a Libra that wants to communicate, share, come into relationship and do the dance, right? And, and really share ideas and thoughts and objectively bring some balance, some harmony 
some social justice, some equality to our relationships. And we all have within us a scorpion that wants to kill us, that knows we can't take our ego with us, that knows we need to release and let go of our old selves and our old skin in order to merge and unite and connect with something, some powerful force that's greater than us in order to evolve. And we all have within us a Sagittarian guru. Yes, a seeker of the Holy Grail that's that wants to expand our consciousness. Go into the foreign Go on the quest, understand natural law. And we all have within us a Capricorn authority, an inner mother and father that really is the wise elder that is objective and mature and does the right thing out of integrity. And we all have within us a rebel Prometheus that wants to break out of the established conventional norms and go into science and technology in the future and like really take off and open that third eye, liberating ourselves from this limited reality. And we all have within us two fish the Piscean fish swimming in opposite directions. One that is innocent, loving, connected with all that is, kind of just landed and come in with lots of dreams and fantasies. And the other going in the other direction, yes, that is the mystic that's gone all the way around the circle and returned and stays in stillness serenity, one with all that is. So we have, each one of us, these 12 different archetypes within us. Our psyche is reflected through each of these mystery schools. And there is a time and a place to pull up the ram. And there's a time and a place to pull up the coyote. And there's a time and a place to put the coyote down. (laughs) And pull up the guru, the teacher, the wise one. And there's a time to let go of being the wise one. And surrender to the ultimate truths and mysteries of the universe. Yes, with the scorpion. So there is just, this is mastery. This is the dance. This is is really coming into, you know, our core essential. That we are all of these and we are, you know... We are beyond all these. Infinite spirit. But this is a time, like I'm saying, I'm doing the Pele Report this week. (laughs) And I suggest that this week (laughs) you pull up your eternal youth, your coyote trickster. And you, you know, write up those agreements and you negotiate and you connect and you meet different people and you start putting together the dots and making your plans and, you know, putting up some contracts, writing your books or, you know, doing your blogs. 
This is a great time where opportunity abounds to really bring a lot of our Neptunian, Sagittarian ideas into manifest reality. We have this mutable cross, right? Pisces to Virgo, Sagittarius to Gemini. Both Gemini and Virgo are ruled by Mercury. So we have Mars in Gemini, Sun and soon-to-be Venus in Virgo. And we have Jupiter and Neptune as being, you know, the, the, the polarities that we really... What we want to do is we want to draw in our Jupiter guru and we want to draw in our loving heart force Neptune and, and fill our minds, fill our thoughts... Okay, with wisdom teachings, with spiritual truths, realities, and practices to really bring the multi-dimensional nature of our totality into third-dimensional material manifestation through our ego, through our bodies, and through our lives. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, baby. Wrap your head around that one. Ow! So, yes, I say my left brain is essential. It's the key to my success. Negotiation, engineering, designing and thinking hold the answers I need for the test. The test. What's the test? I would say that the test is if we can actually accomplish what it is our souls came to earth for. Our evolutionary journey. Our evolutionary intentions. To bring a new aspect of creation into manifestation so that source through us expands its observation, essence, reality. You can see that one. Is that thought forming on your own? So one more time to send you on your way. This time that my left brain is essential. It's the key to my success. Negotiation, engineering, designing, and thinking hold the answers I need for the test. So get down. Get down. Check it out. Write it out. Talk it out, plan it out, and that's the way forward for this week. So, wishing you the very best. Namaste. Aloha. So much love.
out a little bit easier. Next Saturday, the moon will be moving at, uh, yeah, 14 degrees per day. So, uh, yep. All right, let's go. Let's go for a Pisces full moon coming up in a week. Here we go. Go. Here, wealth astrologist, welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the astrology and numerology. And in this case, it's the really gorgeous, powerful Pisces full moon with the moon conjunct Neptune, meaning it's merged with Neptune. And Neptune is the ruler of Pisces. So this is very exciting news and there's a lot to cover today because Pisces is the ruler of the age, the Piscean age for the last 2000 years that we are moving from. So it's very important when this sign shows up in a big way to understand the dynamics. And in this case, we're also going to look at Virgo because the sun is opposite the moon, as it happens in every full moon, and will be in Virgo. Now, the degree will be 17 degrees. 17 is the immortality number in numerology, and it really indicates that some very significant events are going to come to pass in your life and in world events in the month following the full moon and around the full moon especially. So the full moon takes place at 10.59 a.m. on September 10th, and that's universal time. That'll be 5.59 a.m. Eastern Time, New York, and 2.59 a.m. Pacific Time in L.A. And, of course, the moon will be in Pisces, sign of endings. It's the final sign embracing that we are all one, letting go, forgiveness, unconditional love, compassion. And of course, you don't need to be a Pisces or a Virgo to benefit from this reading because you have this full moon somewhere in your astrology birth chart. So we all benefit whenever an important moment in astrology occurs. So Pisces is very artistic, very imaginative, intuitive, and connected to music as well. It's the dreamer. It's about we are all one, merging everything into source. And because it is the final sign, it indicates a bridging into another life, another reality. So it indicates the death of something and the birth, the rebirth of new energy. There are no boundaries with Pisces. It's the most watery of water signs being ruled by Neptune, which governs the oceans. And so the oceans are expansive and water is the one element that can reach everywhere. So your creative imagination reaches everywhere. It seeks to be expressed and it feels limitless and you are just sensing that you want to explore new dimensions and connect directly with source. 
again, we are all one. We come from the same source. So you want to trust in that connection. You want to surrender to it. You want to appreciate what shows up, whatever it is, and embrace it. Now, the date, 10th of September in 2022, that date is important as well because it adds up to 16. It'll be a 16 universal date. And 16 is the number of inspiration. And it figures in greatly because Pisces tunes into that quality. But also there is going to be a trine from the sun to Uranus and from the moon. There'll be a sextile to Uranus. So there's a wonderful triangle, which you can see here between Uranus and the moon and the sun. And Uranus is also about inspiration. It is about breaking free from the old and discovering something that's brand new. And 16-7 brings that surprising element that Uranus brings. So be prepared for some unexpected changes. And the way to navigate them is always with your heart, with your intuition. You will always receive what you need. Guidance will come through in any given moment. Now, the 10th of September is the instant manifestation number of love and light. And that also is important, as you'll see in a moment, because the the love, the unconditional love and compassion that Pisces represents is going to be activated within you in terms of you acknowledging who you are and seeing that that is the key to feeling connected in a loving way and feeling loved in general. Now, Virgo, where the sun is at 17 degrees, Virgo likes to discover, to research, to be meticulous. Virgo governs your daily life. So what you do on a day-to-day basis, it governs healing and health. It governs the bounty of earth, the crystals. And Virgo likes to have control. It can sometimes be perfectionistic, so be aware of that, or micromanage. Pisces sees the grander scheme of things, so it, it, it has like this unlimited vision and sense of surrender, whereas Virgo likes to go in and sometimes even meddle because it is so invested in getting it right and finding the truth of whatever it is. So, There's a sense of musicality as well. There's a sense of with Pisces living in harmony and with Virgo being uh, connected to healing and health. And a sense of peace is very important in all of this. Pisces, the watery sign, is the floating in the river, the surrendering to the current, never resisting what is natural. And current, when you don't resist the current, you are in the here and now. You are connected to source and you're allowing yourself to flow. So being present, current, means being in the flow. There's also a sense of patience with Pisces. Uh, Pisces just allows time and events to unfold, whereas Uranus is more of a I want to get things done now planet. And so this trying, this triangle to Uranus does push the energy forward. It does bring those unexpected situations But then Pisces allows you to step back and breathe. So let's look more closely at Pisces in terms of it governs the hidden. It governs secrets. It governs 
what is unseen. And so it governs psychic abilities, intuitive abilities, the unconscious, psychology. And in the physical realm, it governs prisons and hospitals, what you don't see, what happens behind closed doors. And the shadow side of Pisces is connected to being in a daze, in a haze, which can come through addiction, through drugs. And so there is a sense of separation in the shadow side expression of Pisces that brings illusion that you are not naturally able to heal yourself, for example, or that you are helpless. So the victimization side of Pisces is part of the shadow side. So we need to be extra vigilant to manifest the positive expression of Pisces and Virgo. And that requires being really present in your heart, in your intuition. So to to be inspired, to be uh, compassionate as well so you're not in a judgment. Because as soon as you go into judgment, you're in your mind and you lose the connection to your heart. You want to go to a place where you're looking at how do I feel honored? How do I feel heard? And especially with this Pisces energy. So you're giving that energy back to yourself. You're not escaping it, ignoring it, right? Stopping it. <laughs> you are basically exploring how do I need to give all of those things to myself? Virgo and Pisces are very connected to giving because Virgo is a sign of service, being of service. And by honoring yourself and by acknowledging yourself, you are serving your highest good. Because then when you acknowledge when you are being courageous, let's just say you did something that you usually don't do, when you speak up for yourself, you acknowledge that you basically are allowing that expression to be acknowledged by others in you and it feeds on itself. So maybe you express to somebody how you truly felt about something and it's new to you and you did it in a very compassionate way. You did not judge the person or make them feel bad about something they did. Previously, you may have been very passive, not spoken up or even sneaky, like approached it from a very um, sort of behind the scenes kind of angle and never addressed it head on in a compassionate way, of course. And so now you chose to step into your power and you clearly expressed it compassionately and not making the person feel guilty about it. And this was a new approach. It's really important to acknowledge and celebrate what you did because that celebration and acknowledgement is you reinforcing the energy and you saying, hey, I like this, right? So it's it may seem like a small thing. You know, Virgo is about small things. <laughs> Virgo is your daily life. So, you know, it's, it's very important to acknowledge those small, uh, wonderful, uh, self-growth, amazing moments that you're consistently making, course correcting throughout the day. So acknowledging actions and emotions and thoughts that you're expressing is going to deepen your compassion towards yourself and towards others. And it always begins here first. So you see it reflected in the outside world with people once you acknowledge it here, right? You love and appreciate how you've just 
accomplish something that in a new way and you celebrate that and then, hey, lo and behold, uh, it's celebrated by people and reflected back to you. And when you do that, you're going to experience the miracle of your relationships are going to change because you're going to see people as a reflection of yourself and that this reflection that you have of others is your perception of yourself. So anytime you see yourself in others, you realize, oh, that's how I perceive me. And you stop judging them. So in this case, if you feel your own inner worthiness and inner love and deservedness, you acknowledge that compassion within you, then you're sending a signal to the world and to others that creates an energy exchange that you want to engage in. I like this feeling. I want to engage in more of it. And this is the trying to Uranus from the sun and the sextile to Uranus from the moon is that signal, sending the signal of this is what I want now for myself. This is my future, right? Uranus rules the future. So it will happen that way. The other thing about Pisces is it dissolves. And the moon in Pisces is emotional stuff just flows and you can easily let it go. And one of the biggest emotions to dissolve with Pisces is, and the full moon, is anger. Anger can really be hard on your physical body, your heart center, your mind. It zaps you of a lot of energy and it disrupts the connection, the conscious connection to source. Of course, your connection to source is never stopped, but being conscious of it is really the key. So anger can do that. And Pisces is all about forgiveness, forgiving others and that doesn't necessarily mean you have to walk up to somebody and say that you forgive them. It basically is you acknowledging them as a spark of the divine. You are connected now to acknowledging that spark of divine in you. And so it's natural to see that spark in others. And then you have compassion for them. Then you realize that whatever that moment was that you were angry about or upheld the anger for a while, that that other person was only capable of responding in the way they did at that time. If they could have responded differently, they, they most likely would have. And the most important thing, you gained something from that experience because you learned to recognize something that is serving you now. It's like a contrast, right? The actual contrast that was created in that moment that precipitated the anger within you was made clear. And you realize that you also have this inner work to do. So basically Virgo and Pisces, they help you see that you can be of service in every experience that you have in your daily life. And as soon as you see that, you step back into your power. You're no longer a victim, which is the shadow side of Pisces. Forgiveness becomes easy. And that includes forgiving yourself for all the times you may not have stepped up in the way that you feel was the highest way of addressing a situation. So remember, too, there are always these old programs that are running in all of us that can make us defensive, that can make us aggressive, and that can make us impatient. And so it's very important to always forgive 
yourself for not being present in the way that you'd like to be. And the thing is that acknowledgement turns into a lesson. The acknowledgement itself turns into a growth experience. You clearly see that was what I needed to learn. And now I can see that. And it's because I experienced the contrast of what I don't want, which is, by the way, symbolized by the opposition. We need contrast, light and dark to see what we want and what we don't want. And now I have a new opportunity in this moment to move forward and embody that new frequency and to try it again and get better at it. So that's another key theme with Virgo. Virgo is very meticulous. Virgo practices things. And you can't master anything without practicing. Just like a musician practices not once, but over and over again, right? If you're a concert violinist, for example, you need to practice and then you get more and more into the subtleties of things. And in the same way, we need to practice learning about our thoughts and our emotions and their impact and grounding whatever we find into physical life, putting it into practice. So the more you practice, the more you become aware of all the subtleties. For example, you it throughout the practice, you realize the differences between different frequencies. Uh, you then adjust, you make changes, you don't hang on to the past. You always remember the past is over with. You can't change it. It's done. But you can change the future and you can embody that new frequency now. And that, again, is that trying sextile to Uranus. The planet of change in the future is Uranus. It's pointing this out exactly in this full moon. Pisces is a dreamy sign. It's watery. So, And, and the sun in Virgo is about healing. So there's a sense of balance with the full moon of bringing your energy into equilibrium. And with the Pisces impact, it's very important to be near water or drink more water or allow tears to flow, to listen to water through a fountain, uh, whatever the case, or, or beautiful music that that is very watery like Debussy and Ravel. And so a lot of pain and trauma that you may be experiencing as the world shifts, right, is simply generated from this lack of feeling, of, of loving, of being compassionate. And so if you can't forgive yourself and love yourself, there's no way you're going to forgive and love others. So it really begins at home and know that others are always a mirror to you. So you're going to project your limiting beliefs onto someone else until you see, oh my gosh, you know, what I'm projecting is literally what I need to see in myself, right? It's, it's just always this energy exchange that leads back to you, right? It doesn't lead to them. They have their own discovery, self-discovery to, to, to experience. So take this time during the full moon in Pisces to always return to love, always return here. Most of what's going on with humanity at this time is that lack of connection to the heart. It's a lack of self-love. And the clear message is right now that it can be changed. Everything can be healed. And that's exactly what you're doing. So loving yourself is really enhanced 
to when you know what your personal code that you were born with, your birthday and your astrology chart, what inspiring messages about you is revealed in that code. And your astronomy birth code, that's your star code. That's the stars, the light connect you back to, to source. And so this whole birth promise that's revealed in your birth blueprint is truly about that reconnection. It's recognizing who you are at soul level. And I've created a free masterclass at starcodeclass.com. It's complimentary. It includes a handout. It's lots of fun. All you need is to set aside about an hour and a half. And it's designed to help you live that life that you have in the most fulfilling, happy way. So go and discover your own star code at starcodeclass.com. Enjoy who you are. Discover who you are and bask in that beauty of your soul code because it will always bring you back to source. And what we do in this class is not only look at the positive, we look at the shadow side too so you're aware of your tendencies and how you can overcome them. So enjoy that class at starcodeclass.com. Have a beautiful, wonderful, healing, uplifting, cleansing, Pisces, full moon, And I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. Ashley Taki, take back to you, Richard. Hello. Hello, Richard. Okay. Well, uh, the audience should know that uh, Tara requested further readings from the secret doctrine that I uh, talked to you all about last week. So uh, we got about five minutes now, and then we'll go over to the uh, conference call. And we'll see how far I can get with this. We accept, Commander. We accept with grace and honor. Thank you, sir. Well, I guess you you, uh, liked the material. And so did some of the others uh, last week. So anyway, what I've done is I put a bunch of bookmarks in here where she starts a section with the, with the stanzas, stanzas from this, uh, this uh, secret book called the Book of Dizan or Dizan. It's, so stanza four is the creation of the first races. <laughs> and this is how it goes. The seven hosts, the will or mind-born lords, propelled by the spirit of life-giving, separate men from themselves, each on his own zone. All right, so there's seven hosts. They each got a, they each got their own zone. 
And then she does a little explanation here. They threw off their shadows, or astral bodies. And for the definition of astral, we're going to use the word electric, or, or etheric. If such an ethereal being as a lunar spirit may be supposed to rejoice in an astral besides a hardly tangible body. In another commentary, it is said that the ancestors breathed out the first man, as Brahma is explained to have breathed out the suras, gods, in parenthesis, when they became asuras from breath. In a third, it is said that they, the newly created men, were the shadows of the shadows. With regard to this sentence, they were the shadows of the shadows. This first process of the evolution of mankind is far easier to accept than the one which follows it. The one and all will be rejected and doubted even by some Kabbalists, especially the Westerns, the Westerners, who study the present effects, but have neglected to study the primary causes. Okay, then. So what they did was they threw off their shadows using their will. They duplicated not exactly their entire self, but they created a very ethereal body. All right. Now we get to the evol- stanza five, the evolution of the second race. The first race were the sons of yoga. Their sons, the children of the yellow father and the white mother. All right, that's solar and lunar. Okay. In the later commentary, this sentence is translated, the sons of the sun, S-U-N, and of the moon, the nursling of ether, or the wind. They were the shadows of the shadows of the Lord's. They, the shadows, expanded. The spirits of the earth clothed them. The solar laws warmed them. L-H-A-S. I.e. preserved the vital fire in the nascent physical form. The breath had life, but had no understanding. They had no fire nor water of their own. This fire is the higher self, the spiritual ego, or that which is eternally reincarnating under the influence of its lower personal selves, changing with every rebirth, full of desire to live. It is a strange law of nature that on this plane, the higher spiritual nature should be in bondage to the lower, 
ego takes refuge in the Atman, the all-spirit, and merges entirely into the essence thereof. The personal ego may goad it to the bitter end. This cannot be thoroughly understood unless the student makes himself familiar with the mystery of evolution, which proceeds on triple lines, spiritual, psychic, and physical. That which propels towards and forces evolution, i.e. compels the growth and development of man towards perfection, is... A, the monad, or that which acts in it unconsciously through a force inherent in itself, and B, the lower astral body or the personal self. The former, whether imprisoned in a vegetable or an animal body, is endowed with, is indeed itself, that force owing to its identity with the all-force, which, as said, is inherent in the monad, it is all-potent on the formless plane. On our plane, its essence being too pure, it remains only potential, but individually becomes inactive. I.e., the rays of the sun, which contribute to the growth of vegetation, do not select this or that plant to shine upon. Uproot the plant and transfer it to a piece of soil where the sunbeam cannot reach it, and the sun will not follow it. So with the Atman. Unless the higher self or ego gravitates towards the sun, the monad, the lower ego or personal self will have the upper hand in every case. For it is this ego, with its fierce selfishness and animal desire to live a senseless life, which is the maker of the tabernacle, as Buddha calls it. Hence the expression, the spirits of the earth clothed the shadow and expanded them. To these spirits belong temporarily the human astral selves, and it is they who give or build the physical tabernacle of man. For the monad and its conscious principle, called manas, M-A-N-A-S, to dwell in. But the solar laws, or spirits, warm them, the shadows. All right, this is a good time to break. Hello. Thank you, Richard. Thank, Thank you. you. So we'll have Rama give everybody the phone numbers where we can go and continue this conversation. And when we get back, we'll start with stanza six, the evolution of the sweat born. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, my God. It's a sweaty oh night in Georgia. The Peace out. Oh, the number is 720-716-7301, and the PIN code is 353863-POW.
Okay, everybody. So we will. What are we doing now? Going to the Trumpers. <laughs> so we'll see you there, everybody. It's very exciting times to be alive. That's all. It is indeed. We'll continue there and come back here to BBS Radio, the best radio in the universe. And we'll be back here at the top of the following hour. All right. Namaste for now. That was sound frequencies to call in the goddess Hathor and the folks from Sirius and Isis. So now we're ready to do the first thing on our list here. Um, Rama? Um, okay. Oh, well, what, what? Did you have something? Um, which? This? Um, I thought we were going to do a recap. Gina Meredith. Yeah, okay, that's what this is. Assessing body energy intelligence. Yes. Um, how can you access the intelligence of your energy body to hear, heal? Jean Slatter, Slatter returns to Gaia to share how subconscious insights held within our bodies help heal both physical and emotional injuries. Slatter uses pendulums with her clients to help dialogue with their uh, energetic bodies about blockages that may exist from relationships with others to relationships with our higher selves. She suggests that, that we can learn to process negative events of the past and undo their effects to reset our mind-body health. All right. This is 40 Nine minutes. Here we go. From an energetic viewpoint, an allergy is an attempt upon the part of the body to protect you against something it thinks is going to harm you. The question is, can we change the body's mind? We have the subtle bodies, we have chakras, we have meridians, but the one that people rarely ever talk about is the mind of the body. If this body's being threatened, I'll do what I have to do to protect myself. Even if someone who hasn't been hanging out on earth comes and does a little fly-by incarnation, you still inherit all of that and it feels like your own. Let's address ancestral memory. You would never associate that with right. an allergy. Right. And yet, any symptom can be related to an allergy based on the meridian. For more than 20 years, she would hardly get out of her pajamas. She went out and got her hair done. She made a beautiful dinner, got her makeup on, wore a pretty dress, had a candlelight dinner, and her husband walks in the door and she says, notice anything different? <laughs> How's this for an outrageous question? Can we be allergic to love? How about money, even God? These are the questions we'll be proposing today as we're back with Gene Slater, our master dowser. The crux of the conversation is that every day we're being affected by our body's own intelligence, which has its own programs and its own preferences, right? 
Absolutely. And I'm so excited to talk about this subject. I love it. It's a fascinating idea that you could be allergic to concepts like love, money, success, power, even God. Uh, who would ever have thought? But by the end of this conversation, not only are you going to understand how such thing could happen, but it's also going to explain the missing piece to to describe some of the the bizarre symptoms and behavioral because there are layers down yes yeah and and when you find yourself going like i don't know what came over me i don't know why i acted like i did and you know things like that you're going to understand why that would happen and furthermore you'll get the key to reversing it and undoing it in an at-home process right that's what we're going to cover here just a little thing and the thing is when we're reacting to life around us and everybody's reacting right now. Oh my God. I mean, we're in a, we're in a period. If you listen to some of the astrologers we've had on and so forth, we're in a period of deconstruction and chaos as we're preparing to advance our consciousness and enter into kind of a, a new agreement, humanity itself, a new agreement with itself, doing things to a higher level, hopefully. But in the interim, it's just chaos and people don't know who to trust and what to trust anymore and you're saying look to the body it never lies <laughs> right so yeah. let's talk about the nature of this body intelligence yeah. okay so when we talk about the anatomy of our energy field we describe all sorts of terms like our conscious mind our subconscious mind our higher conscious we have the subtle bodies which is our physical mental emotional spiritual we have chakras we have meridians we've talked about all those uh divisions and people are familiar with them but the one that people rarely ever talk about is the mind of the body right. the body actually has its own mind and it governs this animal nature body that we have here and its primary program is survival mm-hmm. it is it just like nature it has to survive right and all of nature is seeking to find what is threatening my survival and what is friendly to my survival. Mm-hmm. And so this intelligence that we have in the body is always checking our environment. What is safe for me and what isn't safe for me? Mm-hmm. And that will supersede even the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, even our soul's desire. If this body's being threatened, it'll take over and say, I'll do what I have to do. To protect myself. Indeed. And now you and I have a slightly different view of the subconscious mind. And let's talk about that. Because um, you say even beyond the subconscious. So I view it as a very simple thing. Mm -hmm. The subconscious as a repository for everything that's ever been. Every trauma, everything. Mm -hmm. But that is translated into the physical body. All of that information is translated to the physical matrix. So in a sense, so we're agreeing, I'm just saying... That the subconscious is also programming, programming that trauma into the body to remember, like, ooh, don't like blue things or whatever it is. Yeah. Right. Everything affects everything. Right. Right. Can our emotions affect our physical health? Mm-hmm. Can the subconscious affect our physical health? Everything mm-hmm. is intertwined. Everything affects everything else, except it's important to differentiate. And here's why. We have to know where an injury has occurred. 
in order to heal it. So a perfect example right. is if you have an emotional hurt, you just had a heartbreak, it's not going to do any good to put a Band-Aid over your heart. Or you just had a significant argument with someone and there's a mm-hmm. misunderstanding. It won't do any good to put a Band-Aid on your forehead, right? So you have to address it where the injury and imbalance occurred. So right. knowing that the body has a mind of its own, if you can identify that that's where the injury, the imbalance ultimately occurred, lands, yes, right, then it can be addressed. Right. And so since there's, we're so complex and we have all these different differentiated aspects of ourselves. How do we get to where did right. an injury occur? And that's important because we usually never get to it. And right. people run around with we chronic guess. illness. We guess. Yeah. So the only way we do that is through higher guidance because yeah. your higher guidance is the umbrella yeah. that just has access to every aspect of ourselves and is the umbrella that can say, okay, this is actually where the injury occurred. And yet maybe the timing isn't right, or maybe we have to do something first. We have to go through the subconscious to first get to the mind of the body. So uh, having access to your higher guidance, which mm-hmm. is something that you've had me on before so many times to discuss. That is the most important thing is having access to that so that you can understand where to start. And the tool that I like using the most is, of course, the pendulum, which we've talked about before. Yeah, we're going to show that again. Yeah, Yeah. and, you know, because it's the quickest and most accurate way to get to where do I go with this? I know I have a bizarre symptom or reaction that I want to address. What's the root of it? And I've known you for a lot of years now, and I've known different people you've worked with, and it is always amazing how someone comes in and thinks they have an issue, and you go through the layers and layers, has nothing to do with that. So let's say something has happened that just struck you as almost a a traumatic kind of insult to your emotional body, to your mind, then to your emotions, Translating into the etheric. Now this is a subtle body or the subtle field around the body. And now boom, it's going into your field. Say it's going into your stomach or it's going into your heart. Right. You know, and you think, God, did I eat something? Because <laughs> <laughs> really that's kind of how we approach it. I better yeah. take some Tums and, instead of winding back. What happened that made me, my stomach cramp up and made me feel so awful. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Now, this gets even more complicated because we're talking about epigenetics. We're talking about ancestral memory that is carried within the DNA that we're also inheriting. Now that's a body of dysfunction, pain, joy, everything from generations past that we're born with. Even a newbie, even if someone who hasn't been hanging out on earth comes and does a little fly-by incarnation, you still inherit all of that and it feels like your own. Let's address ancestral memory. That is important and an important aspect of allergies because allergies are inherited. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, so it's part of that survival program of nature. And nature says, okay, what has threatened my survival in the past? Well, if I have learned that valuable information, I want to make sure my next generation is privy to that information Mm -hmm. because it'll save them. It'll save their life. And so we 
pass that information on. Allergies are often inherited. And we'll talk about that later. I have a great example of something that I saw in my daughter and in myself that was clearly inherited. Okay, okay, we'll get to that. So let's talk about Star Trek lessons. The mind of the body is always assessing everything as a threat, but let's talk about Star Trek because you kind of relate something. You're a Trekkie. I am. (laughs) (laughs) And um, forgive me if some of these details are wrong because this is way back when I was a kid watching Mm. this Star Trek, Trek episode, but here's what I remember. An ambassador was welcomed on board the Enterprise And she wore this gorgeous black gown that was covered with sequins, very sparkly. No one knew it, but she was blind. Only Spock was able to figure it out. So these sequins, instead of being sequins, were actually sensors. And because they were checking out the environment and sensing how far away was something, what was the expression on your face and constantly giving her feedback, she could walk around as if she was fully functioning and seeing and no one could tell the difference. Well, that's what our energy field is like. Our energy field is like constantly sensing both external and internal. Is this vibration that I'm bumping up again friendly to me or is it a threat to me? Mm -hmm. And in, um, we're always making that assessment. And that's what I learned from Star Trek all those years ago. <laughs> you know, when I saw the prequel about, it's probably eight, ten years ago now that the prequel came out with Chris Pine showing, you know, yeah, uh, the young William Shatner, right? And then also mm-hmm. young Spock and what happened when his father was advising him before he came to Earth. I had so, such deep emotional reaction. I kept crying through the whole film. And I was looking at how the mind, and I'm just bringing this in out of the blue and see what you do with it. How for me, the emotions are so deep that the mind is tasked with being able to use logic so you can make sense of all this stuff that comes at you. Because it makes no sense. It's, it's not rational. And I get, I'm very deeply emotional, but I use logic. And so to some people, it's like, you seem very cut and dry about this. No, this is a matter of my attempt to have my body and my mind feel calm again. And I know you talk about the mind always, the mind's body always looking to find that place of calm. Right. We're built to handle stress, whether it's emotional, mental, we, our immune systems encounter a bacterial infection, no matter what it is, we're built to handle mm-hmm. stress. And we have a normally functioning uh, system to take care of that. We see the lion and our heart begins to race and the adrenaline starts pumping and we're out of there and then we calm down. And that's natural and normal and important. But that's not happening anymore, Jean. People aren't calming down. <laughs> they are calming down. Right. So what happens though is occasionally the wires get crossed and instead of us being able to take a situation where there's stress and reason through it and calm down, we can, the body of, the mind of the body can make an association and then say, okay, this is part of my stress here and this is why I can't calm down. And it doesn't even have to make logical sense. It could be something as simple as you were eating an apple as a child 
and your mom came in and said, I'm sorry, but someone just ran over your dog. And the stress, emotional stress that you feel inside your body is saying, okay, what is causing this pain? And said, it must be this apple. Now, that's not logical, but to the mind of the body, the body says, apples cause, yeah, yeah, apples cause this pain. And from that point on, the child is now allergic to apples. And the way you term that is a stuck threat that creates a hyper reaction, right? It does. The body thinks it has the gas pedal or the brick on the gas pedal and won't let up. And it needs to be in constant alert toward that vibration. Remember, your energy field is always sensing. So the next time it comes into the proximity of an apple, it begins to react. Right. And some of the strangest Oh, things. we're going to go into some strange <laughs> stories. Well, we already did it in, in the lead-in talking about how could you be allergic to love? Yeah, right. You know, money, God, all of that. Okay, so let's talk. You have a little drip line analogy here, a little garden analogy. Right. This will help you to understand how allergies are created. And then furthermore, uh, how it can create such bizarre symptoms because An allergy is far beyond drippy nose, watery eyes, and a rash on the skin. Mm. Far beyond that. It literally can manifest as any symptom you can think of, including behavioral disorders, including um, headaches, um, beyond the physical, just uh, freaking out over something, having panic attacks. It can be even into fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis, you name it, an allergy can result in any of those symptoms, anything you can name. So here's why. Imagine that a garden and drip lines down the garden. Now, this is analogous to the meridian system. There are 12 meridians that run through the body. There are energies, there are pathways of energy that feed the internal organs. And people will be familiar with that through acupuncture. Absolutely. Acupressure. Imagine that's our drip lines Mm -hmm. of energy that are feeding our internal garden. Now, if you're walking your garden one morning and you notice that one of the plants is drooping, you know there's a blockage in that drip head. So you'd come along, you'd pull the drip head off, clean out the dirt, and get the water going again and revive that plant. But that blockage didn't just happen (laughs) that instant. In fact, it's been there for probably two or three days, and just now you're noticing that plant is having trouble. Or let's say there's a pinch in the hose for the entire line. You might not notice it for years that this row of trees never quite grew as high Mm -hmm. as this row. Mm -hmm. Why? Because over the years, it never got the same amount of water as the other road did. And so here we're back to our internal garden. An allergy affects the meridian system of the body. And it begins to close down the flow of energy to either a drip head, feeding an organ, or the entire line. And so you can see that how, what is, how a mm-hmm. symptom shows up depends on which meridian is affected. Now, most allergies, a lot of ones that we're familiar with, are inhaled or something that we eat. And that affects the lung and the large intestine meridian. And so you have symptoms that are associated with the lungs and the large intestine, which is why you get either the upset stomach or the rash, which, you know, both the 
large intestine and the lungs govern the skin or the asthma attack and all that. But what happens if it's affecting your your pancreas and it's causing low self-esteem or an inability to stand up for yourself? You would never associate that with an allergy. And yet any symptom can be related to an allergy based on the meridian that it's associated with. And you say there are three different ways it starts showing itself. Here, sensitivity, intolerance, and then allergies. And the allergies. So when we have a hyperreaction on the part of the body, it shows up, one, could be a sensitivity. A sensitivity, it means that you are being overexposed to a frequency. And this is easy to see. It's like um, the torture of a drip of water on your forehead. You can withstand that no problem for a certain amount of time. But over time, it can drive you crazy. Um, I'm going to be visiting my mom in Minnesota. She's 100 years old. My brother has warned me that because she's hard at hearing, she has the TV blasting. Right. He said the first couple of weeks, it's fine. <laughs> but no. after that, you're driven crazy. <laughs> and so that causes you to become sensitive to a certain vibration. And this can truly drive you insane. What's the remedy? You reduce the frequency. Right. Simple as that. Right. And it could mean you have to completely remove yourself from the situation right. and that particular vibration for a long period of time to let the mind of the body calm back down. Mm-hmm. The second thing is an intolerance. And intolerance is quite different. It says, I just can't tolerate something. How does that show up? In the body, when we talk about a food intolerance, it means that we're missing an enzyme. For example, you can't process gluten because you don't have the enzyme for it. Or you can't process dairy because you don't have the enzyme for it. But take it to an energy level. It means you don't have an understanding to process the information that's coming at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example would be of uh, a, an acquaintance that was in our circle of friends years ago that um, started telling us about a new boyfriend she had. Mm-hmm. He was everything, <laughs> handsome and rich, okay? And he talked constantly with her about the places they wanted to visit around the world and, um, you know, the homes they were going to buy. They even went down to a truck lot. They were going to pay cash for a truck. Didn't happen. Um, but, you know, she just totally got swept up into, into a this, dream world. Into a dream yeah. world. Yeah. She had everything she could possibly imagine. He asked her to marry him. It was like the rest of us were a little bit jealous, you know, because it's like it's too good to be true. And it was. He was a pathological liar. Mm-hmm. And none of what he talked about was true at all. And then when she started to catch on, he did what a lot of liars will do. He gaslit her. Okay. Yeah, turned it back on her. Mm-hmm. Like, you're the one that's not trusting me. You're the one that's, you know, falsely accusing mm-hmm. me. But over time, what we saw is her whole sense of self diminish right. and be eroded away. Right. She had no way of processing this information. She had never come across someone that was a pathological liar before. Did not know how to deal with it. Didn't know how to process it. And instead, 
it started eating away at who she was and who she thought she was. Did it have physical symptoms that went with it? Oh, her energy went down. She began to have anxiety. Um, yeah, she became a shadow of herself. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, she came across some counselors that helped her to understand what was going on so that she could process it. And this is no small thing because mood disorders are not uncommon at all. And when you encounter someone that either is a pathological liar, mm-hmm. has um, different mood disorders like um, could be um, borderline personality. Yeah, psychotic breaks. Psychotic and not even aware breaks. of it. Yeah. Right, right. If you have no previous awareness of how that manifests and you buy into that, it can completely disrupt your own energy field and cause a threat to the mind of the body. So how does that play into then an an allergic response? So this isn't an allergic response. It's the like an intolerance. Mm -hmm. The body just cannot process. Okay. So what's needed there is understanding. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when I'm working with clients, that's where my pendulum will take me is to help that person understand what is the situation they're in and how is it that they can process the information mm-hmm. that's coming at them? All right. Then the last of the three flat is a flat-out allergy. Yeah. Now, let's redefine an allergy. So from an energetic viewpoint, an allergy is an attempt upon the part of the body to protect you against something it thinks is going to harm you. Mm-hmm. This is the important secret of this whole thing and how it is that I'm going to show you how you can completely undo an allergy. Okay? Because an allergy is about how the body thinks. It doesn't have anything to do with the substance itself, but rather what the body thinks. For an example, is there anything about pollen that's going to kill you? <laughs> No. Is there anything about dust that's going to kill you? Why do so many people have allergies to pollens and to dust? Well, that was really a mystery to me until one day when I read, I uh, listened to a program on TV about the Dust Bowl days. And I had no idea how deadly dust was. People were dying with an inch-thick layer of dust in their lungs. And they were doing everything that they could to protect themselves from dust. You know, boarding up their windows and putting towels around so that hopefully to keep any speck of dust from entering their homes. Because dust would kill you. Now, guess what information gets passed on? Right. And when you think about it, you're talking about in Sahara, Africa, and other arid parts of the world, um, including even the West in America, dust is a threat. It is a threat to people. And so here you're talking about, again, these ancestral patterns, maybe going back as far as, I mean, further generationally than we can understand that dust is a threat. So it's not just like from one or two generations ago, even. Right. So what's the difference between my body, which does not have an allergy to dust, Mm -hmm. and somebody else's body? Mm -hmm. The difference is my body doesn't think there's a threat. Mm -hmm. The other person's body does. So if it's just about how the body thinks, the question is, can we change the body's mind? 
can we right. can we get it to unthink that? Right. And the answer is yes, we can. And we do it in the same way that allergies are created. So an allergy again is created under stress where the body perceives a threat and begins to shut down the meridian system in an effort to protect you from something that it thinks is going to harm you, right? So how do we undo that? We put our body back in the presence of that substance, either by, I usually just write it on a piece of paper Mm -hmm. paper, and I say, here, hold that thought. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because the thought is a vibration, right? And so you hold the thought of dust, And then you open the meridian system and show the body, look, you're in the presence of this. You thought it was going to hurt you, but you're open and you're flowing and you're fine. I guess it wasn't the problem after all that I thought it was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Interesting. So let's talk about the woman. There's a woman I remember you told me about uh, her daughter was allergic to water. Right. And I'm bringing this up for a reason, too. Right. Because how can any... Everything's dependent on water for survival. How can anyone be allergic to water? Exactly. Yeah, so that question came up for me when I was giving a presentation one time and someone in the audience is like, my daughter's allergic to water. That's How could that even be possible? And I said, well... Well, was she trying to con her into having like soda instead of <laughs> <laughs> No, but... Um, the the first response or my first logical response to that would be, well, let's just say in a past generation, there was a near drowning episode. Mm-hmm. What message would get passed on about water? Mm-hmm. It will kill you. And that and surprisingly, there are a lot of I've heard of a lot of kids that are allergic to cold water. So then I think of hypothermia. Yeah. Yeah. And again, the message gets passed on down. Cold water will kill you. Mm -hmm. It was funny because recently I was trying to figure out some things and I had this book. You, you've probably, how many people bought Dale Wilson's book? (laughs) Because we've talked about it on this show. Um, Anyway, this is very complete. And so I was going through all these different things and what could be the cause of this response and water came up. And, and now I didn't go into it any further. And I thought, that's impossible. And right. then you and I had talked about this yeah. situation with water. So I'll go back and, and peel the layer back. But this is interesting because if you don't have something like this that has all this stuff lined up for you to identify and you don't know how to douse, then how are you ever going to unravel this? It can be very difficult, and that's why people spend years and years and years and thousands of dollars trying to get at a root issue. When, if they would learn how to access their higher guidance and mm-hmm. let their higher guidance direct what is going on and, and, and get to the root issue, they can save themselves tons of frustration. They can, and most all my friends have this book, because you turned me on today just ago. You know a lot of them, actually, and they all play with this book, and What's interesting is you, your higher mind could give you this information directly if you were that clear a channel to yourself. But most people are not. No, no. And, and it's very difficult right. to get that amount of refined Absolutely. information from yeah. the higher mind. And and I always say you need a way to verify. Trust but right. verify. <laughs> and I have found that that is true. Yeah. And so everyone's different. I want to talk about this because we brought it up. We'll talk about allergies to money and allergies to God in a minute, but let's just talk about some of the practical elements. So 
So if you're doing this book and you're looking for, say, allergic reactions to things, I'll, the way I do it, which is a little different, because I want to make sure I'm not fooling myself. Some of the stuff is really, it's very specific about, gosh, even kind of amino acids. And here's one about different kinds of normal allergens and such. What I do when I'm using it is I, I don't give it my attention. So when I'm dousing, you have to stay loose. And I close my eyes and I let the book sit in front of me and I just do this. I just check out. And then I wait until I feel a strong, steady, pulse lower it and see what it's dragging over and it is shocking it's always shocking to me (laughs) that your higher mind has hit on the exact right thing it's like how is that possible how is that possible yeah because like recently just as a small example i thought okay if there's some underlying viral pattern going on i wonder what it could be and i didn't have my eyes my contacts in so i couldn't see anything it was all blur to begin with and then i did this process and the first one that came up was SARS. Well, of course, I had COVID. You know, I thought, okay, that's interesting. And each thing it went through was right on. There are things that had actually been diagnosed in the past. And so it's kind of showing the old stuff hanging around underneath, which we forget about as you go through life. There are a lot of things compromising our immune system, for example. So that's how I do it. Because just so I know, I'm not making getting my mind involved in it. How do you do it? Uh, you do it so much and so often, you know to trust yourself. I I always start with the broadest question possible. And that is, you know, is there something my higher guidance wants me to clear at this time? So you start with the broadest. And if it says, okay, this is an imbalance in the mind of the body, then I know it's one of those three things. Yeah. Then I narrow it down. Okay, is it a sensitivity? Then I know that I just have to reduce my frequency to it. Right. Um, if it's an intolerance, there's something I need to know and understanding I mm-hmm. need to come with, come to. And if it's an allergy, I need to show the body that it's safe with that frequency. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing that is important about what you're doing is that um, because you're not allowing that logic mind to get in there by closing your eyes and just letting it go, it can go to something like water. It went to water. That's why I yes. brought it up. I got water. <laughs> I have to talk to Jean. <laughs> because if yeah. you were looking, your logic mind would have said, no, it can't no be way. that. That's and you would have dismissed it. Exactly. Right? And that's important is to get the logic mind out of the way and learn techniques to do that so that you don't dismiss things. Because you can literally be allergic to Anything at all. One of my favorite stories is about a a gentleman that called me and said, I want my wife to come and see you, which isn't really a good sign, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And sure enough, she walks in. You could clearly see she didn't want to be there. Mm -hmm. She was sullen to the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) So she was sullen. She didn't want to talk to me. Uh, I didn't know it, but she, her husband had sent her to doctor after doctor oh. to figure out what was going on. She allergic so, to him? <laughs> <laughs> that didn't come up, <laughs> but that is possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause she can be allergic to anything. So, um, um, she really didn't want to talk to me or tell me what was going on. Uh, and I thought, okay, well, fortunately, I don't really need to talk to you. I just need to talk to your body. Mm-hmm. I need to talk to your higher guidance. What's going on here? So her higher guidance said to do an allergy clearing for two things. The drop in barometric pressure and cold. Oh, okay. 
So I do this little thing on her. We get the meridians flowing with that thought. The drop, I literally wrote it on a piece of paper, said, here, hold this thought. The drop in barometric pressure and cold. And she walked out of the office. Well, (laughs) again, unbeknownst to me, for over 20 years, she had suffered with seasonal affective disorder. I was going to say, yeah, from yeah. drop in barometric pressure. And it would begin as soon as the rains would yeah. start in the fall and wouldn't let up until springtime. For 20, more than 20 years, she would hardly get out of her pajamas for that entire time. So you can see why her husband would want yeah, yeah, to send her yeah, sure. to place to place to place to try to I figure out what's wrong. going on. Well, she felt like a new woman when she walked out of the office. Thought, what is going on with me? I've got all this crazy energy flowing through me. Oh, my God, I feel good. She went out and got her hair done. On the way home, she buys a bunch of groceries. It just so happened to be their anniversary. She made a beautiful dinner, got her makeup on, wore a pretty dress, had a candlelight dinner, and her husband walks in the door and she says, notice anything different? <laughs> <laughs> like everything. I'm not in my fuzzy slippers and my sweats. <laughs> and that, and, and, you know, it was permanent. What's interesting about that was I'm listening to this. This is what's flowing in because you know, you know me and you know, Reincarnation. I can't see life except cycles and cycles of lives. And you, we don't know that could come from another time that we're not aware of. Right. It could come ancestrally. Either one. It doesn't matter which one it is. But the fact is, you're probably not going to figure it out with the conscious mind. No. No, you won't. And, yeah. and it's things can be just completely illogical, make right. no sense at all. But to the mind of the body, there it made some sense somewhere along yeah. the line, and an association was made. Interesting. Let's talk about being allergic to money. <laughs> well, so here's the thing, is that the very thing that you desire, love, success, money, if you find yourself pushing that vibration away, almost like you are physically allergic to mm-hmm. it and you're sabotaging yourself, then um, the very thing you desire will elude you. Now, talk about money. I have never watched the show Ozark, but I know it's about a lot of uh, money laundering. <laughs> you know, Can you imagine the high-stress environment of dealing with money? Money can literally get you killed, mm-hmm. right? So can love. Love can get you killed. Yeah. And so anything at all, power, power can get you killed. So how does that register in the mind of the body? Let's keep ourselves as far away from that as possible. <laughs> let's, let's, yes, because there may have yeah. been a circumstance from right. the past or through right. your ancestral line that led to exactly that. Exactly. Yeah. So you don't know why you're, ha- again, we don't know why we're having these feelings. So if you're a person that, let's say, you're allergic to love because there was something, a passionate tryst that you ended up being murdered over, say in another lifetime, yeah. or your grandma did. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's make it ancestral. How would you go about then defining that? You know, Dale Wilson isn't murdered over love and a tryst. 
how do you go about in here? Yeah. How do how do you go about drilling down to that level when it's a heavy emotional, yeah. ancestral or past life issue? Trust your higher guidance. Use your higher guidance and the pendulum to point you to the words, whatever it is that you need to um that the your higher guidance is saying this is the root of this allergy and what you're trying to protect yourself from. Remember, everything is a vibration Mm -hmm. and literally anything can be an allergy. So suspend your logic mind because um, something may come up that will make absolute... Like you're suddenly afraid of money. You get a job offer and there's a lot more money and you tense up and you're nervous. Right. That would be an example, right? It it would be an example. Mm -hmm. It would be an example if you even thought about winning the lottery and you start going into it in your imagination and start having a panic attack. Right. Right. That right. is so your, there's something there. Yeah. That's the mind of your body saying that's a vibration we need to protect ourselves from. Mm-hmm. And it could be money plus something else. Mm-hmm. It could be love plus something else. Um, and the most important thing is just suspend your logic mind and just go with it. Because see, here's the thing. It's not going to hurt you to, if, even if you got it wrong, certainly not going to hurt you to clear an allergy. If you write down the thought, like you write down love. You go, what mm-hmm. the heck? I'm going to do it. If you're opening up your the flow of energy through the meridians to the energy of love, mm-hmm. how would that possibly hurt you? Mm-hmm. So allergy, clearing any kind of allergy is... But this is a big one. This is like, this is one of the biggest ones for all of humanity. Mm-hmm. The fear of abandonment. Oh, and this goes deep, deep. And then we're going to get into the big one, fear of God. Yes. <laughs> okay. The fear of abandonment. Yes. And so if you feel that that is something that you have either in your past or you're recognizing, I have a knee jerk reaction, like, like mm, people talk about in relationships when they just meet somebody new, oh, that person has baggage or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. actually know it because the person can say something and they only, they meant it in a very harmless way. And the person will go off on them, yeah. you know, in a bizarre reaction. Mm-hmm. That is an allergic reaction to mm-hmm. that frequency that just like, for an example, and I said, mentioned about the um, lady that was in a relationship with pathological liar. You can bet that if she met somebody else that even told a slight white lie, she would overreact. Right, right, yeah. right. So <clears throat> what this does in my mind is we're able to look at each other with compassion because we understand these are areas that our being has perceived our survival on right. some level was under threat. And every one of us comes with a different package, right? right? And so to learn to be a little more accepting and compassionate with each other with these yes. bizarre reactions to life. And clear those and allergies clear because it will do absolutely no harm at all, even if you had no allergy to love. If you clear it, it's not going to harm so you. So what's it sound like? If you, you've you gone through, now you've doused this and that, and like, oh, goodness, this is weird. It appears I'm allergic to love. What do you say to yourself when you're doing the so, clearing? Easiest way to do it, to open up that meridian flow. First of all, write the thought down on a piece of paper. And then things like the tapping method. People are familiar with tapping. Mm-hmm. That's pretty popular. Mm-hmm. That's opening up the flow of meridians. But even simpler than that is rubbing your ears. 
Okay, interesting. Because all the meridians, all the meridians are in your ears. Or your feet. Give yeah, yourself yeah. a, a foot massage. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a foot mm-hmm. massage. So holding that piece of paper, or you could put it next to your navel, and then just keep rubbing your feet or rubbing your ears until you feel a sense of calm. And actually, uh, I've seen it so many times, you can tell when it's done because the person involuntarily goes, oh. If you're holding your pendulum too, it'll tell you when it's Yeah, that too. Yeah. So that's the simplest way to do it. And believe me, it's permanent, which is just the craziest thing. Here, you could have been allergic to something for 25 years. And in a matter of minutes, it's over. Because it's almost like a corrupted file. Yeah. Once you correct the corrupted file, there's no reason for the mind of the body to go back and say, wait a minute, where was that corrupted file? Let's go back and pull that back up again. There's no reason for the body to do that. The body says, oh, I see that I'm fine with this. It's safe. Okay. Yeah. And it just says that. Okay. God. God. The mother allergy of all. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting topic. I'm doing a lot of work around the perceptions Mm -hmm. of what the whole story in particularly the Old Testament has done to humanity. Oh, Um, as you and I were both raised with religion and subjected to those stories. Mm -hmm. I was, I used to, as a child, read stories of the Old Testament scared. Oh my God. Horrible. Oh, seeing some of the dagger over their baby's heart, you know, just uh, traumatizing to children. Traumatizing. And now think the, here's the worst of it. And this, I don't know about other religions, but let's just talk typical Christianity. We're told that we have this loving God. Now, if there was a serial killer out there that was lighting people on fire. Oh, yeah. Oh, we would. By the Give them the chair, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we're told yeah. that there's a God yeah. that will light you on fire. Mm-hmm. And not only that, will suspend your life and your soul so that you burn not just for a day or a but week. for eternity. For eternity. Yeah. And just not for not knowing the name of Jesus. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this was sounded fishy to me by the time I hit yeah. five. Right. But nonetheless, the damage is already done by right. then. What it does to our psyche. And now, and a lot of people that are watching this were also raised with religion at one time in their lives. And now have almost an allergic reaction to hearing the word God. Right. And it has to be completely, but yet open to the notion that there's some beautiful creative force and beautiful blueprint and print and template be behind a rose and the planets and everything but you better not say the word god <laughs> that's right right and you better watch your p's and q's because if you do the least the slightest offense i'm gonna get you yes <laughs> yes you know yeah. and there's that fear so of course on an unconscious level, the mind of the body is allergic to God. So it is one of the allergies that, again, I call the mother allergy, Mm -hmm. that I have all my students clear right away. Mm -hmm. Because after having the allergy to God, the next one is the allergy to being God. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're told that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, right? We have a soul. We have a divine aspect that is an individuated aspect of God. But how dare you (laughs) (laughs) say that you're God or that you're part of that God energy? How dare you? And you can imagine in past generations, that 
would definitely get you killed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You'd be yeah. hung for that one or burned. Right. <clears throat> so you do the allergy clearing for God, then to being God. But here's how it now translates even further. It translates into an allergy to authority mm-hmm. and an allergy to inner authority. And here's the story I have to tell you <laughs> about my daughter that was so, so amazing. Um, we recently had lunch and she says, Mom, you have to clear my allergy to authority. I know I have it because every time I would go in and talk to my previous boss, I would get so nervous before I would talk to him. I Even if I knew I was right, I almost have a panic attack and I'd end up crying before going into the office. And as she's telling me, you can see she's almost having an allergic reaction as she's talking. Yeah. She's getting all red. <laughs> Her yeah. eyes are getting red. <laughs> she's breathing really shallow. And then it reminded me, that's how I used to be. I can remember when I was so allergic to authority that to question a doctor, to question a dentist, to question anybody that was speaking, right. like I'd be at a conference. You didn't dare question authority. You didn't dare That's question. a big one for You'd have a your lot head of people. chopped off. A lot of people listening right, right now, big one. Right. And I would get so nervous that just anticipating raising my hand and formulating my question, I would, my heart would start beating out of my chest. Mm-hmm. I would feel faint mm-hmm. and I'd wonder, am I even going to be able to speak because my throat would be closing up? She clearly inherited from you? inherited it from, from me. You. Yeah. <laughs> so I had done the allergy. And your mother clearing. was a God fearing woman. Oh yeah, she was. Yeah. So I had almost forgotten that till I witnessed it in her. Yeah. And um since I had done my allergy clearing to God and to being God, uh-huh. I realized I don't have that anymore. Yeah. Uh I feel so calm with authority, so calm about standing up for myself. And and expressing my point of view, even if it questions what the dogma is out there and what the authority is saying. And so, of course, we did that for my daughter. And she couldn't stop calling afterwards to tell me all the ways she was noticing things were different. She's called, said, Mom, I even told somebody on the bus to move over. (laughs) Good for her. Yeah. So... We're out of time right now. I mean, we wow, we could go for quite a while on this one. But thank you for sharing that yeah. final story. Mm-hmm. Any final thought? First of all, we have to do this because people will be asking, what was it? So this is the Pendulum Charts by Dale Olson, O-L-S-O-N. So you can get it on Amazon. So anyway, that that's the book. You buy pendulums anywhere. Make your own mm-hmm. if you have to. Yeah. Any final thoughts, Gina, on this? This has been very, very helpful. I think it helps yeah. people have more empathy for themselves and each other, too. Yeah. If you find that you're having a bizarre reaction to something, check to see. Ask yeah. your higher guidance. Do I, I have a mind-of-the-body imbalance yeah. here? And if so, which is it and what do I do about it? Here, here. Thank you so much. As always, very, very, I love it. Always very useful. Thank you, Gina. And we'll be seeing you again. As always, an enlightening conversation and one that's coming up and a lot of research from a variety of authors now to listen to the body as it's always trying to tell us the truth. Meanwhile, you can go to GeneSlater.com to tap into more of Gene's work. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Very good. Okay, well, Rama wants to do this one next. It's called... Destiny and Source Consciousness. 
where do souls come from before inhabiting physical bodies? And what realm do they transition to, into? Exploring how our universe is more than just the physical. Mm. Author and contactee, Ricardo Gonzalez, Com Por Pancho, highlights the connections between beings of light, extraterrestrials, and ancient texts. Through examination of souls, manifesting physically, in the universe, Ricardo expounds on the cosmic source as a foundation beyond time and space. Are we ready, Rama? This is 31, 31 minutes. Yeah, just... Mm. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay, everybody. Disclosure, we're with Ricardo Gonzalez, author and researcher for Peru who has experienced multiple direct contacts with an extraterrestrial species called the Apunians. Today, we're talking about the origin and destiny of souls. Ricardo, welcome to the show. Thank you again, Henry. Ricardo, so what do you mean by the origin and destiny of souls? This is a very deep and spiritual issue. As you can imagine, after our extraterrestrial contact experiences, many questions began coming to mind. And we tried to transmit those concerns to these beings to see if, to the best of their ability, they could respond to many different kinds of concerns. Here on your show, we've touched on many topics relating to these concerns. But they've been more technical issues relating to accounts, to the contact itself with these beings. But we also ask questions of a more spiritual nature. Questions about our nature, our destiny, consciousness. Especially because in these beings' messages, we were always told that we were not just beings of flesh and blood. But we were, above all, a conscious energy living a human experience. So I can have some information of my human origin from an anthropological and historical perspective. But from a spiritual perspective, if we really are a conscious energy living in a human body, what is the origin of that energy? Or a better question... What is our true origin? Because it is clear that I am not Ricardo Gonzalez, but I am living in a human body, and I was baptized with the name of Ricardo. I know this may sound strange to people watching now, but I ask you to reflect on this for a moment. If we really are energy, where were we before we were on Earth? And once the human adventure is over, 
Where are we going back to? I transmitted these concerns to these beings, and they told us a really fascinating story. According to the information from these beings, our universe is not just physical as we understand it. There are other parallel universes, so to speak, that do not have this pattern of density as we interpret it. And they seem not to be governed by the space-time equation. Just as Earth scientists think that it all originated with the Big Bang explosion, and in the wake of the Big Bang, space and time as we know it appeared. The extraterrestrials say that there were multiple Big Bangs because we live in reality in a multiverse. And we, as beings of energy who live as humans in this reality, would have been born as a kind of cosmic explosion. We call it an explosion so the audience can understand the concept. I would call it singularity in more scientific terms. The fact is that, according to these messages, that singularity arose from a non-physical universe, of large concentrations of energies, of vortices in the universe, that communicate with what extraterrestrials call cosmic sources. And from those cosmic sources would have come what we humans call the soul or the spirit. Of course, we tried to explore this concept further with the extraterrestrials. And we asked, so how did these sources come about? On the basis of what matter or substance were these lights transformed into spirits? How did they develop their consciousness, their individuality? But these extraterrestrial beings told us that while we are in this physical body, we would not have enough consciousness to understand deeper concepts. We come, then, from a cosmic source, as if we were spirits roaming the universe, who can manifest themselves, sometimes, in the universes of matter. I'm referring to dense matter, like the structure of this planet called Earth, and live the human experience there. That is the concept of the origin of spirits or souls. But it also has other phases. Rules or laws in a world, we'll call it spiritual. That seems to organize our existence here. Some people believe uh, that we make contracts before we come to this three-dimensional you know, planet. What do you think about that? Yes, these beings have told us about it. We call it the agreement of life. The question is, with whom is that agreement made? It has to do with what I was trying to tell you just minutes ago, that there are rules or circumstances in those worlds or higher planes that seem to regulate the physical support of the roaming spirit who arrives, in this case, to the earth. And within those rules or that spiritual organization, there are beings of non-human consciousness who intervene. In some religions, they call them angels. In some more esoteric groups, they are called the lords of karma. Shamanic circles also speak of these beings of consciousness that regulate births on earth. Even in ancient Egypt, 
These beings are alluded to in what we know as Hunifer's manuscript or papyrus. In Hunifer's manuscript, these beings appear as a kind of tribunal in the afterlife. The point is that this panel of entities or this council of beings of light, whatever it is, exists according to the extraterrestrial's message and councils with knowledge and wisdom, the roaming soul, the cosmic spirit pilgrim, who will live their experience. Then you wonder, how is it possible for them to counsel in detail at that level? What makes them decide that a cosmic soul is to be born in a certain country on Earth? To be born as a human being, maybe in the United States, or in my case, in Peru, in South America, with different family situations, cultures, including some experiences that we should live throughout the human adventure. This life agreement or legal contract also appears in different Asian beliefs, and some call this karma. However, I think it's important to clarify some concepts. From the extraterrestrial perspective, of course, these hierarchies of light that I'm mentioning are based on very precise rules in the universe of life, and almost mathematically, geometrically, they help organize what the future human experience is going to be. As the soul evolves and has different experiences in a world school, every time they come across that panel of light beings, the higher the consciousness, the more they intervene in what you need. Because every action or thought during human existence brings a consequence that affects timelines in the future. That's why the word karma means action. It is not punishment as people in the West have misinterpreted. It is a kind of law of cause and effect. Then, according to the causes sowed by the soul that lived on Earth, and even in other worlds where they may have experienced life, all these causes will have consequences, effects on their future existences. Because you said earlier that whoever gave us the soul, how'd they know that we were going to be born this day, this place, and die in this place at this time? I could explain how all this happens with an example. It's like a car factory. And excuse such a mundane and everyday example, there are very precise rules for making a specific car. And it is likely built for getting around in a city. There are other types of cars that are built to get around in rural areas, such as a truck or a jeep. And these possibilities are manufactured from factory designs. Something similar happens with our experiences in the world school. All previous information accumulated, both by our soul and by other souls who have lived in other worlds, generates a learning pattern. And with affinity for a world school, we are assigned the experience. 
But experiences vary according to the soul. Returning to the car example, maybe the car was designed to drive on the roads of the United States. It's what some would call destiny, Emery. But is fate set in stone? That car is being driven by a driver. And the driver represents, in this symbolic example, consciousness. And, with greater consciousness, you can choose how you're going to drive the car. At a higher speed, at a lower speed, where you're going to stop, or if you're going to leave the previously determined route to explore new routes that the manufacturer did not warn you about. But there is also an additional detail to your question, which is the collective evolution of the souls, because these cosmic spirits described by the extraterrestrials, cosmic spirits that are actually us, we do not work alone in evolution in the universe. We're establishing bonds, connections with other roaming spirits. And that is weaving a kind of fabric of experiences that can generate influence between one soul and another in an experience. And it could determine how we are sent to Earth, for example. Put in very simple terms, our parents or our children, our family, are not complete strangers to us. We probably chose them before we came, with all that that means, with that great learning experience. Because the journey of the soul in its human life can be full of trials and difficult circumstances. But the extraterrestrials say that it is good for that to happen. Because we end up being like an anthropologist, infiltrating a culture from within, being born within it to learn appropriately. Excellent, excellent. What or who is the origin of this contract law? And is there some sort of force that's uh, overseeing the direction of these souls? It has to do with what we were talking about a moment ago, my friend. I believe that entities from other planes are not exactly responsible for deciding, but they do participate in this. It's as if the spiritual universe were structured like this. It's like asking, who created the clouds? Or who created the wind? They are reactions to the nature that is being organized. Humidity, heat, etc. And in a higher spiritual world, there is a perfect structure, Emery, that we do not know about. And that geometry, that wonderful symmetrical growth, is the basis of this legal contract. Remember that in another episode, we talked about the guardians of light flowing in the vortices of the earth. My personal opinion of the legal contract is that there would be beings of such a nature, but on a cosmic scale. And these beings would be acting so that this legal contract is fulfilled. They are the guardians of light of the vortices of the cosmos. As if it were a panel or a tribunal of Maat that was spoken of in ancient Egypt. So these beings with their knowledge, with their wisdom, assist the souls who are following the laws of the universe to incarnate. 
But those laws were not made by these beings. Just like there was no concrete entity or a group of concrete beings that created the law of gravity. It simply exists. It is a mechanism of the order in the universe. But there are agents who step in to explain how these laws work. Then these beings conveyed to us that they could help us understand why we are here on earth. Because with a higher consciousness, we could have more freedom. The law exists in and of itself. And whomever knows the higher laws achieves personal mastery and comes to understand that human beings do not have to attain a spiritual experience, but we are actually spirits living a human experience. Ricardo Nettes, is destiny and free will something that's controlled from the outside rather than controlled by the individual themselves? I believe that is the very law of the universe that prescribes things, affecting the souls who have come to earth First, individually, and in more complex scenarios, as groups of souls to learn. But we need to understand the concept of free will within all of this. I think there is some confusion when you talk about destiny and you talk about free will. Destiny may be a path you have to follow, which is a consequence of cause and effect of the very organization of the universe that I previously explained with the legal contract. When you live without feeling like a robot, as we talked about in other interviews, you just follow that straight line of your destiny, of your life program. But remembering the car example that I gave a few moments ago, if the driver has consciousness, the driver may choose how to steer. And why can the driver steer? Because while there is a destination, which is the route, then the steering wheel represents free will. And it can turn right or left according to consciousness. That's a great way to put it. There are people who, when they go through death, experience something extraordinary. We know this because some people who have been diagnosed as clinically dead have managed to return to their body remaining in full consciousness. For example, from the operating room where they have lost their lives with the doctors and everything that happened there, but at the same time maintaining consciousness of where they were while their body was in the hospital. And they describe that they encounter wonderful beings of light who evaluate with them all that they have lived in their human existence. The person who just died quickly sees like a screen in their mind, if we may call it that, all that they did and did not do in this human existence. And they are counseled by that being of light that appeared at that moment. Sometimes these beings of light, or whomever they are, assume other aspects. And they may appear as your deceased father or another person who is important to you in your memory. But an important factor in what I'm describing, Emery, is that people who have gone through death and have managed to return come back with a greater consciousness of the importance of their decisions, that so-called free will. They return with such a consciousness that they say, I would have done things differently. Or, at least, they have the opportunity to do things differently in the additional time that has been given to them. So, 
The question is, do you still have free will in your soul at that moment, looking at that light and saying, I want to go back? Here, we get entangled again with the legal contract and with consciousness. There is no consensus on this information among those of us who research these issues. Some researchers of these topics think that everything is perfectly scripted and we cannot vary from that movie. So if a person is clinically dead or has a terrible accident where they are left for dead and they come back from it, all that was planned. And if they have three or four situations in which they died and come back, all that was coldly calculated in their legal contract, and it had to be that way. According to what I have understood in my contact experience, this is not always the case. There may be a legal contract, but there can be some type of clause, like blank spaces, within that legal contract. And within those exceptions, act based on consciousness. And this has to do with your question. What does a person do when they return? Do they completely determine this when they are on the other side? Is it that these beings of light who intervene by controlling life and the contract tell you, okay, Emery, you can go back and continue to enjoy human life? I think... Taking into consideration the importance of what you are learning at the moment, like a huge explosion of knowledge, it makes a difference. The energy of consciousness is so powerful that it may affect your initial legal contract. For example, a very powerful force in human existence is love. And there are cases of mothers who were thought to have passed away from a terminal illness and were pronounced dead in hospital. And these women met with these beings of light on the other side. Beings of light who they understood to be angels according to their beliefs, who guarded a powerful energy, a source of light for her to enter into. And suddenly, the soul of this mother became aware of her five-year-old daughter and she felt a powerful love which she manifested to these beings of light or to the very light that she had entered into and proposed, I want to be on earth for a while longer to help raise my daughter. If possible, I want the opportunity to educate my daughter and not depart now. And that consciousness and supreme manifestation of love gave her the opportunity In some cases, it happens like that. They have, or we have unfinished business, we say sometimes, <laughs> that we need to come back and help our loved ones. So very interesting. I like the way you put it. So after death, where is everything learned and lived? Once we finish the human experience, all the information that we accumulate is not lost. Your brain and your heartbeat may stop. Your body may return to the dust. But all the information and all your learning is turned over to that subtle spiritual universe of which I spoke. And that information is very important. 
because there are millions and millions of us souls living in different worlds, absorbing information, experience, knowledge, and all that sustains the consciousness of the universe. Death does not exist, dear Emery, and you know that. We only depart the physical body when it is our turn to leave, and everyone will have their moment. There are still people on earth who fear death because they lack this knowledge. There are others who are not afraid of death, but they fear the way of dying, the pain, and others fear attachment, which we sometimes confuse with love, which are two very different things. We are very deeply rooted, anchored to the things of the earth. And when it is our turn to embark on this great journey, as Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said, death is a dawn. We cannot awaken at dawn if we live tied to the past. So after death, nothing disappears. And I could add something else, my friend. We do not live only once. Just as different traditions of the world recorded, the human soul can incarnate on different occasions, according to the extraterrestrials, in this and other worlds. In fact, ancient traditions teach that spirits who have reached a deep level of consciousness and love overcome the circle of reincarnations and they no longer have to return to Earth or any other world school. However, in very exceptional circumstances, some of these spirits return because of love, beyond any legal contract. They are outside the legal contract. They return to fulfill a mission. In India, this phenomenon was called avatar, which in Sanskrit means the one who returns or the one who descends. How is an avatar recognized? I believe that there are several avatars currently on the planet, but their work is silent. In the past, we had powerful avatars whose work was much more public, like Buddha or Jesus. So previous guests have talked about like the suppression of consciousness and free will by outside ET influences. Uh, that keep human beings from, you know, ascending uh, to higher consciousness. What can you say about that? Well, as you may recall in the episode where we talked about the confrontation of forces, human beings are in the middle of many influences. And it is true that one of these forces does not want us to develop our consciousness and reach higher levels of evolution. But that can only happen if we allow it. What I'm going to say may sound very religious, but great masters of old taught that we can only be controlled no matter how powerful a force is if we lose our control, if we allow it. And I profoundly believe this. Because those forces that other researchers have said that are trying to crush human consciousness, they also use the existing laws to do so. They know they can control us or affect us through fear, through other circumstances as well, of course. 
So a person who stays in the middle and tries to keep their consciousness awake is not going to be subject to those influences. Will we ever be able to break away from these influences, Ricardo? I believe that with our learning on this planet, we will always be in the middle of different influences. But remember, I'm speaking in the plural. Influences. Many times, we devote attention to talking about an influence that may be negative on us. And we forget that there are also positive influences that try to direct us towards consciousness. We are like a sailboat, dear Emery. And we have to let ourselves be guided by the right winds. There is a way to be free from what we would call an unpleasant or negative influence. From the temptations of the world. Yes, there is a way. Being a disciplined person. A person who does not forget the great power that exists in determination. Willpower is a wonderful thing. Because willpower can create incredible things, even in our physical reality. Two thousand years ago, a great teacher said, What if people had faith the size of a mustard seed? They would say to a mountain, Move, and the mountain would move. It's almost quantum mechanics. What happens in the world of the small, of the microscopic, or to be more exact, in the world of the subatomic, if you will, affects the jam world around us. And faith, willpower, knowledge are powerful subatomic energies. But they only work if you have knowledge. Like the same teacher said 2,000 years ago, I am going to share a truth with you, and that truth will make you free. That's why there is cosmic disclosure, right? It is about revealing things that people don't know. Because the more knowledge you have, the better you can understand, the better you can decide, and you will be free. We are, therefore, souls. More than human beings of flesh and blood. And we are all living this play together. We are inside a character. But when the play that we are acting in is over, we take off our makeup and costume and we go home. Because that is who we are. Pure light. And we have come here to be free and happy. Well put, Ricardo. That was so beautiful. I want to thank you again for being on the show. Thank you, my friend. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Next on Cosmic Disclosure. Shambhala is the name of a supposed lost city in Asia that speaks of beings who came from heaven, great minds who trained ancient humans in spiritual knowledge. When I've been in the Gobi Desert with the Lamas, he said to us, the people who walk in the sky, who move in those lights, protect the entrance to the subterranean world. There are many things that have happened that unite the myth of Shambhala and the extraterrestrials. Shambhala means the place of peace, the place of tranquility. So find your inner Shambhala.
Shambhala. Mm -hmm. So Rama's going to share with you this next one because he says. Yeah, I think so. Um, no? Okay. Mm, I'm getting there. I was getting there. Uh, I have something I could just read a little bit while Haram's doing that. The connection mm -hmm. between us and the Galactic Federation is how we keep ourselves aligned with our true nature. It's how we stay connected okay. to our soul purpose and purpose as a whole. It's how we stay in alignment with who we truly are at our core. And I just finished that and it's rounds ready. Tell everybody what we're re reading though. What you've got there to read. I mean. Um, Gotta be really loud. Was a technology, technologically and spiritually advanced civilization destroyed in the great cataclysm that ended the last ice age? In session three, Graham Hancock's magical mystery tour, he explores how he went from being controversial with archaeologists becoming overwhelmingly vindicated by recent discoveries. Hmm. Okay, this is an hour and 24 minutes, everybody, so fasten your seatbelts. This is America Before, the Key to Earth's Lost Civilization. Mr. Graham Hancock. America Before, which was published in uh, 2019. And uh, I can only give glimpses in an event like this, um, but everything I'm going to say is, is backed up and footnoted uh, in this book. I, one thing I've learned from being called a pseudoscientist by archaeologists who just wish to dismiss me completely is I footnote everything. I give my sources in great detail. People can follow up those sources and see where I'm, where I'm coming from. I think it's important to do that, actually. Um, so a bit of a refresher. Uh, the ancient Egyptian pyramid texts, 5th dynasty, Saqqara, um, all describing and preparing us for our journey through the Duat, the ancient Egyptian afterlife kingdom ruled over by the god Osiris. And um, what the pyramid texts and the books of the dead achieve in hieroglyphs and imagery, as I argued yesterday, the pyramids of the Giza and Necropolis manifest in three dimensions. 
Uh, and finally, scholars agree that Osiris was identified by the ancient Egyptians with the constellation of Orion, uh, that Orion was viewed as the celestial figure uh, of Osiris in the night sky, uh, ruling over the afterlife kingdom of the Duat, and that the Duat was envisaged as being located in the sky between the constellations of Leo and Orion, with the great heavenly river of the Milky Way, the winding waterway, as it's called in the pyramid texts, as its central feature. And uh, again, I've, I've made the case already, so I, I don't need to explain this in, in, in full detail, but, but what confronts us at Giza is a three-dimensional representation of the Duat sky region, and mysteriously not as it would have looked during the time of historic ancient Egypt, but deep in prehistory, as it would have looked throughout the epoch from 12,800 to 11,600 years ago, which is exactly the epoch of the Younger Dryas. Um, uh, in ancient Egyptian tradition, this epoch was known as Zeptepi, literally the first time. It's an epoch that we now know to have been marked by dramatic cataclysms and earth changes on a scale that must have affected humanity profoundly. So how does the soul of the earthly deceased ascend to the Duat in the ancient Egyptian system? Well, it's a kind of leap. It's a kind of leap to the sky, up to the, up to the Orion constellation. The, the soul rises up and, and those star shafts in the Great Pyramid seem to be designed to facilitate that in some, in some way. Uh, this is a book that Santa and I uh, published together in 1998. Uh, it's called Heaven's Mirror. Uh, we intend to do another book, which is primarily about Santa's photographs in the future. Santa, um, <laughs> it's not fair, you know. I, I, I get all these books filled with my with my writing, but it's really Santa's photographs that make it that make it all possible. And it was wonderful that we did this this book together, Heaven's Mirror, in 1998. And we're in, we're intending another major photographic book uh, in in the coming couple of years. Um, in Heaven's Mirror, uh, I drew attention to curious similarities between ancient Egypt and and ancient Mexico. Uh, and I'll just read out the passages I've highlighted. Very much like the ancient Egyptians, the peoples of ancient Central America located their netherworld in a region of the sky through which ran the Milky Way. And for the Maya, the Milky Way was a particularly important feature of the heavens. They thought of it as the road that led to their netherworld. They called it Zibalba. The ancient Egyptians called it the Duat. The Maya called it Zibalba which in common with other Central American peoples, they located in the sky. Um, Fernandez, Cormac et al., Mayan city of Utatlan, Guatemala, designed, quote, according to the celestial scheme reflected by the shape of the constellation of Orion. Anything familiar with that? That's what we see at Giza, a celestial scheme reflected by the constellation of Orion. Fernandez was able to prove that all of Utatlan's major temples were oriented to the helical setting points of stars in Orion and argued that the Milky Way alongside which Orion stands was thought of as a celestial path connecting the firmament's navel to the center of the underworld. It's exactly the ancient Egyptian system, really identical. Uh, and I'm not saying ancient Egypt brought it to the Maya or the Maya brought it to ancient Egypt. I'm saying both inherited it from a remote common ancestor. 
Orion was extensively involved in Mayan rebirth beliefs, which described the constellation and specifically its three belt stars as the turtle of rebirth. In Egypt, as amongst... As amongst the Maya, the stellar context involves Orion and the Milky Way. In Egypt, as in Mexico, a journey through the netherworld must be undertaken by the deceased. In Egypt, as in Mexico, religious teachings assert that life is our opportunity to prepare for this journey, an opportunity that should, under no circumstances, be missed. So these correspondence lead me to speculate that ancient Egypt and ancient Mexico shared a common legacy, uh, an even more ancient cosmological religion wrapped up in sophisticated astronomical observations and specifically focused on the afterlife journey of the soul, not originated either in Egypt or Mexico, but received from a remote third party. It was a hypothesis. What would help to strengthen that hypothesis, perhaps even confirm it, would be evidence of other civilizations with no direct relationship in which the same legacy could be identified. This is Moundville in Alabama. And uh, what we're looking at is Mound A in the foreground, viewed from Mound B. They do give these mounds incredibly exciting names. Uh, viewed from Mount B, with four of the mounds in the outer ellipse uh, also visible. And I'm showing uh, the pyramids and the leap to Orion there for a particular reason. Here is the notice board in front of um, Mount A. And uh, you can't read what it says there, but fortunately... I can't read it either, <laughs> but, but fortunately, I've transcribed it. At Moundville, an excellent example of a powerful religious image was the hand and eye motif. You can see it in the uh, device to the left there, the hand and eye motif. Moundville's rattlesnake disc pictured on this notice board offers us the best known version, although numerous variations occur in pottery, copperstone and shell artifacts. Stories passed down among various tribes tell of the dead entering the afterlife through an opening marked by a great warrior's hand in the sky. One account describes that hand as the constellation we know as Orion, with Orion's belt as the wrist, its fingers pointing downward. A faint cluster of stars in the center of the palm is a portal to the path of souls or the path to the land of the dead. Does it sound familiar? does to me. It's ancient Egypt stuff all over again. Researchers speculate that the hand and eye represent this constellation, and that's from the notice board at Mount B in Moundville Archaeological Park. I'll read a few more of the texts from Moundville. As a group, the knotted serpents and the hand and eye are believed to be a representation of the night sky. 
The serpents are the ropes that join the earth and sky. In the palm of the hand is a portal or doorway through which the spirits of the dead can ascend to the path of souls or Milky Way in their extended journey to the realm of the dead. Another reference to the path of souls there. The gateway or portal between the celestial realms, celestial realms and the earth disk was symbolized and artistically rendered as an open hand with an eye in its palm. We know this hand as part of the constellation of Orion. Once the portal was crossed, the souls of the dead began their journey by walking along a road or ribbon of light, the Milky Way, exactly as in ancient Egypt. So there's the Native American hand constellation on the left in which the three stars of Orion's belt form the wrist. And there's a, a, a depiction of it on the right. And there's Orion's belt with its, uh, the constellation of Orion with its belt and the Orion Nebula. Um, and the Orion Nebula is represented by the eye in the palm of the hand. It was conceived of as a portal through which the soul must leap on its afterlife journey. George Langford, internationally recognized authority on Native American folklore, notes the portal in the hand must be entered by a leap at the optimum time, just like that leap of the soul up to the constellation of Orion that we see in ancient Egypt. And uh, Orion and the Milky Way at setting is what we're depicting here just before they fall beneath the western horizon. In ancient Egypt, the hieroglyph for the Duat netherworld depicts a hole in the sky with a star at its center. In ancient Native America, the hole in the sky is indicated as a slit being pulled. The Supreme Court, supported by Republicans, just overturned Roe versus Wade, endangering women's health care choice across America. And the fact that it is celestial is frequently elaborated by the inclusion of a star circle or dot, essentially the same idea. Um, George Langford uh, successfully cracked the Mississippian Code. And um, he, uh, along with a, a group of other scholars, and, and, and he draws our attention to what he calls the fearsome image of a brain smasher, usually a woman whose task is to destroy memory and, and humanity by removing or smashing the brain. Indeed, there are repeated references to a menacing female figure usually called the brain smasher or the brain taker in accounts of the Native American afterlife journey. Her role is the annihilation and permanent destruction of unworthy souls of the damned on the afterlife journey, just like the ancient Egyptian eater of the dead in the judgment scene annihilates unworthy souls. Well, 
There's a brain smasher in ancient Egypt too. Um, it's a vignette from the book of what is in the Duat. This goddess is exerting will. She's exerting force. She's actually not wielding the axe herself. She's making the individual wield it on his own head. Um, a goddess standing upright with her hands stretched out to the top of the head of a man who is kneeling before her and is cutting open his head with a hatchet. Mm. Uh, Budge doesn't provide a translation of the hieroglyphs. I had uh, Louise Ellis Barrett at the British Museum where Budge formerly was the keeper of Egyptian antiquities. I asked her to give me a translation of what those hieroglyphs around the ancient Egyptian brain smashers say. And they say she lives from the blood of the damned and from what these gods provide her. That basol who belongs to the damned, the demolishing one who cuts the damned to pieces. She's a brain smasher, just like the Native American brain smasher. Uh, Deneb in the constellation we know as Cygnus, the swan, is positioned on the bank of the Milky Way exactly at the fork where a second path, a dead end, branches off. Langford identifies Deneb and Cygnus as a whole with the Moundville raptor figure, which is indicated lower right there, uh, an adversary on the journey of the soul with the power to block its further process by forcing it to take a path culminating in a dead end. Now, look, I know a swan isn't an ostrich, but ostriches and swans are both birds. So it's kind of interesting that in the ancient Egyptian pyramid texts, the soul on its journey through the duat is confronted by a bird adversary that apparently has the power to block its path. It's difficult to give any other interpretation to this encounter since the soul is made to declare, hail to you, ostrich, which is on the bank of the winding waterway. Open my way that I may pass. Um, and... Uh, what else but the recognition of that same fork in the Milky Way that was regarded as so ominous in Native American be expressed in the pyramid text where we read, do not travel on those western waterways. For those who travel thereon do not return, but travel on the eastern waterways. There were monstrous winged serpents in the ancient Egyptian netherworld. There are monstrous winged serpents in the ancient American netherworld. Um, Top right is a figure known as the underwater panther um, in Native American tradition from, from Moundville. Note the tail position and the paws. Bottom right, the Great Sphinx. Bottom left, detail of the tail of the Great Sphinx. Just compare that with the tail of the underwater panther. Uh, and amongst the Skiddy Pawnee, there was a figure called the Chief of the Astronomers. We see him on the right wearing a robe decorated with stars. There was also a chief of the astronomers in ancient Egypt. He wore a leopard skin cloak embossed with figures of stars. Uh, and we see amongst the Skiddy Pawnee that a wild scat, cat skin was used to represent the starry sky. And the same in ancient Egypt, where it was a leopard skin that was used to represent the starry sky, a feline in both cases. On the left, this is an engraved whelk shell depicting the ancient Mississippian hero deity referred to by archaeologists as the bird man and symbolized as a hawk. On the right, the statue. So what can I help you with, Jane? I know I'm not normal. Anyone who has come this far and keep it.
statue of the ancient Egyptian hero deity Horus, likewise symbolized as a hawk. The fundamental role of both of these hawk-headed deities was to represent the triumph of life over death. Both systems, ancient Egypt and ancient Native America, the afterlife journey involved a strong element of judgment. Uh, in a sense, the entire ordeal in both cases concerns the judgment of the soul for its choices, for what it has done and has not done, for the use it has made of the gift of life during its physical incarnation. In both cases, the unworthy soul can face annihilation by the gods, demons and monsters at any point on the journey, for example, at the hands of the brain spatter figure. But in both cases also, for those who have progressed thus far through the netherworld, a specific judgment awaits. For the ancient Egyptians, life was about preparing for this moment. So this is the triumphant soul. I showed this slide yesterday. Having prevailed over the adversaries on its path, attains cosmic immortality amongst the stars. Um, far away in the Amazon rainforest, that purpose was served by the powerful psychedelic brew called ayahuasca, the vine of the dead. I'll be talking much more about ayahuasca uh, tomorrow. Um, I have had uh, somewhere north of <clears throat> 70 sessions with ayahuasca since I first encountered it in 2003. It's no joke, believe me. Uh, it's physically very demanding. I, <laughs> I mean, those war on drugs, those drugs warriors who say people get addicted to psychedelics, they've got no bloody idea what they're talking about. You know, you have to brace yourself for a psychedelic journey, and it's particularly so with ayahuasca. It's not something you're ever going to get addicted to. It's something you're going to, you're going to prepare yourself for with great care. The Vine of the Dead. Uh, here's some Shipibo ayahuasca art, which shows... Um, any geometric patterns which are often seen in the early stages of the ayahuasca visionary state. And here's a Tucano Paye, a shaman, guiding his son through an ayahuasca experience, helping him to navigate the infinite terrain of the other side. And, and we can see some of the Tucano ayahuasca art, which they just uh, create in, in sand on the, on the riverbanks. Um, any member of the Tucano community can drink ayahuasca, but the deeper mysteries of the brew are primarily the work of the shamans, and it's their responsibility to travel through the portal whenever required to negotiate with powerful supernaturals on behalf of their community. When I say the portal, I mean drinking ayahuasca. That's a portal to another world. Where matters of the greatest importance must be resolved, a group of payas will work together, consuming massive quantities of ayahuasca. And that takes stamina, believe me until they reach a point lying on their hammocks where they feel they are ascending, guess where? To the Milky Way. The ascent to the Milky Way isn't easy. An apprentice will hardly ever be able to rise immediately to this region, but rather will learn to do so after many trials. At first, he will barely rise over the horizon. The next time, perhaps we will reach a point corresponding to the position at 9 a.m., then 10 a.m., and so on, until at last, in a single soaring flight, he will reach the Zenith, just like that leap to the heavens in ancient Egypt, just like that leap to the heavens amongst the Maya. So in summary, the shaman's visionary journey through the ayahuasca portal involves a leap or a soaring flight to the Milky Way. And that's just a way station 
Beyond the Milky Way lies the entrance to the other world. And down lower left is a depiction by the Tucano of the entrance to the other world. Um, it is said that the individual dies when he drinks the potion, and that now his spirit returns to the uterine regions of the beyond, only to be reborn there and to return to his ordinary existence when the trance is over. This then is conceived as an acceleration of time, an anticipation of death and rebirth, just as the ancient Egyptian system was designed to prepare us for death. So also ayahuasca is seen as a preparation for death. So it's a kind of book of the dead. It's a guide to the afterlife realm, not in written texts, but in direct experience. Sorry, there's so much reading here, but it's important to get this right. The origin myth of the Tucano speaks of a time aeons ago when humans first settled the great rivers of the Amazon basin. It seems that, quote unquote, supernatural beings accompanied them in this journey and gifted them the fundamentals upon which to build a civilized life. From the daughter of the sun, they received the gift of fire, the knowledge of horticulture, pottery making, and many other crafts. The serpent-shaped canoe of the first settlers was steered by a superhuman helmsman. Meanwhile, other supernaturals traveled by canoe over all the rivers and explored the remote hill ranges. They pointed out propitious sites for houses or fields or for hunting and fishing, and they left their lasting imprint on many spots so that future generations would have ineffaceable proof of their earthly days and would forever remember them and their teachings. That's uh, exactly what is described in the Edfu building texts, how they created these, how the, the survivors of the homeland of the primeval ones came to Egypt and created these sacred mounds that were to be the sites of all future temples and pyramids. And I, I, I said that um, in, in the earlier talk that th this project wasn't confined to Egypt. I'd suggested that Turkey was another place where this civilizing project took place and manifested in the form of Gobekli Tepe. But it was also pursued in many other lands. And one of those lands, I would suggest, was the Amazon, South America, and specifically the Amazon. The Amazon Basin, I mean, this is an enormous thing. It covers 7 million square kilometers. Tragically, huge amounts of the Amazon have been destroyed in clearances. This is, the clearance of the Amazon is a very obvious example of the utter madness and detachment from reality of the human species today. Talk about a brain smasher. I mean, allowing the Amazon to be destroyed is like just smashing out our own brains with a hammer. This is a precious resource for humanity, and it's madness to allow it to be destroyed. So despite these clearances, which are still rapidly underway, and, and um, what is it, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil is all for the complete destruction of the Amazon, he should be stopped. The Amazon belongs to the whole world. Yes, Brazil is its custodian. But if Brazil is a lousy custodian of the Amazon, it should not be allowed to destroy that precious and magical resource that has given us so much, despite those clearances, which have been done to make space for cattle ranches and soya bean plantations. 5.5 million square kilometers are still covered by rainforest, and that's an area larger than the entire subcontinent of India. Mm. 
And here's a question. There's sensational headlines. You always get sensational headlines in the British paper called the Daily Mail. Uh, were Aborigines the first Americans, native tribes in the Amazon, found to be most closely related to indigenous Australians? Well, actually, this is a case where the science behind the headlines is even more sensational than the headlines themselves. To cut a long story short, I wish I had a pointer, but to cut a long story short, there turns out to be a close genetic relationship between Papuans and Australian Aborigines and certain peoples, the Suria, Surui and the Karatiana and the Zavante of the Amazon rainforest. And that's really weird. How come that's the case? Uh, and what's particularly weird about it is that it's not found anywhere in North America. People are supposed to have reached South America, according to the orthodox model, by traveling through North America, crossing the Bering Straits, traveling through North America, come South America. So that signal should be present in North America, but it's not. It's only present in South America. It suggests there's something wrong with the model. And furthermore, that signal is very old. This is the journal Cell. In November 2018, two studies were published. Um, leading figures, by the way, Cosimo Poth, David Reich, and others. These, are, again, are not pseudoscientists. Um, and the second study was in science, co-authored by Eski Willislev and others. These new studies found Australasian DNA already present in skeletal remains from Lagoa Santa Brazil, dated to 10,400 years ago. This is not a recent uh, addition to the gene pool. This is ancient. It was there 10,400 years ago and, and, and uh, confirmed the suspicion of the researchers that the anomalous genetic signal must have reached South America in the late Pleistocene. That's near the end of the last ice age. So the mystery that confronts us is how did Australian Melanesian DNA get to the Amazon in the late ice age while leaving no trace in North and Central America or in Siberia, where supposedly all the ancestors of Native Americans came from, if the orthodox model is true. How did it get there? Well, I was able to discover... I think we should explore a few solutions. Grammarly suggestions catch when your tone might undermine you. To discuss this at some length with one of the world's leading geneticists, Professor Eski Willislev. And his recent work focuses on the peopling of the Americas. And this is an email exchange I had with him on the 2nd of March, 2018. And he tells me, uh, I asked him about this weird DNA signal in the, in the Amazon and its connection to Australasia. And he, he said, currently no one has a good explanation of the Australo-Melanesian signal. All that is put forward as possible explanations are purely speculative. What we do know is that it's present in some Native American groups, particularly from Brazil. We also know it has to be pre-Columbian. Amongst possible explanations for the presence of Australo-Malaysian DNA in the Amazon that Professor Willislev offered in his email exchange with me was the following, quote, someone holding this signal comes into the Americas, not through Beringia, but crossing into South America across the ocean. Based purely on the genetic data, this is the most parsimonious explanation, but it does not make practical sense. 
Normally, science looks for parsimonious explanations. It's called Occam's razor. The simpler theory is likely to be correct. But in this case, it somehow doesn't make practical sense. I asked him, why, Eski, doesn't it make practical sense? Is it, are you basing that on the archaeological consensus that Upper Paleolithic and early Holocene ancestors were incapable of undertaking long transoceanic voyages? And he replies... In regard to crossing the Pacific, I'm not saying it did not happen, but there's no evidence suggesting that humans were capable of such a journey until quite late in history, the Polynesian expansion, for example. It's a possibility, and I'm open to the idea, but there's not much evidence supporting it, except going for the most parsimonious solution to the genetic data. Well, Esky says that there's no evidence that humans could sail the oceans uh, during the Ice Age, but I would uh, disagree with that. Uh, there are, there's a category of ancient maps, uh, which are really very, very weird. You start seeing them in the 1400s and they go on through, actually they last copies and copies and copies of older maps, keep on being made, go on through until the 17, even into the early 1800s. Um, the maps are messy and complicated because in each case, what they do is they incorporate current knowledge, the knowledge that was available in the 15th century, with a much older source map that the map maker is copying from. And he tries to, he tries to coordinate and correlate the data between the new discoveries and the indications on ancient source maps now lost. All these maps are copied from older source maps, but then modified on the basis of knowledge available at that time. So, Let's look at Southeast Asia today, uh, and in 1507, it was no different then. That's on the left, the Malaysian Peninsula, the Indonesian islands, and so on and so forth. Let's look at Southeast Asia in the Waltzi-Muller world map of 1507. It looks a lot more like Southeast Asia and Australia 21,300 years ago, when sea level was 400 feet lower than it is today, than it looks like Southeast Asia in 1507. Pisigano chart of 1424, that's one of those examples of where they're copying an old source map, but applying their idea of the world to it. <laughs> so weirdly, I, I don't know if you can make it out, but, but what, we're, what we're seeing here is, uh, of course, Western Europe and, 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 and Spain. And um, at that time, the conventional wisdom was that uh, they knew Japan existed, Japan had been mapped, they knew it existed, uh, and they thought, those who believed the world was round, thought that if you just sailed west far enough, you'd reach Japan. They didn't know about America. That wasn't part of the conventional wisdom in the 1424. So in this map, Japan, called Satanase and Antilia, uh, and Taiwan, called Antilia, are actually depicted in the Atlantic Ocean. But uh, that's just the false idea of the world that existed in 1424. What's interesting is the way they depict uh, Japan and Taiwan. Uh, but I'll just go into the Japan detail. Uh, Japan, during the lowered Ice Age sea levels between 13,500 and 12,400 years ago, is depicted on the left. On the right is Japan today. And in the middle is Japan as depicted on the 1424 Pisigano chart. Japan today has three main islands. I'm, I'm leaving out Hokkaido. It has three main islands, Honshu, Shikoku, and Kyushu. During lowered sea levels, Kyushu and Shikoku were joined to Honshu because of lowered sea levels. That is what is shown 
1424 Pizigano chart. It's showing Japan as it looked during the Ice Age, not as it looked in 1424. And then Antarctica. Well, on the right, Antarctica as we know it today. But our civilization didn't discover Antarctica until 1820. So conventional knowledge in 1813 had it that there was no such thing as Antarctica. And that is demonstrated on the 1813 Pinkerton map of the Southern Hemisphere. It wasn't copied from older source maps. It was based on the latest science of the time. Uh, and what it shows is no Antarctic continent. There's nothing there. It's an honest map. Nobody had been to Antarctica as far as they knew, and then there was, they just believed there was nothing there. But weirdly, if you go back to the 16th, 15th, 14th centuries, you find Antarctica depicted on loads of maps. And it's depicted, there it is on the right, just south of South America, exactly where it should be. It's depicted a bit bigger than it is today, but it's depicted in the right place and broadly speaking, the right format. And again, I repeat to you, these maps, the map makers themselves tell us, are based on much older source maps that they copied from and which are now lost. Here's the Canepa map from 1489. Uh, it's a map of North Africa. Note that there's a clearly marked massive river channel and the indication of a green and fertile Sahara. And below is the complete Canepa map. And on the right, a 2015 radar survey of Mauritania shows that there was a river channel in exactly the place depicted on that 1424 map based on copies of older source maps. Something is going on here. We should be paying attention to it. Uh, here we have the Ptolemus Argentea map of 1513. It shows a little island called High Brazil lying off the west coast of the island of Ireland. And um, I know of two expeditions that were sent out from Bristol in the 1500s to look for High Brazil because of maps like this. They believed it was there. Well, that little island did once exist off the west coast of Ireland during the Ice Age, 13,000 years ago, when the sea level was much lower. It's been underwater ever since, but there it turns up on a map drawn in 1513 based on much older source maps. And the Piri Reis map which also shows Antarctica. I won't go into that detail here. What's fascinating to me about it is that island, uh, this island here, and this row of megaliths running up the middle of it, because that island is in the exact place of Bimini today. And if you go diving at Bimini, as we have done, you'll find yourself on the Bimini Road. And the Bimini Road looks exactly like the megalithic blocks featured on that island. So it suggests that I, that island was mapped before the Bimini Road was submerged by rising sea levels. Um, the Amazon seems like an unlikely setting to find evidence of an ancient practice of science, but it is there if you look for it. There's more than 150,000 different species of plants and trees in the Amazon. Two of them are required to make the psychedelic brew ayahuasca. One part of it is made from the leaves of this plant, this bush, which in the Amazon is known as chacruda, and which scientists call Cicotria viridis. Its leaves contain 
quantities of dimethyltryptamine, DMT, uh, the single most powerful, I hate the word hallucinogen, but I'll use it, the single most powerful hallucinogen known to science, DMT. Normally, when we experience DMT in the West, we experienced it in smoked form. People smoke it. It is, by the time you get the third pull on the pipe, you are on a rocket ship to the other side of reality. <sighs> Can be utterly terrifying, amazingly interesting. Rocket ship to the other side of reality, strange alien environment. What's good about it is the journey ends after about 12 minutes and you're back. And you say, Whew, I survived. Why do we smoke it? Because DMT is not orally active. If you were to make a tea out of these leaves, you could drink gallons of the stuff and it wouldn't have any effect at all. It wouldn't have any effect on your consciousness at all. And that's because there's an enzyme in our gut called monoamine oxidase that destroys DMT on contact. That's why we need to smoke it, get it straight into the bloodstream that way. But in the Amazon, they found a way to make DMT We're getting there, everybody. <laughs> Orally active. Remember, they did this out of 150,000 different plants and trees. They found the two that worked together that would make the DMT and those leaves orally active. The second ingredient is the ayahuasca vine itself. Mm. And guess what it contains? It contains a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So it shuts down that monoamine oxidase in the gut and it allows the DMT and the leaves which are cooked together with the vine to be orally active. And there's the mixture of the leaves and the vine and there's Francisco Montesuna smashing up lengths of the vine to prepare for cooking and they cook it up together in a, in a cooking pot and eventually you end up with a cup of this incredibly foul-tasting brew, uh, which in your early experiences with ayahuasca will cause you to vomit and to have diarrhea uncontrollably often, but it uh, you get used to it after a while, like you, like you do to most things, if you're prepared to do the work. Uh, curare is another scientific achievement of the Amazon. There's actually 40 different types of curare in the Amazon, made from 70 different plants, and it's been adopted into modern medical anesthesiology. Uh, in, 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 the, in the Amazon, it, it's used because it causes paralysis and death by asphyx asphyxiation as the muscles required for breathing cease to function. It's particularly useful for killing tree-dwelling animals without poisoning their meat. It causes them to relax their grip and fall to the ground. Monkeys, when hit with an untreated arrow, tend to wrap their tails uh, around a branch and die out of the archer's reach. Um, but uh, when they're shot with a curare arrow, their muscles are completely relaxed and they fall to the, they fall to the ground. Uh, I'm quoting from Jeremy Narby here, an amazing book, The Cosmic Serpent, DNA and the Origins of Knowledge. To produce it, it is necessary to combine several plants and boil them for 72 hours while avoiding the fragrant but mortal vapors emitted by the broth. The final product is a paste that is inactive unless injected under the skin. If swallowed, it has no effect. It's difficult to see how anybody could have stumbled on this recipe by chance experimentation. What we're looking at with curare and ayahuasca is clear evidence of scientific thinking in the Amazon and scientific practice. 
in the very ancient past. There's evidence of ayahuasca use going back more than 4,000 years in the Amazon, and I'm certain it goes back much further than that. Uh, they created a magical soil in the Amazon. It's called Terra Preta, based on biochar. Um, it goes back at least 8,000 years. Again, I think it goes back further than that. Those areas of Terra Preta are still sought out today. Uh, because rainforest soils are not particularly fertile. That's why it's so useless to create soya bean farms by destroying the rainforest, because within a generation, those soybean farms won't be producing any soybeans at all. The fertility of the Amazon is maintained by the, the, the whole ecosystem and the drop of leaves fertilizing the ground. But there are these patches of the Amazon that contain ancient terra preta, and they're still sought out, this black earth, which is self-regenerating, full of microbes, incredibly um, nourishing to, to, to plants. And here's Francisco de Orellana <laughs> in uh, the 1540s, early 1540s. He uh, went on a hunting expedition with a bunch of his friends um, out, of, um, out of Ecuador. And um, <laughs> the, uh, their intention was to be away from base for like two or three days. But the Amazon River disagreed and the Amazon carried their boat and they just had to go with the flow. It took them more than a year, but they crossed the entire length of South width of South America and they ended up in the Atlantic Ocean and they eventually made their way up to Mexico. On that journey, they saw huge cities in the Amazon and they saw people of great intelligence, skillful men um, who appeared to be from all the tasks which they performed, not only in carving, but in drawing and in painting in all colors, very bright. So great arts and huge cities were described. Um, ever afterwards, Francisco de, de Orellana, including by modern archaeologists, similar in those internested sort of U-shapes to the Tucano idea of the entrance to the other world. The, the implication, and it's supported by a lot of other research, is that the Amazonian geoglyphs were connected to the same complex of death and afterlife beliefs that flourished in ancient Egypt and in the ancient Mississippi Valley. And by the way, there's a lot of geometry in the ancient Egyptian Duat. If you look at the tomb paintings, you will find that they're just filled with geometric structures uh, as they depict the Duat. So not only do we have spectacular earthworks uh, coming to our attention in the Amazon, but we also have an unknown number of true megalithic sites. And Rego Grande uh, is one of those sites, uh, and it's recognized by archaeoastronomers as a solar-aligned site. Uh, and just a reminder, we have these key moments of the year, the summer solstice, the winter solstice, and the equinox, when the sun rises due east at the summer solstice, north of east at the winter solstice, south of east. Uh, the Rego Grande stone circle in the Brazilian Amazon, actually these days it's nicknamed locally as the Amazonian Stonehenge. Um, it has clever sightings, uh, the stone three tracks the path of the sun throughout the day on the winter solstice. Stones one and two, the former with a sighting hole cut through it, line up to target the winter solstice sunrise. Mm. 
and there is Stonehenge. And uh, the key alignment of Stonehenge targets the summer solstice sunrise in one direction and the winter solstice sunset in the opposite direction. You can understand why that site in Rebo Grande is called the Amazonian Stonehenge. And this focus on the solstices is found throughout the ancient world. This is it's a beautiful moment to be at the Temple of Karnak. Be there on the 21st of December, the winter solstice, and you will see the sunrise directly down that kilometer-long axis and sit on top of a gateway at the end of that axis. It's the whole temple is built to celebrate the rising sun on the winter solstice. That's its purpose. And of course, I've talked about the Great Sphinx already and how it targets the rising sun on the equinox. So, by the way, it is Angkor Wat. Uh, if you stand on the very long uh, entrance causeway to Angkor Wat uh, at dawn on the spring equinox and wait for the sun to rise, mm. you'll come to a moment where it sits exactly atop the central tower. It doesn't happen at any other time except the equinoxes. Angkor is an equinoctial temple. Uh, and here's Serpent Mound in Ohio, one of the truly magical places in North America. Uh, if you don't have a chance to go there, go there. It's an incredible place. Oh, my God. An enormous, more than 1,300-foot-long figure of a serpent Very awesome created as an yes. earthwork in Ohio. Uh, and here are some illustrations. You can see that it stands on a, on a kind of bluff. Uh, that the, the serpent was carved out on a rocky bluff, uh, was, was created as an earthwork on a rocky bluff. Uh, and uh, down, if you go down the side of that bluff, uh, you can see the end of it. On the left, you can see the absolute edge of the bluff. And on the right, there's a huge megalith there. It turns out that was part of a group of megaliths that restorers in the 19th century decided weren't necessary and threw off the bluff and dumped down below. Curious thing, um, on the right, it's an unenhanced image of the cliff. On the left, I've enhanced it so that hopefully you can see what I see. That cliff already looks like a serpent. Nature has, nature has created a serpent head in the, in the bluff directly beneath Serpent Mound. And that bluff has a particular orientation. When Serpent Mound was created, it was chosen because of that orientation and because it already looked like a serpent. Um, and I'm going to go into those details now. Here's a LIDAR graphic of Serpent Mound. And it turns out that it targets the summer solstice sunset. The bluff itself did that. Nature, Earth speaking to sky, already targeted the summer solstice sunset and ancient Native Americans recognizing that came and honored the place where nature had united sky and ground by creating this massive earthwork of a serpent with its open jaws, again, targeting exactly the point of sunset uh, on the summer solstice. Many other alignments, too, if you take in the curves to the different moments of the year. Uh, but it's that summer solstice sunset alignment that's particularly striking. And Santa and I went there on the summer solstice, uh, 21st of June in uh, 2017. And Santa flew a drone 400 feet above Serpent Mound 
so that she could track the setting of the sun. Um, let's just see what happens. So at first, the sun is so bright, you can't really see what's happening. But then as it goes down, you can begin to see it's descending into a niche in the hills and the serpent's head is directly in alignment with the sun. This is a majestic symphony of sky and ground that we see before us in Ohio. (laughs) There's still archaeologists who deny it. They say, nah, it's not a solstitial monument at all. (laughs) <laughs> they just wanted to create a fancy-looking serpent. Shame. Um, move north from Serpent Mound, and you have the Newark Earthworks and the High Bank Works. Uh, really important sites. Um, the main axis of High Bank Works, the line projected through the centre of the circle and the octagon, bears a direct relationship to the axis of Newark's observatory circle and octagon. Although built more than 60 miles apart, the axis of high bank works is oriented at precisely 90 degrees to that of the Newark earthworks. This suggests a deliberate attempt to link these sites through geometry and astronomy. And this is a 1934 aerial photograph that shows the circle octagon combination of the Newark earthworks. Uh, it's a sign of the world we live in that <laughs> those parts that are that still survive, are now largely contained within a private country club, including an 18-hole golf course, which promotes itself as, quote, unlike any other in the world. It is designed around famous prehistoric Native American earthworks that come into play on 11 of the holes. At one level, I find it really annoying that a private country club, a golf course, is uh, built around this incredible ancient. Whoops. ancient American site. On the other level, I have to recognize that if that hadn't happened, the Newark earthquakes wouldn't exist at all. They'd have been plowed under, gone, long ago. So it's a mixed curse or mixed blessing, depending on how you want to look at it. This is a bit of the Mound Builders Country Club with some of those very large embankments uh, that make up the circle and the octagon that we're, that we're seeing there. The Newark Great Circle, also known as the Fairground Circle, with its interior ditches, represented here on the left. The diameter of the circle is 365.9 meters. On the right here is uh, a circle in England, uh, the Avebury Great Circle, southwest England, not far from where we live in in Bath in the southwest of England. We often go to Avebury. And both the the Newark Circle and the Avebury Circle are, are true hinges with the embankment external to the ditch. That's what a henge is, by the way. It's a, it's a ditch with an embankment. Uh, people say Stonehenge, but that focuses on the stones, but it's really it's the ditch with the embankment that makes a henge. And uh, Avery is a classic henge with its embankment outside the ditch, and then you get these, these huge megalithic uh, stones within it. That's an aerial view of Avery with the few remaining stones there was um, 
a determined attempt in the 16th century to destroy all the stones. There was a man who described himself as stone crusher, and he used to go around with a big hammer and try and smash up the stones because they were felt to be heathen in some way, but <clears throat> they defied even him and quite a few of the stones are left. So variations on the theme of squaring the circle. There's the Jacosar earthworks in the Amazon, circle in the middle, square on the outside. Ancient works in Pike County, Ohio, as marked back by Squire and Davis in 1848, they no longer exist, but again, a circle and a square are brought into play. Uh, and now we'll, we'll come back uh, to the complete Avebury complex, most of which is gone. We're just left with the central circle now, um, but as it would have looked in antiquity, approached by two monumental causeways. And on the right, recent archaeological discovery, the reconstructed ground plan of Avebury's southern inner circle, which circumscribed the newly described megalithic, newly discovered megalithic square. So the circle and the square theme is being played with in Avebury in the southwest of England, as well as in North America and indeed in South America. So the perimeter of Newark's great square on the left is equal to the circumference of the great circle in the center, and its area is equal to the area of the observatory circle right. I mean, these were very sophisticated surveyors and setting out engineers and astronomers. We need to pay them tribute for the incredible work that they did. So the moon, um, we don't notice this, in daily life. We notice the full moon, times when the moon is absent from the sky. What we don't really notice is that the moon actually has an 18.6 year cycle with extreme rising and setting points along the horizon. And it turns out that all of those eight key stations of the cycle are targeted um, in the earthworks at Newark in the octagon and the circle. And there's a simulation on the left of maximum northern moonrise at Newark as viewed along the observatory circle octagon axis. Let's go to Cahokia in Madison County, Illinois. Um, it's the largest pyramid in the Americas north of Mexico. It was made around 1050 AD, so it's less than a thousand years old, but it was a direct inheritor of remotely ancient traditions that were here brought to fruition. Unlike the lunar focus of Newark, Cahokia is in every sense a city of the sun. There's a, an aerial view of the Cahokia pyramid. And uh, it's called Monk's Mound these days, looking at it from the east, looking west. There's a reconstruction of the site. You'll notice off to the left a, a woodhenge. There's a woodhenge at Stonehenge in England as well, by the way. Um, often these uh, wooden circles were used to plan out the big megalithic site. They, they would allow you to make sightings of the sun's rising and setting positions without committing enormous blocks of stone to them. And then you could follow that pattern and create the, the, the big megalithic site. And there's the Woodhenge at uh, Cahokia. Uh, and uh, indeed, it is all about targeting the summer solstice, the winter solstice, and the equinoxes. Uh, and that's the alignment of the center post to the equinox market post to the equinox sunrise over the southern face of Monk's Mound. Um, this is almost too complicated to get into. But uh, the whole axis of Cahokia is tilted uh, about five degrees off true north. Um, and uh, 
why is it that so? What, since they clearly could do north-south alignments, there's a building that stood on top of Monk's Mound that's perfectly aligned north, south, east and west. Why did they tilt the axis of the whole site five degrees east of true north? William Romain, one of the great archaeoastronomers working in this field, has proposed an intriguing answer to that. Yeah, I'm going to read it. In brief, a root two rectangle is constructed by extending the opposite sides of a square to the length of the square's diagonal. If you take such a rectangle, orient it to true north, and then rotate it eastwards by five degrees to match the azimuth of Cahokia's principal axis, its diagonals turn out to align closely with important solar and lunar events as viewed from Monk's Mound, specifically the summer solstice sunrise, the winter solstice sunset, the moon's maximum southern rising position and the moon's maximum northern setting position. Again, evidence of really clever, really advanced, really sophisticated geometrical and astronomical knowledge. These monumental earthworks with their carefully thought through alignments to significant lunar and solar events are, are evidence that a civilization and spiritual system built around sophisticated observations of the heavens once flourished in the Americas. How, how far back can we trace this system? Uh, where did it have its origins? This is uh, Poverty Point um, down in uh, Louisiana. It was created around 1430 BC, which is roughly the time of the Pharaoh Tutankhamun uh, in, in Egypt. And that's when this, this mound, which sometimes is referred to as Bird Mound, but generally... Uh, is called Mound A. It's the second largest earthwork mound in North America after Monk's Mound. That was when it was heaped up in Poverty Point. And uh, in front of Mound A, there are a series of ridges in almost semicircular pattern, six ridges. Hard to see these days, but they are there still. Uh, and it turns out that all of these target key moments of the solar year. That once again, we have a site that is designed to honor the connection of earth and sky. Um, and and uh, William Remains' LIDAR work confirms that Mound E, Mound A, and Mound B are all aligned to true north. And what's interesting is that you can take a line through them and run it all the way down two and a half miles away to Lower Jackson Mound. And Lower Jackson Mound is 3,000 years older than Poverty Point. That tells us that the builders of Poverty Point held Lower Jackson Mound as important, this mound that was already 3,000 years old in their time. They held it as important and they anchored their site to Lower Jackson Mound mm. with that cardinal alignment. And then Watson Break, that's another five, five and a half thousand year old mound site uh, in Louisiana. And again, it joins Earth and sky. And I'm showing here in the diagram all the equinox and solstice sight lines at Watson Break, confirmed again with a LIDAR survey by Bill Romain. So both Watson Break and Caney Mounds share a geometrical system based on 60 degree. You tell me, how sexy are those elbows? degree equilateral triangles. And Norman Davis, an archaeologist, admits that it's probably not a coincidence that Watson Brake, 
the distance along the horizon from where the sun rises or sets on the winter solstice to where it rises or sets on the summer solstice defines an arc of 59 degrees. The triangle was probably derived from this. So I'll just take you back. Watson break, uh, 3,590 BC, maybe 3,400 BC. That makes it 5,500, maybe close to 6,000 years old. Caney mounds could be 6,600, sorry, 5,600 years old. Frenchman's Bend, Five, 3,570 BC, so 5,570 years old. Some research suggests it might go back as far as 4,610 BC, so more than 6,000 years old. Hedgepeth Mounds, very close to 7,000 years old. Montesano, 4,240 BC. Other evidence putting it at 5,000 to 5,500 BC, i.e. going back towards 7,500 years ago. And the Conley Mounds, Eight radiocarbon dates securely locate the site between 7,500 and 8,000 years old. Now, in North America, I would say, this is based on good evidence, that around 90%, maybe more, of the mound sites that existed before uh, Columbus uh, are all gone now. They've all been destroyed. We're left with a tiny fraction of them, but even that tiny fraction tells us that these mound builder sites go back at least 8,000 years. I'm sure if we had more evidence, if it hadn't been plowed under, if it hadn't been destroyed, we would see they go back even further than that. It's going to jump down to the Amazon again and to a place called Pedro Pintada. It's a rock shelter. Uh, I'm not going to go heavily into the details here. It's all in America before if you really want to read about it. Um, uh, Pedro Pintada itself hasn't been surveyed, but, but a nearby site um, 400 meters away at Pinel de Palau has been surveyed. It's dated to around 13,000 years ago, and it has definite astronomical alignments. Uh, it uses this sun capture window to predict the equinox 18 to 20 days before and after the equinox. The sun rises in that window. Um, there is a chart on the walls of Pinel de Palau, which uh, seems to mark that off. They were watching the skies very carefully, uh, and the red circle above the uh, excavation unit, uh, the red circle marks the spot where the sun would shine through the crevice directly beneath the circle on the day of the equinox. So this, this worldwide theme of creating monuments on the ground in different shapes and forms that targeted the solstices and the equinoxes cannot be in doubt. It's all over the world. Um, it's uh, in the new world and it's in the old world. Archaeologists will tell you that civilization began in the old world, that the new world has nothing to do with the origins of civilization. I have a book in my shelves called History Begins at Sumer, uh, which um, is a pretty good book, actually, by Samuel Noah Kramer. Uh, written some years ago, and it it um, makes the case for Sumer being the origin of civilization. It all began at Sumer. History, literally history, began at Sumer. Uh, and we now know that Sumer, through Mesopotamia, has a connection to Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe lies exactly between the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Yeah. 
Mesopotamia means between the rivers. It's Mesopotamia is the land that was defined by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So we can't separate Gobekli Tepe from that. If the origins of civilization are to be traced to Sumer, then we need to trace them even further back to Gobekli Tepe. But was Gobekli Tepe even the origin? New evidence from the Americas threatens to overturn the paradigm that places the origins of civilization in the Middle East. Again, the last glacial maximum, sea level 400 feet lower, freezing temperatures. With that lowered sea level, all Native American populations, according to the conventional model, their ancestors are supposed to have migrated across what are now the Bering Straits, but was then a landmass that uh, archaeologists refer to as Beringia because sea level was lower and actually Russia and Alaska were physically joined. Siberia and Alaska, and you could cross. So it seemed an obvious, and certainly many Native American peoples, their ancestors did come the Beringia route. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, Long-held view of geneticists that there was a single common and relatively recent origin for Native Americans as migrants across the Bering Land Bridge, Beringia, from North Northeast Asia, Siberia, and thence into the Americas. And you can see why they come to that argument, because actually in the Laurentide and Cordillerian ice sheets, uh, uh, an ice-free corridor opened up about 13,400 years ago. And for a very long time, it was believed that there were no human beings in America before 13,400 years ago. They took advantage of that ice-free corridor to enter through Beringia and come into North America. This view is beginning to fall apart. We've already seen how that notion is challenged by that Australasian and Melanesian DNA uh, in the heart of the Amazon rainforest. Um, The model that said that there were no humans in America before 13,400 years ago actually has a name. It's called Clovis First. And it had a death grip on American archaeology for about 40 years. The notion that the culture that they call the Clovis culture was the first culture to enter the Americas, the very first human beings in America. Why is it called the Clovis culture? Um, Because the first findings of the typical tools made by these people were found at a site um, near the town of Clovis, New Mexico. That's why it's called the Clovis culture. Mm Uh, and they made these beautiful fluted points. And there's no doubt about their dates from 13,000 to about 12,800 years ago. 13,400 to 12,800 years ago, then the Clovis culture vanishes. Not surprisingly, because 12,800 years ago is the beginning of the Younger Dryness. So here's newest new scientists uh, fessing up. Not so long ago, there was a simple and seemingly incontrovertible answer to the question of how and when the first settlers made it to the Americas. Some 13,000 years ago, a group of people from Asia walked across the land bridge that connected Siberia to Alaska and headed south. These were the Clovis people. It was the received wisdom. So compelling was the Clovis first model that few archaeologists even contemplated an alternative. Some with the temerity to do so complained of a Clovis police intent on suppressing dissent. No longer. Thanks to recent discoveries, the identity of the first Americans is 
an open question again. They say here, because this article was written in 2013, Clovis First is not quite dead. Well, <laughs> it's dead now, believe me. Clovis was not first and not by a long way. This is what happened to poor Jacques Cinq-Mars, who challenged the Clovis First dogma. And I tell this story because it's an example of what's so wrong with archaeology. Archaeology is supposed to be a science, not a bloody religion with dogmas. It's supposed to be a science where new evidence causes us to investigate rather than just reject. Jacques Cinq-Mars found evidence of a human presence at Bluefish Caves in the Yukon about 24,000 years ago. And as the Smithsonian now admit, rather than launching a major new search for more early evidence, the finds stirred fierce opposition and a bitter debate, one of the most acrimonious and unfruitful in all of science, uh, as, as nature notes. So here's Jacques Cinq-Mars in the 1990s. He tried presenting his evidence at conferences. People laughed at him. They mocked him. They insulted him. His research funding was withdrawn. He was turned into a pariah by the archaeological community. They accused him of pseudoscience. They said he was misleading the public because everybody knew that Clovis was first. But they were wrong. And he was right. Smithsonian again, fessing up. Today, decades later, the Clovis first model has collapsed. Based on dozens of new studies, we now know that the pre-Clovis people slaughtered mastodons in Washington state, dined on desert parsley in Oregon, made all-purpose stone tools that were the Ice Age version of ex-actor blades in Texas, and slept in sprawling hide-covered homes in Chile, all between 13,800 and 15,500 years ago, possibly earlier. And in January... A University of Montreal PhD candidate, Lorraine de Bourguignon, and her colleagues published a new study of bluefish caves, the very caves that Jacques Cinq-Mars had studied and had said that there was evidence of humans there 24,000 years ago and had his career ruined by his colleagues as a result. The new study vindicated him, confirmed that humans had butchered horses and other animals there 24,000 years ago. It was a huge surprise, says Bourguignon. They still want to keep it young. They want to keep it as young as possible. Okay, reluctantly we'll let go to Clovis first, but let's, let's not go too far back. You know, maybe 15,000 years ago, there's some possible indications of 20,000, 22,000, but it, it's a bit dodgy, you know. Let's just keep it as young as we possibly can. This seems to be the mission of American archaeology. I don't understand why they want Native American culture to be young. Mm. Uh, as um, the Smithsonian adds, the study raises, Bourguignon study, which vindicated Jacques Cinq Mars, raises serious questions about the effect of the bitter decade. Lowe's has all the flooring pros need, with a large selection from Stain Master and Moffat, in store and online today. Mm decades-long debate over the peopling of the new world. Did archaeologists in the mainstream marginalize dissenting voices on this key issue? You bet they did. Mm. And what was the impact on American archaeology? It just made American archaeology unable to think outside the box for about 40 years. They were locked in that paradigm, and the paradigm was wrong. The scientific atmosphere was clearly toxic, 
and clearly impeded science. And that is happening all over the world today in archaeology. Here's Al Goodyear. He found evidence of human beings in North America 50,000 years ago. He was excavating a Clovis site. And then he did what other archaeologists had never done because they knew there was nothing before Clovis. Al thought, maybe I'll dig a bit deeper. So he dug a bit deeper. And lo and behold, what he discovered, that topper, beneath the Clovis layer, into the Pleistocene layer, was evidence of human presence. Not 20,000 years ago, not 15,000 years ago, but 50,000 years ago. <laughs> Our Goodyear has taken a lot of flack from that, from his colleagues. And here's the dynamite. This was breaking news in April 2017. The Ceruti Mastodon site near San Diego in California is more than 130,000 years old. It's 115,000 years earlier than thought. And again, I want to emphasize, this is not the work of pseudoscientists. This is Tom Demeray, who's the lead paleontologist at the San Diego Natural History Museum. It's he who excavated the Ceruti Mastodon site. And on the right of the picture here, I'm on the left, I'm talking to Tom in the museum. And on the right is, is the Mastodon tusk, as it was found in the site, stuck point down into the ground. They found masses of evidence of human beings butchering animals there, breaking open the bones, extracting the marrow, classic human behavior. I'm not saying this was a lost civilization or advanced civilization was present in the Americas 130,000 years ago, but I'm saying there's now evidence that some kind of humans were present in the Americas and butchering animals 130,000 years ago. And Tom Dillahay's evidence is, um, not Tom Dillahay, Tom Demeray, uh, his, uh, his, his evidence, in my view, is uh, compelling. And I go into it in detail in America before. So here's the point. If the Americas had been inhabited by humans for 130,000 years, more than twice as long as Europe, 10 times as long as previously supposed, then our whole understanding of human prehistory has to change. Mm -hmm. Because we have this vast, resource-rich landmass of the Americas it may have been the location of hitherto unrecognized advances and developments in the story of civilization. Mm -hmm. But if this was so, why haven't archaeologists noticed? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is a cataclysm. Mm -hmm. This is Blackwater, the, the cataclysm of the Younger Dryas. This is Blackwater Draw in New Mexico. It's the Clovis type site, and I'm there with a couple of young archaeologists. And I'm pleased to say that the younger generation of archaeologists are quite different from their uh, elders. They're much more open-minded, much more excited, much more interested in the mystery of the past, much more willing to entertain what their elders would regard as extraordinary ideas. I've had some very exciting conversations with young archaeologists around the world, and I place my hope in them. So Murray Springs, Arizona. Uh, here we have evidence. You see that black line running across the draw there? That's the Younger Dryas boundary. It's filled with those impact proxies. Um, the Younger Dryas boundary layer. And uh, here we have a shot from uh, the 1960s and we have Vance Haynes excavating a mammoth. They called her Eloise. And draped over her like shrink wrap is the Younger Dryas boundary layer. She's clear evidence of an animal that was killed in those Younger Dryas impacts. Um, and uh, I'm with geophysicist Alan West at Murray Springs. We're looking at the Younger Dryas boundary and he 
remarks that the black mat was draped like shrink wrap over Eloise and the last remains of Clovis. There's nothing of Clovis above the Younger Dryas boundary. The Younger Dryas ended Clovis. A uh, couple of these papers that I've talked about before, the massive extent of the Younger Dryas disaster, um, and the most recent paper from, from Chile with the melt glass in Chile. Uh, and now let's jump up to North America uh, and the... After saving with customized car insurance from Liberty Mutual, I customized everything, like Marco's backpack. Younger Dryas impact hypothesis puts four impacts at least on the North American ice cap. And these weren't small objects. These were one or two kilometer diameter objects. <coughs> one of the reasons that it's been hard to find craters is because the ice at that time was still a mile deep. So if your object hits a mile deep ice cap, it's going to shock the ground underneath it, but it's not going to leave a huge crater because the crater is in ice, which then melts away. Nevertheless, Craters have been found, of which the most convincing is the Corosol crater, dated exactly to the Younger Dryas period. Also the Bloody Creek structure and the Charity Shoal feature. And then we have that huge crater in Greenland that I talked about earlier, uh, the Hiawatha crater. Um, now, never mind about craters. Uh, what, we, what we're saying is, what the Comet Research Group are saying is that several objects hit the North American ice cap 12,800 years ago. They caused sudden and dramatic melting of the North American ice cap. Those meltwaters went into the world ocean, but they also went south over the parts of North America that were not covered by ice. And there they caused incredible damage, which is still visible, unmissable, actually, to this day. You can see it on this map, the ice sheet and, its, and how it ends just above what are called the channeled scablands. And the channeled scablands go there if you get the chance, if you haven't been there already. Incredible landscapes. The channeled scablands were created by that gush of water that came off the ice sheet. It wasn't just a few glacial lakes bursting their banks. This was a huge, massive, almost incomprehensible flood that created the channeled scablands. That blue area isn't water, but it's the area that was scoured out by those floods in the channeled scablands. Uh, and nobody disputes that they were created by floods uh, 12,800 years ago. It's just that the, the orthodox system prefers it to have not been something cataclysmic. It prefers it to have been glacial lakes that burst their banks. It, it doesn't like the idea. There's some reason, I don't know, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it makes sense. People don't like cataclysms. Um, but the Cheney-Palouse scabland from the air, it's a mess. I mean, you can see what those floods did. Here was J. Harlan Bretz. He was the first to propose that massive flooding had created the Channel Scablands. Of course, he was insulted. He was humiliated. His colleagues said he was mad. I didn't have the word pseudoscientist in his days, but <laughs> he was insulted. But it turned out he was right. He originally proposed a single humongous flood uh, running for a few weeks only as the source of all the damage. This was what was rejected Geologists wanted to have 80 floods spread out over 2,000 years. They wanted to make his raw catastrophism less catastrophic. But in 1979, after spending half his life as a geological pariah, Bretz was awarded the Penrose Medal of the Geological Society of America 
the most prestigious award in the field of geology. He was 96 years old at the time. <laughs> and after receiving the award, he reportedly told his son, all my enemies are dead, so I have no one to gloat over. <laughs> If he'd lived to see the evidence that the North American ice cap was hit 12,800 years ago by several large fragments of the Younger Dryas comet, uh, I think he would have uh, abandoned Glacial Lake Missoula and returned to the original conclusion of his field research, that there had been a single humongous flood. The comet provides the hitherto missing heat source to account for the sudden melting of a sufficiently vast area of the ice cap. So let's have a look at some of those areas in the channeled scablands. I had the privilege, Santa and I had the privilege uh, to do a big journey uh, through the channeled scablands in 2017 with Randall Carlson. And if you don't know about Randall Carlson, I suggest you look him up and find out more about him and look out for the couple of Joe Rogan Experience episodes that Randall and I did together. Randall is a classic example of why academics shouldn't have a stranglehold on the past. He's a totally self-made man. He's a builder, actually, by trade. But he's a genius, and he has devoted himself to the geological study of the child scablands, amongst other things. And so it was an eye-opening experience to travel through the child scablands with, with Randall. Here we are... <coughs> in front of our large American vehicle. Uh, and behind us is um, uh, is a bit of dry falls, what are called dry falls, which is a fossilized waterfall. And here we are on the lookout point overlooking dry falls. You can see the, the scallops of dry falls in the background, this fossilized waterfall across which huge quantities of water once pulled. It's difficult to get a sense of scale. So let's put Niagara Falls into the picture. That's Niagara Falls by comparison with what is just a little bit of Dry Falls. Niagara Falls is, is tiny. It's the work of thousands of years of the river. Dry Falls were created in a couple of weeks and then the water flow stopped and it became a fossilized waterfall. It's a truly enormous feature. This is the, I was recently taught how to pronounce it pronounce this. I used to call it the Williamette meteorite, but apparently it's Willamette. The Willamette meteorite. It's quite interesting. It, it's iron meteorite. It fell on the North American ice cap and was transported in those floods uh, to the Willamette Valley in Oregon uh, during the Younger Dryas floods 12,800 years ago. It was known and venerated by local peoples, uh, and according to local legend, it was sent to Earth as a representative of the sky people, exemplifying a union of sky, earth, and water. On the right, you can see the Willamette meteorite being transported to the museum, where it now stands. I'll make an interesting point, which I haven't really had the opportunity to go into, but it's what's called an oriented meteorite. If you see here, it's a bit pyramidal in form. That's a, as the as the object is coming in through the Earth's atmosphere at tremendous speed, it's generating tremendous heat and it's melting the iron at the front and it turns it into this conical form. And actually, that is the original form of the Benben stone in ancient Egypt, which was used to form the pyramidions and the tops of, of pyramids. It was derived from an iron, uh, a conical iron meteorite. Uh, not only was the Melamite uh, meteorite carried on those floods, a lot of other things were carried on those floods too. Uh, we're above the town of Wenatchee here, in Washington State. 
And uh, you see that big boulder on the right? It doesn't belong there. It came from about 150 miles further north. It's what's called a glacial erratic. Uh, there's me and Randall standing in front of it. And there's me on top of it for scale. This thing weighs 18,000 tons. Mm. It was carried there in an iceberg floated on those floods. Mm. And that iceberg would have been the size of an oil tanker to carry this uh, huge, massive object. And then it caught up against a hillside and grounded. The floods carried away. The iceberg melted away and it left behind this huge rock that it had enchained. It's not alone. There are thousands of these enormous rocks that were carried there on those terrible floods 12,800 years ago in icebergs and dumped dumped on the landscape of the Channel Scabbards. This one's actually called Boulder Park. There's so many of them. Um, and some of them, like Dry Falls, are on a truly vast scale. On the left, uh, we've all seen current ripples. Everybody who goes to the beach has seen what happens when the tide goes out. You get these little ripples, might be half an inch high, a few inches long. Nature is fractal. Nature works on many scales. It can work on small scales and on large scales. In the Camas Prairie, there are current ripples that were created by those floods 12,800 years ago. As they receded, they left behind these ripples. And these ripples, do you see what I see there? Just that tiny little white thing there? That's a car amidst the ripples of the Camas Prairie. These ripples are 30 to 50 feet high and 300 feet long. You can imagine the scale of the receding floods that created them. Um, so the very real possibility emerging from the Comet Research Group's work that a huge earth-shaking extinction-level event occurred over North America just 12,800 years ago in our historical backyard helps to make sense of the archaeological chaos, confusion, competing narratives and DNA mysteries that now dominate the debate around the peopling of the Americas. So much more than Clovis was wiped away and obliterated in North America during the Younger Dryas Cataclysm that we should not be surprised to find the fingerprints of a lost, advanced civilization right here in North America. Was Turtle Island Atlantis? And here is Vine Deloria, Jr., a great Native American author, passed away in 2005. The problem, he says, is in getting advocates of orthodoxy to admit that there is a problem that the solutions they have suggested are not really convincing and that they cannot continue to offer ad hoc answers to pressing questions. No advances can be made in our understanding of our planet and ourselves when scholars simply recite doctrinal beliefs as if they could verify sagging credibility. Science increasingly acts as if it were a religion by relying on authority rather than argument of evidence. And that's the end of this talk, ladies and gentlemen. Now, um, 
I have to be slightly careful because I suffer from uh, epilepsy and I was nearly killed by epileptic seizures in 2017. I spent uh, 48 hours in an induced coma. We have a question and answer session after lunch and I would like to do the questions and answers then uh, unless you want to see me thrashing around on the stage. Uh, Is it gone? Hold on. Oh, God. Wow. I'm sure he's got more up his sleeve, everybody, but this is mm-hmm. this is another sign we're on the home stretch in terms of accountability. We're filling in a lot of blanks, are we not? Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to make a quick um, but precise reading here. Our sister Caroline Oceana Ryan and the Galactics there. The um, this week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, the Galactics, the Earth Elements, the Fey Elders, the Angelic Legions, Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. And Caroline says, Greetings, John, as in John Lennon. <laughs> It's been a while since we spoke, at least in written form. This is from Caroline's book, I believe, right, Rama? Mm-hmm. John Lennon channeled messages for starseeds. Um, greetings, friend, and to all happy to speak. And to all happy to speak. And so, what is the issue, Caroline? The issue is that we are having to deal with very intense earth situations right now, yet we are feeling and seeing more than ever the presence of our star nation's families, the closeness of Nasara, the vibrations on this planet and in humanity moving up to an increasingly higher level. Mm. A white knight of the Ashtar Command has reported that basically the energies being unleashed on this planet to help us ascend are being sent in as powerfully as they can be without reducing us to shreds. (laughs) John says, completely true. I wouldn't argue with that. Caroline, it means... We're being stretched further than ever, uh, than we ever have been energetically, with obvious intense effects on the mind, the body, the emotions, and spirit. Politically, we've got a handmaid's tale happening here in the United States regarding women's human rights. Mm-hmm. And economically, millions starving in various places dealing with war, or losing their homes to flood or fire if they didn't already lose their jobs and income from the pandemic. There's a beautiful montage here of uh, John Lennon's energy right in the center, imagine, with some <coughs> rose petals. John says, I want to be annoying enough right now to say, isn't it great? The old systems 
falling to pieces. It's what you've waited for. It's what I waited for most of my life. In that last turn upon the earth. And Caroline says, yes, and you helped to speed things along the way. And we are thankful for that. And it does signal the end mm. of an our regime. Of the, what's AU mean? Of the something AU regime. But it's still very, remember this not very, very hard on a lot of people. John says, yes, and sorrow wounds. And once it comes forth, the situations you mentioned, whether war or hunger or climate disaster or poverty, all of it gone, either immediately or after a few weeks time. Caroline, it leaves one wondering what other extreme measures will be taken to by the old power crowd. So, so they can kid themselves there's still a way for them to hand onto their crown. Hold on to their crown and scepter. John says, they, there isn't. They know that. Caroline says, yes, these are people gifted in the art of lying to themselves and their minions. John, they cannot lie to their overlords who are being escorted off the planet, by the way. Caroline, how are they still in control? The old hierarchy. John, well, for one, and you've heard this one before. The masses are somewhat holding on to a lot of the old earth life construct out of preference for what is familiar and out of fear that whatever comes next might not give them the hard and unsatisfactory life uh, that they had for millennia. Many are thinking, albeit subconsciously, there are so many changes happening. What if the new structure I intuitively feel coming in is not as good as the last one? <laughs> and I hate change. What is going on? It's too unsettling. Caroline says, yes, I do sense that. John says, and you've heard others on this side of the fence say the same. Caroline, how do we offer these ones who are frightened of change such a beautiful vision that they happily release all entrainment to the old earth's oppression and inequality so that they happily reclaim their sovereignty and stop feeling it's safest to be ruled by the old hierarchy? Because the old hierarchy tends to feel we're just cannon fodder. Rama, it looks like there's a something skipped here. Oh, I can't read on the side. And they're always they're always loading the cannon. John says, "Well, people have been trained for millennia to see the mis mistreatment they suffer as being for the greatest good of all. They don't see injustice half the time." because they're too afraid to think independently. That's gotten too many people crucified over the years. So what remains is for these higher energies and everyone's higher self 
to reach breakthrough. That point at which they awaken to the moment where they see that there are far higher ways of living than what Earth people are currently experiencing. And oddly, all the extreme weather, the natural and design disasters, the climate shifts are helping to awaken those who are willing to be awakened. And I will say that that though every single peaceful light warrior wants to believe that everyone they know will be brave enough to step aboard the ship of awakening, some have shut their eyes to it, imprisoned by the old programming or their own infant souls. I feel they will come forward when ready, but it cannot happen before then because of free will. And John said, that's the kind of planet we all chose to experience. Yes, and uh, Caroline says, I can grasp that everyone has their own path to walk, and I know we cannot interfere with that. If the archangels cannot intercede unless the path is laid for that, unless we call them in with great power, that then simple humans can't interfere. John says, but that's the, that's the odd part, friends. You can interfere in the sense that you speak to and of other people as if they were already fully enlightened, fully awake. You energetically call for that part of them that would love to wake up and see the truth and feel emboldened in that moment to remember who they really are. You can do that. I believe in the power of miracles, everyone. I do. It's what all of us in the higher planes have been have been doing speaking to you all etherically as being with us, one of us, in alignment with your higher selves. Stand on a street corner and yell at people to wake up. And they'll never do it. They'll cross the road to get away from you. Speak to them as if you were honored to meet them. Speak to the light within them. And know it's there. And they will either love you to bits for it and want to awaken all the more or run in the other direction because they aren't ready. John, but at least you gave them the platform on which to expand and become ready. Don't think it's all down to, uh, down to us here in the upper dimensions. It's always down to all of you. You wrote it that way. Carolyn. We created this intentionally. John, it's a very high path. Love people where they are and speak to their higher aspect as though they had already evolved into that and you are on the path of real mastery. Wow, how beautiful. She's got a picture of John looking at us. What a... John says, and yes, call upon the Ashtar command. Call upon the archangels and the ascended masters. They are not just here for light workers. They speak to all. Tell them you are as a planet ready to ascend. And you willingly call in their assistance on every level. 
including active intervention to assist humanity and Agnesar and to actively dismantle the old corrupt earth structures. Many of these beings are physically on the ground now, as you know. They are doing all of the above and more. They have never turned their backs on humanity. They were awaiting the uh, invitation to help you break through the matrix of religion, media, government, so-called education, all of it. Caroline. And in all of this, we are never alone. And John said, that is so. We are all of us here to assist. I think that was the end of the line here. Namaste, friends. Call upon our, call upon us. Our wisdom is here for the taking and our love flows to you all at every moment. Thank you, my friend, says Caroline. John bows to all at your service always. And with that talking stick, that John Lennon talking stick and all of his friends, and I know Sananda Kumar is right on the top of that list with Michael and uh, Raphael, Gabriel, call it all, angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, elves, manahunis, what did I miss? Here it comes, Rainbird. Here it comes. I caught it. Right <laughs> <laughs> oh, there. Holy cow. Yeah, holy cow. There <laughs> you go. The, the cow. And so thank you. Yeah, but we're here. We're in the middle of it. And the show now. And thanks a lot. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Rama. It was a Sunday. I, it was a, <laughs> it's a Sunday now. So, yeah, lots of interest. I really want to look at that Graham Hancock and see all those places. I've been to a lot of them. I've been to the Cahokia Mountains and the Serpent Mountains a number of times. And those other places he was talking about with the circle and the square, that those are up there in Ohio, too. I went to a couple of those. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it was a good night. It was a good day. And... Lots of gratitude for all of us being here and doing this journey. So with that, passing this talking stick to you, Robin, here it comes. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you for the spirit you bring to all of us and mm. to this journey we're on. What's this called, Rama? Life is gorgeous. Life is gorgeous. Let's do it. May that place inside of us that can touch the human in the dolphin be with us all. <laughs> what do you say, Rama? Mm. Ditto. <laughs> this is a number I would suggest that we could get together and call with Cheryl Croce. Uh This is on Sunday evening and Monday evening. It starts at 7 or so mountain time, which would be 9 in the evening, Eastern time. It goes for about two and a half, three hours, pretty much. 
And the number is, it's just for the sake of unity consciousness. That word, social words, back in the 60s, 70s. 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946 Seven four four one pound nine four six seven four four one pound. See you there, and in our hearts, and on the bridge, and we love everyone. We really mean it, right, Rama? Yes. (laughs) Inshallah. Inshallah. See you on the bridge and in your dreams, everyone. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil. Aloha. Aloha.